It's time to put an end to your trek through the stars. Space. The final frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast Gimme That Star Trek. It's ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. Welcome to episode 35 of Gimme That Star Trek, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Siskoid, and today I'm continuing the full series review that started in the Monster episode 8, in which I reviewed all of the original series, then episode 16, in which I did the same with the animated series and original cast movies, and last year's episode 25, where I covered the first half of The Next Generation. So now let's talk about the back half of that series, a good time to do it too, with the new Picard series on the horizon. We're looking at everything from Clues in the middle of the fourth season to Nemesis, the last TNG movie. Much of this is adapted from daily reviews at Cisco's blog of Geekery, but you'll also get second opinions from across the podcasting community, chiming in at intervals, several guest speakers making their Gimme That Star Trek debut. Ready or not, we're letting Captain Picard say... So as we said, we start with the episode Clues. Clues hinges rather strongly on keeping its air of mystery. So if you've never seen it, you might want to skip this review entirely. I'll just skip two, three minutes. But I'll still try to be vague. If you have seen it, then you might agree with me that the episode suffers once you know the solution. Data is far less untrustworthy when you know what's going on. On first viewing, this seems much creepier, and you didn't know where it was going, only guessing, just as a crew does. Some mind-benders are fun upon rewatching, as you can spot the clues more knowingly. I don't get that vibe as strongly with clues. Though Data's outlandish justifications can be fun, the crew is very competent at uncovering the mystery, and the final reveal isn't some kind of cop-out. I suppose I was still relatively happy with the story until uh, the last act. This is the one in which Data reveals all, and it's dreadfully talky. In real life, I'm heavily involved in improv games, and one thing I teach the younger generation of players is about the dangers of narration. Dramatically, there's little I find more boring than being told something happened and then almost simultaneously being shown that event happening. In the case of clues, if you add the various revelations indicated by the clues, you get served the same information too many times. Throw in some dreadful fight choreography for Worf and the further mystery of how the Troy clue uh, was finally handled, and I'm less and less satisfied with this episode. Not for the first time, the teaser has nothing to do with the plot, but it gives us a clue about the show's theme. They're starting to stretch that idea a bit far for my taste, and it comes packaged in a terrible Dixon Hill sequence with Picard and Guinan hamming it up uh, with bogey impressions. Now, is it me, or does this seem woefully out of character for Guinan? The whole skit seems to star Whoopi Goldberg instead. The doll's my cousin. Yeah! Gloria! From Cleveland. On a first viewing, I would say this was like a, had a medium high rewatchability. But every subsequent time, it seems more and more average. I don't think it had much more than the mystery going for it. 
Let's look at First Contact. Not to be mistaken for the later movie of the same name, the episode has some nagging Prime Directive implications which threaten to derail one's enjoyment of the episode throughout. It seems crazy to think First Contact would be initiated before the first warp flight, as if that would influence their culture, and you may or may not find Riker's rescue a justifiable reason for stepping up the contact program, especially in light of the Malkorian's more closed-minded elements. It's a good thing Mirasta and Durkin are so reasonable when you think about it. But if the episode nonetheless works, because I think it does, I think it's because we're only really shown the alien's point of view, or more accurately, treating the Enterprise crew as the aliens here. There's something a little disappointing in their being so close to us, the Mal- Koreans as we are now, but I suppose that's how we can empathize with them. We see both good and bad Melkorians, and even the bad ones aren't really driven by malice as much as fear or some other ideal. Krola's attempted suicide for the cause, for example, is a striking scene. Another good one, and tonally opposite, is the alien groupie scene with B.B. Newworth obviously having fun playing Lanell. I've always wanted to make love with an alien. It's your only way out of here. Riker, 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 you dirty dog. Uh, But while they manage to find some humor, the script is mostly serious, with the focus on how incredibly transforming and scary such an event would be. Picard and Riker are the only two characters to get as much screen time as the starring Malkorians, who do a very good job, I must say. Both show off their skills well, with Picard, the clear winner, dealing with the situation with great diplomacy and integrity, kind of saves the episode from being too much of a prime directive quagmire. So while this is flawed, yes, but it's a nice breath of fresh air nonetheless. The formula uh, will be used more often by Voyager later on, but rarely has it been so successful as the original. Let's hear what Mike Gillis from Radio vs. the Martians had to say about this one. Having Star Trek The Next Generation available to me on Netflix at any time I want offers an interesting conundrum. With the entirety of the series at my fingertips, what should I rewatch when the mood strikes me? Oddly enough, one of the episodes I find myself revisiting the most is a quieter one from Season 4, First Contact. It doesn't have any epic space battles, the stakes are relatively low, and a phaser is only fired twice, once at an IV stand. But it's an interesting look at familiar characters from an unfamiliar perspective. Primarily, it strikes me as an inversion of the 1983 sci-fi miniseries V. On V... Earth is visited by seemingly benevolent species of humanoid aliens in colorful jumpsuits. Sound familiar? Who want to share technology and be our friends. Of course, they're really lizard men who want to eat us, strip mine our world, and conquer the planet without firing a shot, so your mileage will vary. First Contact offers an interesting alternative. What if the visitors from V were exactly who they said they were? What if, instead of violent, cannibalistic subjugators with death rays, that the aliens really did come in peace? Of course, we know that Captain Jean-Luc Picard and Commander William Riker are the good guys because we follow their adventures every week, but how could Security Minister Krola really know that? How does he know which science fiction story he's in? And... While Krola is a bit reactionary and paranoid, his fears aren't totally unwarranted. How would you feel if you learned that technologically advanced aliens had been disguising themselves as humans and doing undercover reconnaissance work on Earth for years? 
Krola is really only the antagonist of this story because he was written into Gene Roddenberry's universe and not Kenneth Johnson's. I like this episode not just because of its quieter tone, but the fact that it takes a look at exactly the kind of mission that the USS Enterprise might undertake when the Borg or the Romulans aren't causing trouble. And it reminds you that the opening narration of the series isn't about blowing up bad guys, but about seeking out new life and new civilizations. It offers a refreshing science fiction alternative in the example of Captain Jean-Luc Picard, who's both a respectful explorer and diplomat without being an imperialist or conqueror, and it shows how you can wield power with restraint and mutual respect. And isn't that what we want from our Star Trek? I certainly do. Next up, we have Galaxy's Child. My favorite thing about this one is definitely the return of Susan Gibney as, this time, the real Leah Brahms. Sexier than ever, with her hair down like that and a lot more spark. The hollow version was really sappy, I felt. She puts in an excellent performance. She's bossy, outraged, confused, warming up to Jordy. She does it all quite well. Unfortunately, their relationship as scripted has quite a few problems. It starts off okay with Jordy at his most pathetic, hoping for a romantic connection with the real deal this time. He hasn't got a chance, uh, of course, and at least it's because she's married, not because he's blind. Now, I mention this because they never do on the show. Uh, Jordy is this total loser in love, aside from getting Christy in Transfigurations, but no one would dare say it's because of some inherent prejudice against his obvious prosthetic, or more controversially, as LeVar Burton hints at on the Season 3 DVD documentary, because he's black. That kind of thing would be unheard of in the future. I'm not sure that tracks. It really feels like the character is being shafted for having these traits, but not being allowed to explore them. And so Jordy remains my least favorite character in TNG. Some of the reasons why are showcased here in this episode, such as his ridiculous arguments with the Enterprise computer, all of which seems forced to create comedic moments, and his never being told she was married. If he's read up on her after Booby Trap, which is mentioned, he would have, I'm sure. The plot device is straight out of sitcom land. I don't buy the argument in the holodeck for a second. It has a strange delivery, for one thing. I'm guilty of a terrible crime, Doctor. I offered you friendship. Or Leia's quick forgiveness. At the very end, making it seem like she did have feelings for Jordy, but was trapped in her marriage. I think that's a mistake. Another good scene for Guinan in connection with this story, however. In the background is the story of Junior, which is pretty good. Strong effects, Picard is excellent when devastated by the death of the mother, and the solutions, though realized through Technobabble, are rooted in a common-sense approach that makes the drama engaging. If I have a problem with the plot, it's that it seems to occur too independently of the Geordi Leia plot. With their turning off the warp core and crawling through passages during a crisis, the threads only really converge at the end. I think this has a medium rewatchability. Susan Gibney's performance is the real reason to watch this one, with the junior plot being above-average background science fiction drama. The romance element is, however, mishandled. Let's talk about Night Terrors. This one attempts to be a supernatural thriller with plenty of chills and scares, but... It's severely impeded by the too early realization that the crew is hallucinating the weird goings-on. This dispels a lot of the suspense, and while some of the set pieces are atmospheric and creepy, in particular the body bags sequence, we know there's no actual danger. Good direction, but these are only images, independent ideas that aren't instrumental to the story. Another problem is the overt technobabble that motivates and resolves the plot. Uh, when looking at plots, I often find myself thinking in terms of role-playing games. Specifically, if I were a game master forcing this plot on my players, 
Would they be able to find a solution on their own? The answer here is no, since the phenomenon and its solution are total inventions. As with the players, so with the audience. The REM sleep deprivation stuff is better, but it just seems like the plot exists to force Troy to be the hero, despite Data's strange hero shot at the end. Directed dreaming as a plot device? They're pushing it. It works in that context, but it takes a lot of work to get to that conclusion. Never mind the fortuitous one-moon epiphany that relies on one, Troy not knowing what a hydrogen atom looks like. And two, her asking Data what you doing at the best possible moment. Oh, and three, hydrogen being placed smack dab in the middle of complex molecules instead of at the beginning when they're scrolling through those. If the details manage to bug me so much, it's because the rest of the episode barely manages to get my attention at all. There's a lot of padding here since... Really, any other set pieces could be removed without hurting the plot or even long-term characterization. The mutiny brewing in Ten Forward, for example, ends with Guinan pulling a gun, which is either cool or totally ridiculous, depending on your mood. However, I will recommend the previously mentioned body bag sequence, uh, Worf's near suicide, the effects of Troy's dream sequence, though not her dialogue, and the return of the O'Briens. So some scenes are worthy of your attention but the plot is pretty dull as the characters one by one lose both their ability to speak coherently and their makeup artists. If you're looking for a score here, it's going to be medium low. This is a little souvenir I picked up from Magus 3. That was setting number one. Anyone want to see setting number two? Oh joy, another Geordi episode. This one's called Identity Crisis. It's a Geordi story based in medical technobabble. Yeah, uh, TNG seems to have trouble doing mysteries properly, and it's really because they hinge on technobabble solutions every time. So think here of, like, Dr. Apgar's death by automated particle beam in Matter of Perspective, which we covered last time. In this case, the crew of the Ares disappears by virtue of a strange virus. The audience can't participate in the mystery solving because... It's all technical, and face it, it's also arbitrary. This is a shift from TOS, which had better mysteries. Think of The Conscience of the King, or Court Martial, because they were based on human motivations. And the technobabble is fairly nonsensical here. A species that reproduces by changing the DNA of another into its own. That seems entirely too dependent on other humanoids coming to planet Tarkanan, right? You also have to accept that DNA can be spontaneously rewritten, giving you magical mittens in less than a second, and that Susanna can magically know everything about their biology after being returned to normal. Or even that Geordi would refuse Data's help on a scientific inquiry, which happens in this. Despite it all, Identity Crisis possibly stands as, I guess, the best... Geordi episode of all time? It's really sad to say that. His characterization is still stuck on being unlucky in love, as shown in an on-point conversation between him and his so-called big sister, Susanna. Or is it me, or is there an awkward moment there when it looks like Geordi's trying to muster enough courage to hit on her? He's so pathetic. I think it would be totally keeping in character for him to have had a big crush on his big sister. At least she hugs him while he's naked, right? The simulated crime scene in the holodeck provides a creepy moment, though it would have been a whole lot more chilling if they dispense with all the computer screen investigation beforehand. Note that we never see away teams being filmed elsewhere. That never happens on Star Trek, except when needed. Not much for the other regulars to do, uh, though they, they do get small moments. Data strongly motivated to solve the mystery, Crusher bringing this admission out of him. For some reason, I really like the, the moment where she drinks water. It's something real and human in an otherwise very technological story. And there's that invisibility effect. It's pretty cool. Predator, 
call your lawyer. So I'm going to give this a medium. The human elements are watchable, though you have to suffer through a lot of technobabble. And if this is another failed romance for Jordy, at least, you know, things are left unsaid. I'm sorry. There's no need for an apology. Next up, The Nth Degree. Barkley's back. This is good for two reasons. First, his first appearance was a great episode. And second, while it's accepted fact that a guest star playing a crew member is always somewhere on the ship, it's so rare that we actually see them. So, though Barkley appears here, where is he usually? Night shift? But let's let that go. We have him. Let's enjoy him. And we do enjoy him. We get just enough of the jittery Barkley before he becomes like everyone else on board. A progression that's well played by Dwight Schultz. And by the time he becomes a human computer, complete with shockingly cool laser show, the episode enters 2001 territory, or, you know, was I the only one reminded of how 2000 as Geordi was working in the Jeffries tubes? In a final twist, the reason he takes over the ship is totally benign, it's even cute, and it was great to see Picard go from pissed to excited explorer mode in one second flat. Because that's one of the good things about the Nth Degree. Even if it centers on a guest star, the main cast isn't ignored. Geordi was always going to be heavily featured, uh, but more interesting is Beverly, showing interest in the arts again. I have to say that the scenes Barkley is given to perform in her play are perfectly chosen. Cyrano could be played as flustered when meeting Roxanne at breakfast, though maybe not that self-conscious about his wig. So it's not like Barkley's nervous tics are ruining the scene. Later, the moon fantasy not only plays with Star Trek's genre, but also includes the line, And when I arrive, they will question my worthiness. What the devil is he doing there among us? which speaks to Barclay's character specifically. Data's critical opinions, Worf being teased, Riker getting jealous over Barclay hitting on Diana, and yes, the hint of a romance between the shy lieutenant and the counselor in that blue dress, I'd be very tempted as well, uh, which sadly never really amounted to anything. You know, it is sweet though. So this is a surprisingly strong episode for Troy. A lot of good moments. High rewatchability factor almost makes you wish Barclay was featured more often, maybe like, you know, Deep Space Nine's guest stars were. That cast was a lot bigger than the opening credits let on, you know? Fun, and still to this day, surprising. <laughs> Annoying guest characters together at last. Add Luxana Troy and you would have had the perfect storm of irritation. I'm talking about Cupid. What Vash and Q have in common is that they are major pains in Captain Picard's life. So bringing them together is a recipe for entertainment, yes? Well, no, I'm not a big fan of Vash's. I've said so before. Q, for his part, can be hit and miss. So let's take them one by one. I think what nags me about Vash so much is that, as written, everyone must immediately be attracted to her. Picard, Riker, Worf, Sir Guy, even Beverly falls under her spell. She emitting pheromones I can't smell through my TV screen, or what is it? I don't see it. She's nowhere near as charming, sexy, or charismatic as everyone seems to think she is. And that's a problem. If I don't buy the chemistry between her and Picard, I don't buy the premise. After 12 minutes of ridiculous sitcom squirming, where nothing happens, enter Q. He's out to repay a debt to Picard by helping him somehow. It's a funny moment when Riker responds by alerting the crew. Uh, Q works least when he's just a nuisance because he tends to be annoying to the audience, as he is to Picard. His choice of good deed is to reconcile Vash and Picard after they've had a spat. Spare me. When they plunged into the world of Robin Hood, uh, and yes, there are a couple of good jokes, especially for Worf. I protest. I am not a merry man. The mandolin bit. But the rest is very ordinary. There's something to be said about Q not figuring on Vash 
skanking it up to save her skin, and Data using one of his components to cause an explosive diversion, but it all devolves into a fight where the girls smash pots on guards' heads. So what's the use of a helmet then? Let's just say I wasn't sad to see Vaj go into the great beyond with Q at the end. Now I know I've been a little hard on this one, but it's not that bad. Uh, there's some humor in it, and it moves along without ever being dull, but... You know, it's highly ridiculous fluff. Stan Peel, one of the real guys, provides us with a second opinion. I'm a huge fan of Star Trek TNG, although not a big fan of Q or Vosh. However, I would argue this episode may be the best way to see both characters. Part of the reason I usually can't get into Q is that he's just too powerful. He can virtually do anything, and Picard can only triumph if Q lets him. So that really takes the steam out of any potential dramatic tension. Now on top of that, you can't trust what he says, so even if he says he'll set up the rules for a situation, like in this episode where he says he won't interfere and that the fantasy will have a life of its own, he does interfere, nullifying any hope of an even playing field. Even though a small nod to reality is made, blood is drawn to prove there's real danger, Worf probably enjoyed getting a small injury and nobody else got hurt. So clearly nothing in this episode is to be taken seriously, so dramatic tension is not required, hence the presence of Q actually makes sense to me. And with their supposed high sexual tension reduced to a punchline, Picard's bizarre fascination with Vash takes a welcome back seat. It doesn't matter who he rescues, he just wants to do a cool rescue. And he does. The sword fight is the perfect climax to this weird satire. Picard especially seems to have a ball. This episode, besides being eminently quotable, is just plain fun, if you're cool with a light, completely throwaway episode. And there's a weirdly satisfying symmetry in pairing Vash with Q. They're both amoral explorers, curious enough to rummage through any culture they encounter, and full of enough hubris to assume the folks they run into are delighted to meet them. Now, when I looked up this episode to rewatch it, I noticed it was Season 4, Episode 20. I'm sure it wasn't intentional that this was their 420 episode, but it is nonetheless trippy and a good time. Next up, the drumhead. It's hard to go wrong when Picard plays the advocate, but the drumhead would work only half as well without an actress that has the chops necessary to take on Patrick Stewart. And Gene Simmons has them. And soon enough, you're watching one of those modern lawyer shows where... No one can trust anyone, and dirty tricks come out of left field, but the episode is also a taut political thriller. In the great Star Trek allegory, the drumhead is McCarthyism in action, and Romulan is just another word for communist, or today it's the Patriot Act and terrorists, or or even, you know, policies against immigrants. There's an avowed spy with a cool mode of encrypting intel, uh, possible sabotage, and suspicions laid at the feet of the innocent. Just to raise the stakes, Sati's investigator appeals to Worf's inner Nazi and turns him into a willing participant in a witch trial, until he himself is betrayed. It's a good show for Worf overall, from his quick attack on Jadan in the teaser to his realization that he let his Klingon heart get the best of him. But the star is really Picard. Patrick Stewart gets the unenviable task of making speeches throughout, but he always makes them interesting, always makes us believe it's more than just the writer's words. When Satie starts questioning how the past episodes reflect on his competence and loyalty, he knows the truth, but it's still an excellent nod to continuity. I don't know, was anyone else trying to find the nine times he apparently broke the Prime Directive? When she opens the wound of his Borg assimilation, now that really hurts, and that's when he goes on the offensive with her father's own words. With the first link, the chain is forged. The first speech censured, the first thought forbidden, first freedom denied chains us all irrevocably great moment one of many for picard 
The mystery of the sabotage is solved with uh, techno babble, but here it works. First, it's not the point of the story, so, and second, it makes Sati's inquiry even more dubious, even more paranoid. I have to mention the noose she wears around her neck. It's a lovely and subtle piece of design. Everyone was doing their best in this one. Totally high rewatchability, with no effects except stock footage and only one new set, the Inquiry Room, which is modified from the computer core in Evolution, I think. The drumhead stands up thanks to great writing and acting. It's one of the best episodes in this season. And season four continues with Half a Life, a Luaxana episode. You know, it's normally something I dread, and the brow furrows as soon as we catch sight of Picard slinking through the ship uncomfortably a la Cupid. We're in sitcom land again. Major Barrett has the annoying tendency to over-emote, especially in those telepathic conversations with Diana. Really, if I never see one of those again. But there must be some truth to the idea that great actors bring out the best in lesser ones something she tried to disprove every time she's in the room with Patrick Stewart. Because her work with David Ogden Steers is the best we'll ever see. His Dr. Timison is a sad, usually quiet figure, whose euphoria quickly turns to anguish, and it's all done brilliantly. Barrett was never so subtle and grounded as when he refuses to go into her quarters or at the episode's resolution. Now, we call this the euthanasia episode, but it's not really the issue, is it? Timison isn't ill or otherwise suffering. So it fails as a euthanasia debate. It's more of a Logan's Run debate. So no, it's really about how to deal with an aging population. It's about retirement homes, healthcare, the fears of Gen Xers who will work all their lives to pay for baby boomers' pensions uh, while possibly getting none themselves, at least when the episode was aired. Insert millennials into this equation. And the general fear of aging and becoming irrelevant Timison's assertion that before the resolution, elders would simply try the patience of younger people is harsh. But how far is it from the truth? In the early 90s, this was a concern. But today, there are more people retired than in the workforce. And it's only getting worse. Half a Life makes the case for both sides. It explores the issues without beating the pulpit on one side or the other. In the final analysis, it remains true to the characters and the setting. The Prime Directive ties Picard's hands, and he doesn't interfere. He's learned his lesson in the drumhead, I guess. Luoxana truly loves this man, and in the end, respects his culture and wishes. It's too bad that character growth didn't really stick. It's really quite touching, and a twist on the viewer's expectations. Now, take note of Michelle Forbes, who appears as Timison's daughter. Sadly saddled with a stupid hairstyle here, she's very strong and affecting. And I can see how this was viewed as her audition piece for the role of Ensign Rowe. Now, normally, an episode that focuses on guest stars would be iffy and a total disaster if one of these were Luxana Troy. That it manages to be moving and uncompromising is something of a miracle. High marks here. Permission to disembark, Captain. I promise I won't cause any problems down there. Next up, The Host. A second doomed romance in a row? Yeah, I'm not sure that was a good idea. And while I love Crusher as a character, and want more episodes to spotlight her, I simply can't support yet another sappy romance with a mysterious and ethereal alien character. Odan is just John Doe with a slug inside him. And then the host body dies, and it turns into some kind of fanfic with Beverly betting Riker. Why not jump hosts every 15 minutes and do the whole crew, Bev? It certainly doesn't help that Frakes doesn't really differentiate Odan and Riker. I kept thinking that Riker was just taking advantage of her. The host might have been a good historical episode, if you want to see where the trill began. But they've got almost nothing in common with the joint species presented in New Space Nine. And it's actually 
better ignored. Different makeup, including the symbiont itself, and doesn't look the same. Different attitude towards the host body and the changing of hosts. Uh, the beaming danger. The amazing inflatable stomach. Imagine Dax doing that. Starfleet's familiarity with them. You'd rack up no prizes trying to explain it all. The words are the same, but that's it. Trill. No other similarity. Well, the basic concept, that's it. This leaves us with character moments, such as Picard's discomfort when he realizes Beverly's in love with someone else. It's very different from her attitude when he meets Vash, so it seems he's the only one who can't resolve his feelings. Uh, Troy seems much more evolved when she throws Crusher into Riker slash Odan's arms. The two girl talk scenes fall kind of flat for me, especially the comedy version in the salon. And then Crusher cops out on girl-on-girl action. Hmm. It's 40 minutes of gossiping, crying, and melodramatic music, occasionally punctuated by what might have been interesting negotiations. Better luck next time, Dr. Crusher. I thought for sure the host would make it to a medium score, but it doesn't. It's derivative, it's mushy, it's strident. And you like it. I like it. The Mind's Eye, Star Trek does The Manchurian Candidate. But it does well enough that it doesn't matter if the episode's roots are showing. TNG has gotten rather good at political thrillers, and The Mind's Eye serves as a sort of follow-up to the drumhead's Romulan threat, and as a setup for Redemption's Klingon focus, in which the shadowy figure's importance will be revealed. And it's also the first episode in ages where Geordi's being interesting. The visor has always made it difficult for the viewer to identify with Geordi seems to me. He just can't show the full range of expression others can with that thing on. In this instance, it helps make his possession extra creepy. We get a nice scare when he makes a move for the real O'Brien, and what a great turn it is to have him investigate himself. The tight direction also keeps the suspicion off Kel for a long time. At one point, I thought there really was an inside man, as per Nora Satie's belief, as a crew member gave a strange look to Geordi. Data's own investigation was, for all its technobabble, kind of gripping. We already know the answers, but it's a matter of how quickly the android can get them before his friend commits murder. Troy also gets to show how a counselor would actually be useful aboard ship when she helps deprogram Geordi, and her fishing for gossip when he returns from Ryza is amusing. Small detail, who else thinks Krios looks like they crossed the Klingon homeworld and Angel 1? Looks nice in any case. This one's a tense thriller that leads into the season finale two episodes away. So possibly this is the best Geordi episode ever. Identity Crisis is off the hook. I thought I might be forced to endure another couple of weeks on Ryza. I'm sorry to hear you did not enjoy yourself. Next up, in theory, it's Data's turn to get a romance. And in his case, it really can only be a comedy episode. Character-driven comedies in Star Trek work much better than attempts at silliness, and Data's study of dating is full of laughs. Data being either stiff or naive or even creepy, he'd call it suave, starting a lover's quarrel, listing everything he was thinking during a kiss. I was reconfiguring the warp field parameters, analyzing the collected works of Charles Dickens, calculating the maximum pressure I could safely apply to your lips, considering a new food supplement for spot... I'm glad I was in there somewhere. Even when I thought we were in trouble, uh, when Keiko started nagging, it turned to comedy as Jenna hung on Data like a lovesick schoolgirl. I would have loved to see O'Brien's reactions just then. Speaking of reactions, those of the crew provide some of the episode's best moments. Riker is all a titter. Jordy, really not the guy to ask first. Troy, having some serious misgivings. Guinan's sage non-advice. Worf acting the older brother. 
and Picard's quick escape. It's very amusing, but you're still very involved when the relationship degenerates. Hey, Data's fine. He can't be hurt. But the breakup is still a little bit wrenching, isn't it? Still, one could say they were both running an experiment to its natural conclusion. In a way, it's too bad the story had to be saddled with a B-plot about a nebula littered with obstacles that make walls phase in and out of reality. I do like how the darkness and mystery of the environment acts as a backdrop to Data's own inexperience, and that shot of the crew woman stuck in the floor is a powerful one. However, the climax involves Picard or, or Patrick Stewart, maybe, insisting on piloting the shuttle through the anomalies and guide the Enterprise out of trouble. Not only is there no real need for it, it's a little boring besides. Its only redeeming feature, Picard utters the words, Now will be a good time, Mr. O'Brien. Not unlike Kirk in the Doomsday Weapon. I give this high marks. Despite the B-plot on autopilot, <laughs> you don't have to be a fan of Data's to enjoy his dating adventures. There's plenty of set pieces to enjoy in this. <laughs> Season finale time, Redemption Part 1. Well, Worf's story arc is determined never to be boring. The fourth season's finale jumps right in and takes no prisoners with only slight explanations of what has gone before. I'm not complaining, but then I'm not the casual viewer. Uh, the Klingons are as engaging as ever, with Garon giving us beautiful lines like Your blood will paint the way to the future, and Worf's brother Kern returning as well. The episode also introduces the magnificent and striking Sisters of Duras and their runty, illegitimate nephew, Toral, who's a lot harder to take. Uh, but it's great to see everyone shut him up. Oh, and of course, Sila, Tasha's Romulan daughter, is finally seen out of shadow. And we'll talk more about her in the next review. Redemption builds towards the Klingon Civil War with political maneuvering from all sides, with everyone turning in great scenes. Picard having tea with the sisters and getting a nice scalp massage. Garon's seduction of Worf and Worf's own maneuvering to get Garon to clear his family name. And while the ending doesn't pack the punch of, say, the best of both worlds, I mean, how could it? It's still a powerful moment as Worf walks his last stretch of Federation corridor with all his colleagues lined up at attention. Is that a lump in my throat? Yeah, I think it just might be. Permission to leave the ship, sir. Permission granted. Blah. This one's another Klingon hit from Ron Moore's pen. Not as exciting as the previous season's finale, but nonetheless, absorbing. We're going to take our first of several promo breaks right now as we get ready for Season 5. I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And we want to ask you an important question. Are you sick and tired of other panel discussion shows wasting your time droning on and on about foreign policy, economics, and human rights? Or do you want to hear conversations about things that actually matter? We host a podcast called Radio vs. the Martians. Every month we gather a panel of our nation's finest minds and plunge a rusty prison shank into the heart of tough questions that have an impact on the lives of real people like you. Like, are drivers required to pull over for the Ghostbusters? Is the United Federation of Planets actually an oppressive dictatorship run by guidance counselors? Is Arnold Schwarzenegger secretly a genius? And are we being mean when we laugh at movies that are so bad they're good? So, write your congressman and let them know that Radio vs. the Martians is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and on RadioVsTheMartians.com. We're back. We're heading into Season 5. Starts with Redemption Part 2, and that's split into two parts. As long as we're in the Klingon half, we're fine. Kern using some devious strategy to win a lopsided battle. Enemies drinking together because to Klingons it's all about the fighting. They don't care who they do it with. 
the sisters whispering things to each other, really working in tandem, Bator trying to seduce Worf, Worf starting to realize that maybe Garon isn't really a representative of honor with a capital H, Worf later going his own way by sparing the life of Tural. All great scenes that would leave one to believe they could have sustained a Klingon-centric show easily at this point. Because it's the Federation side of things that, that has problems. One of these is Technobabble, something that hardly ever comes up in the Klingon setting. The Tachyon detection grid used to blockade the cloaked Romulan ships just doesn't make any sense. If you don't buy the premise, you don't buy the climax. As shown, it would be incredibly easy for a cloaked ship to just fly around the damn thing. And in any case, it's full of holes, even when they don't expressly say there's a hole. Data's experiment with ambition comes across, well, at first reacting with uncompromising authority when Hobson asks to be reassigned, but it gets more and more forced until Data is uncharacteristically ignoring hails from the Enterprise just so he can be the big hero, while letting Hobson think he's leading the crew to the brink of destruction. It's just upping the ante for its own sake at the end there. You don't give a damn about the people whose lives you're throwing away. We're not just machines. Mr. Hobson, you will carry out my orders or I will relieve you of duty. And finally, we have to mention Sela. Denise Crosby's own little idea to come back on the show isn't a bad one, and it allows her to play a much less strident character. It's weird timeline stuff that makes sense given the events of yesterday's Enterprise, and again, Guinan seems to be the only one that's time-sensitive enough to see what's going on. Is this thanks to her echo in the Nexus? Hmm. Since the Romulan commander's identity has no bearing on the pilot at hand, it smells of a stunt, and it serves the character poorly. I mean, if we're going to bring back Crosby, do it in an episode that's about that. Still, nice little chess game between her and Picard, but try to imagine it if it had been Tomalok instead. And there's also this. A human can lead a Romulan fleet, but an android can't command a Federation starship? Who are the xenophobes now? I do give this a high rewatchability, however. The soft science and artificial climax to the Data story aren't enough to bring down another Klingon success. As the Klingon Civil War wraps up nicely and Worf moves on with his life. Next up is Darmok, and I have a very special place in my heart for this one. Where Kirk is remembered as a fighter, Picard is a diplomat, a communicator. And this episode's dilemma is really about communication. As with the Harada in The Big Goodbye, it's extremely refreshing to see the Universal Translator not smooth over how difficult it would actually be to understand another culture. The children of Tama have an evocative culture too, not only with their highly metaphorical language, but in the postures, mannerisms, connection to objects. It's all quite fascinating. Subtleties abound even on repeat viewings. The late Paul Winfield is very effective as Captain Dathan, to the point of being touching in the last scenes. Picard's choice of a Babylonian myth is novel and unexpected, but creates a narrative that relates directly to the action and serves as a fitting eulogy for Dathan. It's unfortunate that Picard has to reason things out out loud because it makes him appear quite a bit thick, but I suppose we need to understand what he's thinking. On repeat viewings, this is kind of tedious, however. Up aboard ship, it's gratifying to see Troy actually be useful, like a crew member trained in the social sciences could be. Note Ashley Judd in her first TV role ever as Robin Leffler. She'll turn up again later in a bigger part. I like how they're seeding characters for later appearances, giving us a better sense of an actual crew. Also this season, also new this season, Picard's velvet jacket and gray away team shirt. It looks good. And if Kirk could wear that green shirt when he wanted, I say Picard can have the jacket. No surprise, high rewatchability for me. Intellectually and emotionally rewarding. Darmog bears repeat viewing. You can eventually understand both sides of the conversation. Sukat! 
His eyes uncovered! Now, Ensign Rowe. TNG keeps adding to its extended crew uh, with Maud the Barber, an amusing and thankfully brief distraction, and Rolaren, the angry, rebellious Bajoran Ensign. As a title character, it's really her show here. Michelle Forbes is stellar in the role, as uncomfortable in her Starfleet uniform as Barkley might be, but for totally different reasons. Look at that performance again. The way she presses her badge instead of tapping it, taking the turbo lift nobody ever takes uh, right next to the ready room, removing her shirt and no zippers to clothe a little girl. It's like nothing is sacred to this woman. If she's not going to play the Star Trek game with us, you think she'll follow Picard's orders? She's an outsider. And yet she'll become Picard's protege by the end of the episode and perhaps surprisingly remain aboard as a sort of replacement for Wesley. I, for one, am not complaining. I love Michelle Forbes. Aside from Picard, she forges one relationship with an established character, and that's Guinan. Aren't they both refugees, after all? Guinan sees through her immediately, much as Ro sees right through Kifalor. Excellent scenes ensue. And I do love how she rejects the girl club when they come a-gossiping. With Ensign Ro come the Bajorans, which can be tied to the Jews in the great Star Trek allegory, an ancient spiritual culture displaced and trodden on by the Nazi-like Cardassians. But there's an extra level in that their situation is much like the Palestinians. It's not overtly stated, but is there if you wish to think about it. No doubt watching this episode was a must for developing Deep Space Nine later, and it should be for viewers as well. The situation mirrors that of the Maquis DMZ storyline and prefigures much of Kira's character. In a way, it's too bad Michelle Forbes didn't want to join the DS9 cast, though I did come to love Kira as well. High rewatchability, obviously, Ensign Row comes off as a very mature political story with great twists and character moments, solid acting, a great new character, sure to spice things up in the series, and the beginning of a Bajoran Cardassian story that'll take us through the next 10 plus seasons of Trek. And quick plug here, uh, I did write about this episode in Outside In Boldly Goes, a collection of essays about every single episode, but looking at it from a skewed angle. Uh, this is out from ATB Press where I specifically delved into the idea that Rolaren's earring isn't on the normal side. I find reasons for this uh, in the essay, but as I don't want to take too much time here, I'll, you'll just have to seek out the book. Seems like everybody's just pulling my strings, you know, like I've got no control. Next up is Silicon Avatar. We've been writing on a high for far too long, and something had to give. Silicon Avatar starts off with a bang, with the entity looking glorious and destroying an entire planet. Great effects. Killing Riker's Dame Du Jour as just an extra shock, as it seems like her guest spot should have lasted longer. Uh, it's Susan Dial, better known to geeks as Al's first wife on uh, Quantum Leap. But in the aftermath comes Dr. Kalamar, a thoroughly unpleasant character who hijacks the episode as well as the Enterprise's systems. She starts off as a sort of robophobe, not unlike Hobson from Redemption 2, but for more personal reasons. If you don't like the characters we like, we don't like you, Dr. Mar. That's strike one. Then she takes an interest in Data, but has him dig his brain for memories of her dead son. Okay, let's talk about that for a second. Data has apparently been programmed not only with an entire colony's personal journals, but also with their actual memories. This is hard to take because, first, we've never heard of it before. Second, as a colonist, I wouldn't have wanted anyone near my most intimate thoughts. And thirdly, all that human experience and data is still largely clueless about humanity. Doesn't make sense. But, okay, back to our regularly scheduled review. So Dr. Marr has data read some of her son's letters using the dead kid's voice. 
which is at once creepy and pathetic. It just comes out of left field to ramp up the melodrama, using data and making me feel icky inside. That's strike two. And for her finale, she destroys the entity just as they were actually communicating with it and Picard was getting his groove on. Strike three. Really, I found the character strident and annoying and would much rather have had the debate come from Riker, which it did. Uh, The episode's direction telegraphs his objections subtly as Troy notices his mood from afar. All done in looks, and I enjoy that. Troy doesn't do much in Silicon Avatar, but she's worth watching there in the background. Still give this one a medium. It's not terrible. It's got some great effects and good acting from the regulars, but the melodrama is cranked up too high for its own good. Tell me. Do you understand, Rennie? That you know I I did it for you. Because I love you. I cannot help you. Now what about Disaster? Star Trek's answer to Disaster movies, this episode features a good mix of tension and comedy and obviates the need for a proper villain, monster, or phenomenon. The damage is already done. Let's just move on and... It's with fairly good results. Of the five stories told here, the one that most worried me is or was Picard's. Having him trapped in a turbo shaft with three kids is not my usual idea of fun. He's learned a lot since season one, however, and the good captain essentially turns children into a makeshift crew you can care about. I feel like I've met kids exactly like the youngest, Patterson, and you can't help but smile when Marissa responds to number one at the end. And Frère Jacques is nowhere as massacred as Auprès de Ma Blonde was. There's a lot of comedy to be had on Worf's side of things, as he delivers Keiko's baby. Congratulations. You are fully dilated to 10 centimeters. You may now give birth. Because, yes, she's suddenly pregnant. You know, a lot can happen between seasons. Jordi and Crusher have a fun moment when she attempts to make him play a part in her new musical, but it turns to merely okay Jeopardy after that. And Riker gets to fiddle with Data's head. The latter two teams both save the ship in their own way, as does the bridge crew, and that's something that pays off well in the script. Most of the tension stems from Troy being placed in command of the Enterprise, and then showing she doesn't know Jack squat about the ship. I can understand not being technically minded, but not knowing what happens when antimatter is exposed in the engine's innards. It doesn't take a degree in engineering. Her incompetence gives O'Brien a reason to shine, but relegates Ensign Rowe to the part of antagonist. Neither woman seems sympathetic to me here, and though Troy was ultimately right, I think she was rather lucky. It was actually a bad decision on her part, albeit maybe in character. But what's with engineering being totally empty? I think it's one of many contrived situations to get characters together. You wouldn't normally have Crusher and LaForge working together, or O'Brien on the bridge, or in command, some no-name that you can kill off, night shift or not, and so on. So there's a lot of this clunky stuff. That drops it down to a medium. A couple of sweet moments, a couple of funny moments, a couple of tense moments. There's a good balance of elements in this one, but the dialogue could sparkle a lot more, and some of the situations do seem forced, so I can't rank it any higher. Okay, now the game. Wesley returns, and he saves the ship once more. That might have elicited a groan before, but given that he has the help of the charming Robin Leffler, Ashley Judd, we don't mind so much. You do have to buy the premise that Wesley wouldn't be interested in a game, but Picard would have tried it. And Worf? I don't know. We don't know. They might have been tricked or forced. Wesley's motivation is actually believable because he's falling for a girl who cares about games just then. The game is, as you know, addictive, and I'm sorry to say makes everyone who plays it rather salacious and creepy. I really didn't need to see Riker's little sex games, so you can imagine how I feel about everyone faking orgasms. It's just, it's icky. 
In a similar vein, I've always said I found Troy's sole hobby, chocolate, extremely boring. She gives a full explanation of the chocolate experience here, and that should have closed the books on it, alas. Aside from the magical nature of the game, it acts at different speeds, can work on any species, and none of the junkie-like behavior around you deters you from trying it, unless you're Wesley. The writing is also pretty lazy. Leffler's Laws, meant to be an interesting and endearing trait, are just really a collection of cliches, for example. Still... There are some good parts, including the effective and scary chase scene in the Jeffrey's tubes. Wesley must have crapped his pants when he saw Worf coming, and Wesley losing his virginity. Your neutrinos are drifting. And then Robin Leffler was never heard from again, until Peter David's Excalibur series, New Frontier. But that's a story you can follow in a previous episode of the show, in which Shag Matthews and I talked about the series. This one gets a medium. Robin Leffler is the heart and soul of the episode, but it's not written crisply enough to save it completely. <laughs> Unification Part 1. Opening with a card commemorating Gene Roddenberry's death in 91, Unification was exciting at the time because Leonard Nimoy was guest-starring as Mr. Spock. Unfortunately, he doesn't appear until the very last shot. Fortunately, however, he's not required to make the episode interesting. There's plenty more besides, as everything is essentially a setup for Part 2. We get the death of Sarek, and a last meeting between him and Picard before he leaves us. Touching and well played. We get our first real sight of Romulus, and it's definitely Roman capital city. Beautifully painted, uh, when from afar, and interestingly ascetic in person. We get an update on the Klingon situation, Garon's rewriting history and taking all the credit he can get, leading to some political maneuvering on Picard's part. And we get nods to the original series, such as Picard and Data pulling a Kirk in the Enterprise incident and getting fitted with Romulan makeup. The trip aboard the Klingon Bird of Prey has good sparring between its captain and Picard, and some comedy too, especially involving the shelf on which Picard must sleep while Data just stands there and creeps him out. There's both comedy and mystery in the Enterprise parts, as they find the Vulcan ship missing from a junkyard, with Kim Dokachin, the yardmaster, gruff and arrogant, playing well against Riker and Troy. Oh, and there's a really cool generic combat vessel that should have gotten a lot more airtime in later episodes, giving ugly Antares types a break. I think it only reappears inappropriately in Voyager. But it was a cool ship design. Unconvincing explosion, however. I give this a high, just a setup, but manages to stay relevant and keep our interest enough that when Spock shows up, our reaction isn't finally, but rather, it's already over? I'm looking for Ambassador Spock. Indeed. You have found him, Captain Picard. As for Unification Part 2, we waited an entire episode for Spock to finally make an appearance. Was it worth it? I have to say, definitely. Nimoy is excellent in a role he never really distanced himself from. He makes the 24th century Spock more at peace with himself and his human heritage, but no less a cowboy diplomat than in The Undiscovered Country. In fact, Unification owes a lot to that film, as Spock continues the work begun there. Peace with the Romulans is the next logical step after peace with the Klingons is achieved. His relationship with his father is central to his character here, as it has often been since Journey to Babel. From his hearing his father's words in Picard to the final second-generation mind-meld with Sarek, great restrained acting from both Nimoy and Stewart through all their scenes, Comparisons between TOS and TNG from Spock's perspective were perhaps expected, but I wasn't keen on them. Uh, Spock and Data pretty much lay out the dramatic differences between their two characters, stuff that should have been left unsaid, in my opinion. 
Those aren't bad scenes. They just smack of anniversary special syndrome, or ass. At the end of the day, Data's nerf pinch is merely cute. The Romulans are back in full force uh, in what is certainly their best TNG episode yet, and and maybe ever. Their plot is Byzantine and well-conceived, truly worth the use of this duplicitous race. Sela returns, as spoiled in the opening credits, to give weight to the proceedings, but once again, it could have been anyone. And this was her last appearance. Was she executed for her failure? Or for leaving the Starfleet trio alone in a room with computers? Sela or not, there are some excellent betrayals in Part 2, and Spock remains nonplussed, an added bonus, playing the Romulans as much as they play him. Meanwhile, on the other side of the neutral zone, Riker gets the shine as captain of the Enterprise, charming a dead smuggler's ex-wife, using his musical talent, uh, making a Ferengi merchant wet himself, He's a space cowboy too, and that ending where the Romulans destroy their own invasion army is at once shocking and in keeping with their characterization as far back as their first appearance in Balance of Terror. Masterful in the way that it makes the guest star great without the regular cast suffering in any way, this is a high. And will the Romulans ever be so devious again? I'll take this opportunity to remove my ears. Next up, a matter of time. I wonder what the episode would have been like had Robin Williams played the role of Berlin Goff Rasmussen as was apparently originally planned. Possibly unbroadcastable. Matt Frewer does well in the role, drawing an occasional chuckle as he manically induces paranoia in the crew, but the writing isn't as funny to begin with. Was it underwritten with improvisation in mind? Frewer does get a couple of moments, however. His unease showing through in spots, letting you know it's all an act, his attempted seduction of Beverly, and the perhaps too hopeful line... Who said these moments were any less exciting when you know the outcome? Hmm? See, the A-plot hinges on a final twist, and I find that once you know what it is, the episode just plods along until we get there. Much of the plotting is accomplished by the B-plot about climate change. It's a worthy subject, perhaps, but aside from the very nice matte painting and some cool effects, it does little to recommend it. It's all tech stuff. Reasonably explained, but wholly ridiculous. The lesson really shouldn't be that there are instant solutions to this kind of problem, you know. And then there's the ending. Picard's dilemma is an interesting one, though I wonder if he's being true to his character in harassing Rasmussen for future knowledge. In any case, characterization goes out the window in the final scene as the Federation turns fascist. Rasmussen's punishment is coldly delivered and extremely harsh. Maybe Picard could have been more sympathetic. You know, I'm sorry, but you brought this on yourself. We have no choice. He's really not. Crusher's reaction is especially jarring since Rasmussen only flirted with her. It's not like they were engaged and he cheated on her. At the end there, it almost sounds like he's going to get dissected. I can only give this one a medium. Reasonably amusing at times. Matt Furrer creates a sympathetic rogue, uh, which makes the crew's reaction, you know, all the more extreme and disturbing. It has some charm, but it is fatally flawed. Paul Wildenberger liked it a lot more than I did. I'm a Doctor Who fan, and I can't help but think the writers of this episode intended the professor to be a doctor stand-in. He's a time traveler. He shows up in a small box. He's got a colorful costume. Uh, he's arrogant, fast-talking. IMDb even goes as far as to say that Tom Baker was on the shortlist to play this character. I don't know if that's true or not, but it goes a long way to make that connection to the Doctor. I've been a Matt Frewer fan ever since Max Headroom days. And while Matt Frewer can often be over the top, I think it works well for this character. And he pulls it back when he needs to. Some of my favorite scenes of this episode, first of all, when he's in the ready room with Picard, explaining who he is and, and what he's there for, supposedly. I think Patrick Stewart and Matt Frewer are having a good time. In fact, I think that goes as far into the next scene where they're in the staff meeting. 
I think all the actors on set that day must have been having a good time because it was very lighthearted and fun. Really, they get it going that way with the humor and then start getting the episode into the serious matter of saving these people and who was met for a really, you know, is he a con man? Or is he what he says he is? Another favorite scene is later on when the planet's in danger. Picard is talking to the professor and says, I need your help. I need to know what to do. Matt Frewer actually does a great job here where he's still the con man, but he seems to have a heart. When he says to Picard, I'm sorry, it seems genuine. So overall, this is not the best episode of The Next Generation, but it had a great guest star and it was a lot of fun. Thank you. Up next, New Ground. You know, it seems that TNG can't do a character-based piece without tacking on an unrelated scientific B-plot. And that's what we get here. Let's start with that B-plot. Just because my head will explode if I don't vent about it right now. It deals with a new advance in warp science called the Soliton Wave. Basically, you shoot the wave out from a planet, a ship jumps on its back, and rides it to another planet at warp. Warp without warp drive. Why Geordi's so excited at the prospect of losing his job, I'll never know. But the whole thing is ridiculous with a capital R. The system requires a cancelling wave to be shot out from the destination. So I guess it's... It's useless for exploration. Heck, if it's just a straight line, how would you ever take a detour, respond to a distress call, or go to war? And yet, they all talk as if this is a big revolution that will mothball starships. Worse yet, when the canceling wave can't do the job, the Soliton wave has the power to destroy the destination planet. Worst experiment ever. Only redeeming feature, Jordy says, it's like being there when Zephram Cochran breaks the war barrier. And he actually will be. You know, as for the character-based story, oh lord, it focuses on Alexander's return to the ship. Worf as single father, instant drama, instant groans. Uh, Brian Bonsell gives us a less timid Alexander, uh, but the squeaky voice just isn't Klingon enough for my taste. If he'd been more, I don't know, feral, I guess, it could have been interesting. He gets one serviceable scene when fighting a miniature version of Worf's calisthenics program, but otherwise it's boring elementary school shenanigans. Miss Kyle is particularly unengaging and ineffectual parenting. Troy takes too much of an interest with an extended therapy session. But does she have a crush on Worf already, maybe? Because that strand really starts here. I'm not at all against it. There must be something attractive to an empath in those confident Klingon emotions. But if you're going to add a supporting character to the series, at least try to make him charming in some sense. Rolaren, Robin Leffler, Reg Barkley, Guinan. But Alexander isn't. That he cares for ugly, endangered hand puppets does nothing to endear the character to the audience, whiny little brat that he is. The first mention of Kaelas and Moroth, that legend, just isn't enough to save the episode. Alexander has acted shamefully, and as his father, I must now deal with him. So this is a low for me. It's rare that a Klingon episode so misses the mark, but the future will show that giving Worf a young son was a big mistake. If you never watch an Alexander episode between Reunion and DS9's Sons and Daughters, you really won't have missed a thing. Hero worship. I'll keep this brief. Another kid who's lost his parents left alone in his room. Another lame teacher on the Enterprise. Another Technobabble problem with a Technobabble solution. Well, at least they didn't force the kid to be friends with Alexander. Uh, essentially, after Kitty Wharf, we get Kitty Data. Timothy here is played well enough and does a fairly good impression of Data. And Data's always effective in such situations, if, of course, a bit sweet. I say that like it's a bad thing, but if overdone, it can be. Sometimes watching it at the time, I felt like the show was trying to cater to my mom. Because this one has it all. A sympathetic little boy, a vulnerable, sweet Data, and Troy on family therapy. It's all very okay. There, there's some terrible staging in the sculpture scene, and the weird phenomenon of the week is the usual nonsense. But its heart is in the right place. 
Oh, and it's got the first mention of the Breen, and that's going to take a while to pay off. I'll try to keep Breen Watch going through these reviews. Hero Worship, it's not bad, and it's not great. It's at least not offensive, and it's true to the characters. Timothy is thankfully not cringeworthy, so I'm, I'm allowing myself to give this a medium. That would be acceptable. Next up is Violations. Now, I have to say, I have no love for rape stories. They really have to be very well done, and Violations is not. Sure, it's a kind of mind rape, so more easily glossed over, except that the first memory, illegally invaded, is one of Riker imposing his manhood on Troy. It's never quite clear if he made a pass at her, and then Jev changed the story to suit his particular fetish, or if it ever did go that far. But it is much closer to physical rape than anyone would like, and in any case, rape is about power, not about sex. But if we're exploring the issue of rape, then Picard's apologist speech at the end is inexcusable. And what? There are no laws against mind rape? Sure, okay, but what about for putting people in comas? It's still an assault, right? And of course, there will be no long-term consequences for our characters, which again diminishes the importance of the issue. Frankly, I don't think TNG could do justice to the subject matter in its usual format. Taken as a mystery, it doesn't quite work either. We know from the offing that Jev is the culprit, even when they try to throw a twist at us. The camera direction makes it clear from the teaser. The investigation itself veers into Technobabble, and yet another scene of Geordi arguing with the computer. And I do so love those scenes. As a character study, allowing insight into characters' memories, it had potential. Riker's date rape at least indicates he still has feelings for Diana, and that might be something worth exploring. Most interesting is Picard returning Jack Crusher's body to his widow. It's a creepy scene, well-directed, and it's fun to see the different hair, but there's not a whole lot of content here. That Borg patch that Picard's wearing is distracting as well. I know it's a medical device, but it's kind of confusing. Riker's guilt at leaving a crew member to die... That one just doesn't ring true, and it's about as interesting as Keiko's teacup. But you know what saves this for me? Worf coming in and defeating Jev with a single, almost matter-of-fact blow. To me, extremely funny. I could rewind and watch it all day. Good to see Diana defend herself and smack him with a pad tube. I won't let you... But in the final analysis, this is an episode that actually contains a reference to the turkey of all turkeys, Shades of Grey. So that says a lot. No more than a medium low in terms of scoring. A couple moments bare rewatching, but these are 10 to 15 seconds each tops. Isolate them and put them on YouTube, but the rest is rather distasteful. Next up, another dull Troy romance. It's called The Masterpiece Society. This episode is, by the numbers, Trek featuring a colony of genetically engineered humans and a big piece of stellar matter heading for their world. So, of course, you need a technobabble solution up in the sky and some ethical dilemmas down below. The former is your usual forgettable talking and aiming tractor beams. The latter, unfortunately, makes the cast act out of character. The stuff with the cellar core fragment is, of course, dull with the tension supposedly coming from life support having to be shut down to power the tractor emitters. The way it's done, you could just try again and again and eventually get the fragment really off course, so whatever. Further, the solution is found in how the visor keeps Geordi's brain from overloading from the extrasensory input. 
It's all jargon to us anyway, but it manufactures a forced irony that these perfect people's problems can be fixed with technology created for someone who's disabled. It's really forced. But what about the human drama? Well, you have Troy falling in love with the colony's leader. Uh, she has the worst taste in men, or maybe she's incapable of any on-screen chemistry, because we're told that sparks fly, but it's hard to believe. This leads to her having a talk with Picard that's more than a little awkward. Reducing the captain to an arbiter of high school romances is not paying service to the character. I do like the looks Deanna gets from Riker, but otherwise, this is a totally bogus subplot. She actually talks like she would leave the Enterprise for Aaron, and he's ready to contaminate the gene pool for her. Come on now. I've used very poor judgment. Actually, I've acted quite unprofessionally. The whole genetically integrated concept of genome colony is equally dubious. Just having someone from the ship walk around is dangerous to the balance, and yet the gene pool is sturdy enough to take a random death or two. That's the ridiculous dilemma about whether to let the Enterprise help, thus risking social contamination, but not be destroyed. And in the end, Picard makes the absolute worst decision, and only afterwards cries over his spilt milk. Look, there are some good bits such as the matte painting and the colonists reacting with wonder at people beaming in. Jordy's relationship with Hannah Bates is good, and it's one of the better moments when he calls her on her bull. How does this episode match up to later claims that genetic engineering is illegal in the Federation? Uh, which, in fact, means that the colonists who want to rejoin the world at large will not get the opportunities they seek. Picard at least shows distaste at the idea, but maybe there's a difference between special breeding and actual genetic manipulation. Well, I guess there probably would. This is just yet another episode that's okay to watch, but totally skippable. This was the TNG episode I always missed. You know, it's just like the Tolian Web and TOS or Think Tank for Voyager. I kept missing that one episode. When I finally did see it years later, it confirmed my suspicion that I hadn't missed a lot. What's next? Conundrum. Okay, well, let's talk about the premise of this one for a moment. The Satarans have the technology to selectively inhibit the memories of everyone on the Enterprise, of all species and including data, and to erase exactly the right files from its computers, as well as add false mission plans. All this with a simple probe, ray, thing, thingy, in a single pass. One of them also transports himself aboard and infiltrates the crew with what seems to be some kind of cloaking disguise that can fool Beverly's medical equipment. But these same aliens can't seem to win a war against opponents who are a hundred years behind the Federation in weapons technology. Even if they can't use their tech on the Lysians for whatever reason, can't they just mind-wipe a Ferengi traitor and steal some photon torpedoes? The plan is incredibly complicated and as ridiculous as Troy winning a chess game against Data using intuition, which also happens. Macduff seems to know a lot about Starfleet operations for a guy from a species the crew has never heard from. So there, I wanted to get it out of the way because this is not at all what this episode is about. It's really about the characters. Take away their baggage, their backstories, their functions, see how their personalities play out. And it works admirably. Conundrum reveals Worf's ambition, but also that he's learned his lessons since the drumhead and is not as receptive to secret whispers and conspiracy mongering. His honor is part of his core being, even if he doesn't remember the particulars of his culture. The same is true of Picard's reason and love of peace. His leadership style has never been more obvious. Geordi and Beverly get the short end of the stick as usual, uh, but Data, thinking about his origins, remains a constant. The best part of the episode, however, is Riker's love triangle with Troy and Roe. Riker is appropriately rakish, but it's Aaron who shines as the aggressor. This will all be built into the female Bajoran psyche exemplified in DS9, but here, it's all about Roe and her behaving on her own terms. 
If she ever regrets going to bed with Riker, she certainly doesn't show it. Possibly, she sees it as a bargaining chip to get the first officer off her back. The final scene is a hoot as he gets his comeuppance from both the ladies. A nice touch, the episode immediately ends with a horn riff on the original series theme, which beautifully ties into Riker's similarity with Kirk and the way the original episodes ended on comedic notes. A few words on the guest actors is in order. Eric Anderson delivers his usual smarmy performance as Macduff, uh, the appearance of which it takes much of the air out of the balloon. But then this isn't really a proper mystery. More interesting is Liz Vassy as Kristen, the girl in the bathing suit. She gets a lot of dialogue for a no-name, so she seemed primed to show up again later, a la Robin Leffler. But alas, no. She would later enjoy a lot of airtime on CSI and is, to use the irredeemable Shag's vernacular, super hot. Oh, and the Edo vessel from Justice shows up as the Lycian Central Command. It gives an okay performance. I give this one a high. A great character piece with both drama and comedy, which reminds me, for some reason, of the Riverworld series. Well, at least to your scattered bodies go, the first one. With its characters we know, but who don't know each other, plunge into a mysterious situation vibe. So, really, who cares if the plot device is nonsense? Well, if you're still confused tomorrow, you know where my office is. Data gets possessed again, it's been a while, in Power Play. The only things keeping Power Play from being a true classic, really, are... First, its lack of any defining character moments, and second, the bland title. Because in reality, this is a tight thriller a la Die Hard with genuine creepy performances and the Enterprise crew acting like the smart professionals they are. Too often, plots only work if characters conveniently forget their abilities, training, or available tools. Not this time. It's lovely how the aliens use their possessed crew members' knowledge to take the ship uh, hostage, and how the rest work to stop them. Everybody's got contingency plans. It's beautiful to see. I especially love how smart Rolaren is, justifying Picard's interest in her. Ro makes every episode she's in better. The episode is largely about plot, so the twist at the end works, but that doesn't mean there are no acting moments to admire. Sure, an evil data is old hat by now, Brent Spiner simply puts his voice in the lore frequencies, but the cold Troy shows a Mirror Universe version of her could be terrifying. And creepy O'Brien hovering over his wife and child. That's damn intense. So sure... Crew possession is an old standard, but there's rarely been an episode where the entire crew has been this smart at dealing with a situation. This one's possibly underappreciated. I'm giving it a high. I'm very pleased to hear that. Up next, ethics. Star Trek takes another stab at euthanasia, but also throws in the ethics of medical research and the role of the disabled in society. So this could be a really heavy-handed snorefest, right? Though the argument between Beverly and the less-than-ethical Dr. Russell sometimes veered into that territory, especially right at the end, the episode managed to stay with the characters. The difference between pulpit-thumping and good drama is that the former is about what the writer thinks, the latter is about what the characters think. This is, at its root, a Klingon episode, and Ron Moore does his usual excellent job not only in Klingon culture, but on people's relationships with Worf in general. Worf is as hard-headed as ever, but as Picard explains, committing suicide after such mutilation is the Klingon way, though I'm still surprised he would undermine Crusher's orders like he does here. Riker seems a good choice for suicide assistant. He's been immersed in Klingon culture, but he passes the buck to Alexander. It's a great gambit that actually works out. But wait, Alexander? He's the anti-Ro. All the episodes he touches turn to crap. Well, not this time. With Worf so injured, you can't ignore he has a young son on board, and his reactions feel right as well. 
There's a lovely bit of direction uh, when Alexander's face is split uh, by the shadow of his father's knife, part Klingon, part human. And it is that humanity which saves his father. Indeed, it's interesting that Worf would leave Alexander in Troy's hands. You want me to raise Alexander? Could there be an upbringing more different than the Klingon way? But this solidifies their relationship and may tell us that Worf's plans for Alexander are a lot more open-ended than he lets on. So, sure, we know Worf's paralysis won't stick. He's a regular on the show. Or will it? When Worf dies on the operating table, it's actually wrenching. A montage of people waiting for the operation to be over builds up the tension so that when Beverly shows up, teary-eyed at Troy's door, there's a major release of emotion. So it's really too bad to undo it all with one of the worst Deus Ex Machinae in the show's history. Worf's got backup organs, including his brain, apparently, and he simply revives himself. Organ redundancy may be an interesting Klingon feature, but we've seen so many Klingons die from simple knife wounds, it hardly seems plausible. I'd think of those blades as poisonous if only they'd stop sliding their hands open for fun. And okay, he has to learn to walk again, etc., except he fine by the very next episode. Reset button successfully pushed. Scoring this one as a medium could have hit a high if not for the Deus Ex Machina. I mean, I guess that would mean Worf would be dead and we we don't want that. Next up, the heavy-handed The Outcast. You know, where TOS was really rather good at their moral fable genre, TNG is PCing me off with its attempts. The Outcast wants to be about homosexuality, but really comes off as being about transsexuality, which isn't the same thing. That is to say, gender identity rather than sexual orientation. And besides, the whole premise is ridiculous since the Janai have no gender. How any of them can feel female or feel male is hard to grasp, especially given Soren's questions to the crew, and why it would matter, since love between non-gendered Janai and gendered Janai is physically the same, doesn't impact reproduction, isn't even unsightly, so to speak, is a question without an answer. It's taking the issue and science-fictionalizing it so much that it doesn't make sense anymore. Throwing Riker into the mix is a huge mistake here. First of all, having him make exposés about astrophysics instead of data highlights the very contrivance of his use in this story. Having him fall in love with Soren and even be willing to risk his career for, for her is totally out of character. Soren is more than a little dull and a far cry from the saucy, sexy women he usually goes for. From the description of their mating practices, where both partners are inseminators, the Janai serve a male function in procreation. A husk actually acts as the female. So are humans even sexually compatible with Janai? Riker seems like the kind of man for whom sex is an important element. So what the hell? He can certainly feel empathy for a repressed social class, but get involved romantically with Soren? It's as ridiculous as his freaking out at the end or his asking Troy for permission. With the message, muddled as it is, being the crux of the episode, there's a lot of talking. And you have Riker avoiding frank questions like he's really uncomfortable discussing sex, a scene that reminded me of the apple. <sighs> Snips and snails and puppy dog tails. We can't talk about these things, frankly, on TV. You have Worf's overt sexism. You have bad writing, like the use of the phrase more superior. So we're left with the first appearance of the new shuttle, which is very nice, and of Geordi's beard, which just hides LeVar Burton's face more, you know, with that visor and all. And it's going to be gone by the next episode. And that's it. I don't think this one works at all. So this is really a bad dream. I say it never happened. The characters are unrecognizable. The message is at once ham-fisted, but also completely muddled. It's only kind of accidentally about being transgender. 
I don't think a lot of that discussion was understood at the time in a way that TNG could have actually made a moral fable of it. We understand these things much more today than we did then, and I think that applies not just to the audience, but maybe the writers. I'm giving this one a low. Skip it. Next up, cause and effect. It's a very clever temporal paradox, but I know at least one person who thought the TV station had screwed up and restarted the episode a couple times before giving up on it entirely. (laughs) Uh, True story. It's an episode that starts off with the Enterprise blowing up. So they had me at hello. The poker game uh, has been layered into the last couple episodes, but here it's an actual and brilliant plot point used to figure out what the heck is going on. Though events repeat four or five times, director Jonathan Frakes keeps things interesting from segment to segment by varying shots, perspectives, and moods. Lots of anxious steadicam before the explosion, for example. And the script has surprises in store for us, too, with Data's threes layered in, not unlike the 47 the creators have crept into the show almost every episode. What surprised me most was that this was a very good Beverly episode. When you're remembering it, you think of Cause of an Effect as an ensemble show. But it's really a detective story for Crusher, told through her eyes. Like in Remember Me, she excels at this, and so I can see why they would cast her in other mysteries as the show progresses. Not always with success, I admit. The Bozeman, as captained by Kelsey Grammer, is pretty cool. Uh, hey, a Reliant. I know, it's actually a Soyuz, but they're very close designs. And the movie era, red uniforms as well, so that's neat. Here's a guy I would have liked to see acclimatized to the 24th century a little. But, alas, no return appearance except in the novels. My one beef is that Ensign Rowe doesn't get to do anything. She always betters her episodes in some way, but here she seems wasted. No surprise, giving this one a high, the episode that rewatches itself. It's very clever, with some fun interplay between the characters. I guess it's better to be lucky than good. The First Duty, an important episode for both TNG and DS9. It shows the first cracks in Wesley's Starfleet veneer. Uh, our first look at Boothby and the Academy, the first appearance of Sito, who will return in Season 7, uh, Robert Duncan McNeil as a prototype Tom Paris, named Nick Locarno, they probably should have written Locarno into Voyager, really, and the germ of what will become Red Squad in Nick's Nova Squadron. But aside from its historical importance, yeah, it's quite good. The Wesley-Picard relationship is front and center and extremely well plotted and acted. Picard isn't just grandstanding, he's been in a similar but still mysterious situation and was set straight by Boothby. It's now his job to do the same for Wesley. Part of the story is the mystery of what happened to Nova Squadron, and for once, the investigation isn't overly technical, despite Geordi and Data's involvement. Wesley gets every imaginable guilt trip dumped on him, none as difficult as Commander Albert's heart-wrenching apology in his son's name. I'm not sure Nick Locarno is that charismatic, but the rest of the team is fairly meek in comparison. He's convincingly their leader. You know you've got to be able to count on the people on your team, because your life is in their hands. It's nice to see that in the end, he put his latinum where his mouth is. There are no villains here, only honorable people making mistakes. It's a high, best ever Wesley episode? I'd say yes. It's central to his arc and his relationship to the rest of the cast. And of course, they introduce lots of new faces we should now keep a lookout for. Cost of living. And I severely misjudged this one in my memory. Wow. It's way better than an Alexander Luxana team up has any right to be. The B plot about Nitrium parasites remains just a little dull, even though it almost destroys the ship and starts off with an exciting 
opening sequence chasing an asteroid. But after that, we've seen it before, and we'll see it again. A tech problem with a tech solution and low-budget tech goo. Sometimes the creators should just trust their character-driven stories. I thought we were in trouble when I sat through Troy's family therapy with the Klingons. Parent-child contracts, Jesus. But her reaction to her mother coming on board drew a smile. A glimmer of hope? Well... I must say I completely turned my opinion around and had forgotten much of the humor in Costs of Living. From Picard's willingness to give Mrs. Troy away to Worf's eye-rolling at being called Mr. Woof, both Troys get their kicks in, and though comedy is basically drawn from both Diana and Worf's annoyance, it works. Man, I laughed out loud when Worf busted the Wind Dancer's bubble. As the Diana, Luaxana's internet romance is also rather amusing, especially the stuffy minister's protocol master, Jerko, I mean Urko. And yet, there is a loneliness coloring Luaxana's actions. Majel Barrett's most effective performance to date, and one has to wonder if the loss of her own husband, Gene Roddenberry, is informing her performance. Makes it even more heartbreaking when you think about it that way. In any case, it gives new depths to a character that's been a little bit shallow and caricatured in the past and explains why she would take up with the equally lonely Alexander. In the end, she gets married on her own terms, and it's a great endearing scene. The holodeck stuff is a problematic element, coming off as an odd, surreal 24th century Teletubbies. It's got charm, and also some hints that Alexander might be interested in diplomacy. Luxana has a speech that sounds like a children's version of the Edic philosophy. However, one has to wonder at her choice of activities for young Alexander. She's clearly naked with him in a mud bath, and later so are Worf and Troy, and an exotic dancer wearing not much more than body paint rise before them. I I guess it sets up the wedding scene where Alexander grins at Luxana's nakedness. Yeah, I'm no prude, but it does seem strange for the show to be presenting this as proper entertainment for a child. On the one hand, it tells us that norms in the future will have evolved. On the other, this is the same universe where Riker is skittish about discussing sex with another adult. It's a medium. The B-plot is on automatic, of course, but there's lots to amuse in the family drama. The humor is balanced with effective pathos, which helps redeem some usually annoying characters. <laughs> the Perfect Mate. Well, this one's really Ilan of Troyes, uh, with the captain and a beautiful promised bride falling in love with tragic results. Except where Ilan was a spoiled antagonistic character, Kamala, played by Famke Jensen, is anything but. By becoming whatever ideal woman the scene's starring male character desires, she actually puts a mirror up to their psyche and becomes interesting as a result. She can be one of the boys, or a provocative and sexy woman for Riker, proof that his relationship with Soren in The Outcast made no sense, or a brilliant adventurous for Picard. Cute moments when she growls at Worf too. In a sense, it's also a metaphor for how we all change when we're with someone else. This is a beautiful start to Famke Jensen's career, immediately engaging and charismatic. Picard's not the only one taken with her, I assure you, and like the previous episode, The Perfect Mate doles out comedy and drama in equal measure. There are some great bits like like Riker going to work it off in the holodeck. Uh, I'm reminded of Travolta's talk in the mirror in Pulp Fiction. You're going to go home. You're going to jerk off. That's all you're going to do. And Data as a chaperone. And yet, you just know it's going to end in tears. Kamala bonds with Picard because she likes who she is with him, as presaged in a low-key shot of her looking at herself in the mirror, thus dooming herself to a life married to a pedantic man and Picard to even greater depths of loneliness. Patrick Stewart plays Picard's restraint with great subtlety because not everything has to be said. Now I realize Kamala works as a metaphor because the optics, as far as gender politics go, 
where the woman is forced to to become the man's image of her. It's all about the male gaze. That doesn't play so well today. And even so, the performance is so charismatic, you gotta like it. The Ferengi do make an appearance here, and it's yet another role for Max Grodenchik, who plays Rom on Deep Space Nine. And they're well used, that is to say, sparingly. They're getting closer to being unscrupulous merchants a role that's better than military adversary for them. Also note the first appearance of the Trill makeup used in DS9. Fans of the X-Men movies will get a kick out of seeing Stuart and Jansen play opposite each other here as well, especially when Kamala claims to be a mutant, a biological curiosity, if you will. So personally, I call this a medium high. It's not quite high. Uh, that's because it never really soars because Picard is so restrained. But Kamala is a beautiful character who knows how to expose the character's inner desires. Next up, Imaginary Friend. Well, everything in Imaginary Friend is so drawn out and slow that it feels like nothing more than a piece of padding. Troy looking for monsters under Clara's bed, Clara and Alexander working on clay sculptures, Guinan talking about her imaginary razor beast twice. It's all told in real time or something, and while I'm fine with giving Ogawa a little backstory, that turns into a totally irrelevant piece of dialogue. Now, the idea of showing a child's eye view of the ship is an interesting one, with Worf as the big boogeyman and plenty of restricted areas. To Geordi, it was a grand adventure when he was a kid. To Clara, perhaps not so much. The little girl playing her as... She's fine, but it's also dull that I can't muster more enthusiasm for her character. Perhaps part of the problem is Isabella, the imaginary friend, herself. When you're doing the creepy child shtick, you better make sure that child is damn creepy. And we've seen all the sentient cloud stuff before. It's a slow-paced snooze fest. The show's creators have to stop manufacturing these kiddie episodes. They only call attention to the idea that the starship is too dangerous a place for them. This area is not designated for children. It's a low. So let's look at a more interesting one here. Iborg. After the best of both worlds, the show's creators were faced with the nigh-impossible task of bringing back the Borg. You want to bring them back because they're popular and want to reuse expensive costumes, etc., but each time they turn up, it has to be the damn apocalypse. So what do you do? You start weakening them. Iborg is a step in that direction, but it's a good one. Fact is, the Borg are a hard-to-use force of nature, so giving them a human face in hue was at least interesting. It's the usual Trek dogma about individuals having the right to follow their own pursuits, no matter what the state says, but it's not really about Hugh or his somewhat homoerotic friendship with Geordi. It's about Picard. This is in many ways a precursor to First Contact. Picard is already on the path of revenge and willing to do anything to destroy the Borg for what they've done to him. The optical virus is a really interesting way to do that, and you want Picard to succeed too. So shut up, Beverly. When he meets the individualized... Hugh and starts talking as Locutus. You are Borg. You will assist us. I will not. What did you say? That's a chilling moment because you inevitably start thinking that maybe he's remained in contact with the collective all along. Is this a build-up to this season's finale? Is Picard still Borg? Have we been lied to for two years? It's really creepy and effective. The moral center of the story, however, is Guinan, who, through her relationship with Geordi and Picard, makes some interesting points on both sides of the issue. The fencing trick is a good gambit, but forcing Picard to meet Hugh, previously kept at arm's length, is the big scene. So do they do the right thing? I'm sure Starfleet wouldn't think so, but it's the right thing for these characters. They wouldn't condone genocide, and we're with them on that point. No problem giving this a high score. It's a moral tale with some fine character moments, especially for Picard, and a must for understanding his character in relation to the Borg. Ken Holzhauser from No Guilty Pleasures puts this episode in a broader context. 
For me, what changed the most about iBorg is the way that this episode changed my perceptions over the course of time. I was like many other people watching Star Trek The Next Generation, and on first viewing, I was enjoying the adventure, but with a fan's interest in seeing this new version of the series fly on its own. I wanted to see the series move past its 1960s roots and become an entity of its own time. When the Borg were introduced, I was overjoyed. Here was an adversary that Starfleet has never encountered before. Not a nation, not a culture, but a faceless collective. The Borg weren't interested in negotiations or cultural differences, and it brought an adversary unique to the franchise. I thought this episode, I Borg, undercut that message. I could not support two characters, namely Picard and Guinan, who were victimized by the Borg. Being able to set that aside just because Geordi and Dr. Crusher were treating the Borg like a pet. As I watch this episode now in 2019, I see it as a validation of Star Trek's humanist philosophy about moving beyond your pain and seeing your adversaries as individuals. I mean, admittedly, this is difficult with a drone race. But to be able to put your conflicts in the past and adapt a humanist relationship with even your enemy is at the heart of Star Trek, of all of TNG. It's the episode that's changed the most drastically since my first viewing. It's an episode that I think I needed to grow up to appreciate. And now, the next phase. While it may be fun to see a couple of characters run through walls phased, it just doesn't make any sense. What keeps them on the floor? How can they breathe? Ride a turbo lift? How can a disruptor beam also be phased? Even within the rules set by the episode, Ensign Rowe touches her helm panel and chair, and the phased Romulan sits in a chair that rocks when he rises, and then there's a contrived delay until a phased character tries to touch someone who's ignoring them. But that's all just high-concept premise. Suspend your disbelief because, one... It's pretty neat to see Jordy and Roe walk through walls. And two, it's not really what the story's about. It's really about character, being invisible, allowing Jordy and Roe to have a one-way conversations with characters they would normally not talk to, and even attend their own funeral. Roe, as usual, is the star here. How intimidated she is by Picard, even though he can't see or hear her. The great comic bits as she wonders what words Riker found to say at her funeral. These two are still going at it in the opening scenes. And she gives us a look into Bajoran spiritual beliefs and practices, though nothing quite matches what we'll find on D-Space Nine. On Geordi's side, we have Data's funeral arrangements and Worf being happy for him. I have a hard time believing Geordi would be among the honored dead. It's not like he died in battle or anything. Seems like a Klingon would find a transporter accident to be one of the worst ways to go. Oh well. And of course, you do have the adventure story with the Romulans planning to blow up the Enterprise, a chase scene through various quarters, including a look at Ensign Gates' intimate life. Nice to see what is basically an extra get some small development. And an evil Romulan who'll end up a floater. Geordi finding a way to communicate with Data is a fun bit of business, but he could have been smarter about it, like creating a pattern or even shaping his fields like words. And finally, I think the episode features the best laugh ending in all of Trek. Played pitch perfect as to be convincing. If you can teach Rolaren humility, you can do anything. <laughs> <laughs> It's a medium, some silliness, and gonzo physics keeps this episode from being an absolute gem, but fans of Ensign Rowe should find something to like, and it's at least fun and exciting for anyone else.
Uh, the inner light. The notion behind the inner light is a beautiful one. A dying planet has sent out a life experience into space to preserve its culture and way of life. Instead of deciphering writings and artifacts, a would-be archaeologist experiences 40-plus years in the life of a man. Let's hope the program is adaptable to your decisions and that it can be turned on and directed at will, or else Picard is the last ever repository of Catan culture. It's a beautiful idea, but it matters to us because it's changing Picard's life. Sure, we know that from the beginning that it's all in his head. No final twist or reset button to cheapen this one. But it gives him the chance to have what he has never had, what he never allowed himself to have, which is to say a family. Picard thus lives a full, rich, but simple life, and the bonds he forges there are as real to him as any on the Enterprise. As we'll see, this has subtly transformed the character forever, leading us to generations, and perhaps even insurrection and beyond. The end of the episode has Picard returned to the ship, now a hazy memory. I wonder if he had to retrain, or did it all come back to him? And we hear the haunting Resican flute melody one more time, leading us to the credits instead of the usual horns. It's very beautiful, and a sign that this will stay with the captain, as indeed it will. The success of the inner light relies on the acting, but, you know, it's Patrick Stewart, so you're in good hands. He has to give us a Picard that's in a totally other environment now, and a few years from now, and 10 years from now, 20, 40, he has to play age and the depth and variety of emotion. Resigned to his new life, he asks Celine if he can build a nursery, interacting with his children, the sudden death of his wife, his heart breaking at the idea that his grandson won't have a rich, full life. It's beautifully done, and in large part because Margot Rose is so effective as Eileen as well. The episode has long been considered one of the best TNG has to offer, usually placing first or second overall, but I do think it hasn't aged as well as it should have, and that's because of the aging makeup. The performances are very strong, but the last two acts have to be played under tons of latex. At the time, remarkable, I'm sure, but they seem very stiff now. But it's a very small nitpick, it just it did bother me. So this is still one of the best by virtue of its acting and original concept. The DVD offers a small treat, using the Resican melody on the episode's menu screen. And you know, I can't wait to hear it again in lessons. We shall end the season on Time's Arrow, Part 1. After the best of both worlds and redemption, expectations are high for season finales. So Time's Arrow fails. Even more miserably. In fact, every TNG two-parter has a better cliffhanger than Time's Arrow. Even when they fall into the middle of the season, they've got a better cliffhanger. It would have been so simple to move the discovery of Data's head to the end to create a tense twist, but no, the shock of that image is long gone, it's in the teaser, and the characters just file into the Davidian portal, la la la, and it's to be continued. No tension, nothing to really look forward to during the summer. Now, of course, these days, we don't really have to wait months to see part two, uh, so shouldn't I be reviewing the episode regardless of its place in the 1992 schedule? Well, that doesn't really help it. The teaser with Data's head is appropriately shocking, sure, and the discussion on predestination generates some interest. It's fun to see everyone treat Data as if he's terminally ill, and his lack of emotion regarding his own demise, and... Once you see them, the Davidians are pretty cool and creepy. But otherwise, the show has some serious, serious problems. First, about that predestination paradox. It just doesn't make sense. Either people have a choice or they don't. It seems like Data has no choice but to go down to the planet and get warped to the 19th century. He's the only one that can see the Davidians. Except that Geordi finds a way for everyone to see Davidians later on. So that's a big cheat. But what about Picard? Guinan remembers him from the 19th century, so she tells him he has to go. 
but he doesn't need to until she says this. So in the original history, to use a phrase, he probably didn't go. So then Guinan never saw him there. See, she's taking that choice away, so it's ridiculous. If you don't go, we may never meet. Like, what? Why? Did she seek him out later because she met him in the 19th century? Has her life been one predestination paradox? Is this why she knows yesterday's enterprise to be wrong? Nothing really explained to satisfaction, and it just seems contrived to give Picard a role in the season opener. The 19th century itself is replete with problems. It's a hoot, seeing Data win a fortune at poker, but the entire century is filled with rather talkative cliches. Jack is an especially annoying mouthpiece for the writers, uh, and while Samuel Clemens has some really well-written dialogue, you know, possibly cribbed from his writings, the put-on voice is a little grating. Your suspicions are undoubtedly based upon your keen observational skills. <laughs> the presence of Madame Guinan is probably not a good idea, even though I don't dislike the notion that this race of listeners routinely collects information on other planets. However, this is once again an obvious contrivance, doesn't actually shed light on the mysterious Picard-Guinan relationship, and creates a noticeable anachronism. A rich, famous black woman in 19th century America holding literary receptions everyone wants to attend, and she didn't make the history books? It doesn't work. Not when you mix her in with actual historical figures. I'm still giving this one a medium. It's a mess, but it's got some good scenes here and there, mostly where Data is concerned. But it's the only irrelevant TNG season finale, excluding Shades of Grey, which we should always exclude. My throat is really sore right now, so we're going to take a small break for promos, and we'll be back with season six of TNG. The time is out of joint. The time is out of joint. The time is out of joint. The year is 1994, or 1944, or maybe 2994? Time is under threat, and history is falling apart. Who will survive this crisis, and how will history be changed for those that do? Zero Hour Strikes takes you back to that DC Comics crossover and covers the entire story, issue by issue, tie-in by tie-in, as the DC Universe goes down to zero. Join Bass and Siskoid at fireandwaterpodcast.com or on iTunes, Zero Hour Strikes, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Remember, Legion. Season 6 starts with Time Zero Part 2, in which Data's head blows off and, well, we still have Samuel Clemens' annoying voice. No, really, it's very hard to get over Sam Clemens' voice. In fact, the whole character is a problem in Time Zero. He's annoyingly meddlesome, then too accepting of 24th century trappings to be believable, and furthermore, he's played as a caricature with a put-on voice. Uh, sadly, Clemens is in the majority of the scenes. Throw in the equally caricatured Jack London for extra pants. The plot isn't much better than the guest acting. The crew goes into the 19th century willingly but totally unprepared. No money? Aside from some comedy shenanigans with Mr. Pickard and the landlady, another totally ridiculous caricature, there's no point to it. Guinan suddenly doesn't want to interfere with events, though she spent the previous episode choosing an away team in the other time frame uh, that she and Clemens are told about the future seems awfully irresponsible, and when Clemens runs to the portal, Picard just sits there watching him. And and then it turns out he has the skills required to tap a binary message into Data's head. 
Like, what? Can he do that? It's a really smart use of time travel, but it doesn't seem right. The message is deciphered in the nick of time before torpedoes hit the Davidian site and both kill the captain and destroy 19th century Earth. So overwrought, you can tell you're being manipulated. Manufactured tension is not the same as actual tension. There's still this whole business of Guinan and Picard's relationship being beyond friendship, etc. But whatever, it's just starting to grate now. I'm kind of glad Data didn't make a Stone Knives and Bearskins reference here, since it would have tainted the city on the edge of forever. Forever. So, uh, what do you think? You know it, I'm giving this a low. The worst part two in TNG, if not the entire canon. And a terrible way to start Season 6. Can Realm of Fear save it? Barkley episodes have been excellent up till now, which is why Realm of Fear is such a disappointment. We know this guy is full of anxieties, especially in social situations, but does he have to have every phobia under the sun as well? Apparently, he's never used a transporter. Well, that's okay. I guess Pulaski avoided it a lot, too. And the episode starts off reasonably well, with Reg coming up with inspired engineering solutions. Maybe something left over from the Cytherian probe? But soon enough, the crew is letting him shirk off orders to have counseling sessions, anxiously tapping the back of his ear and indulging in hypochondria. Though it's meant as comedy, it falls a little flat amidst the creepy autopsy scene and the wildly stupid science. The latter is a major impediment to enjoying the show. At first, it's interesting to see Reg's POV as he is dematerialized, but once the matter stream becomes a place in which you are aware and in which you can move around, we're in La La Land. If the transporter had ever been described as a carrier wave moving through hyperspace or something, it might be acceptable. But even this very episode makes it clear your molecules are being turned into data, then recomposited at your destination, which really doesn't fit with events seen here. We're just rolling our eyes while we're supposed to care about ugly hand puppets attacking Barkley. Never mind the bit where those worms are returned to human form. There are saving graces. Troy racing after Olympic speedwalker Barkley is the one actually funny scene in the episode, but it's also good to see that Barkley has earned some brownie points over the course of the series so that Picard takes his word when he describes his hallucinations as real. And O'Brien gets some development with the way he overcame his fear of spiders, inadvertently passing it off to Barkley. Miles comes off very well in this. Either there's something in there or I'm going crazy, and I've just got to know. You can understand that. Can't you? Yes, sir, I can. I can still go no higher than a medium-low in terms of rewatchability. Ahead of its time, in that it could have been a Voyager episode. And I don't mean that in a good way. The science fantasy plot undercuts the tension and undermines Barclay's potential as more than a recurring gag. Next up is Man of the People. Once again, a diplomacy mission hinges on an expert negotiator who gets involved with one of the two female characters on the Enterprise and or is not what he seems. Frankly, I'm more than a little bored with this particular plot device. The idea that Vess Alcar is so good at what he does because he can shunt off negative emotions isn't a clear link, and that hurts the premise of Man of the People. If it had been about keeping himself young and alive by eating at his victims' lives, then maybe, but that's not how it's presented until the very end. In any case, the plot is used to foist negative personality on Troy, because face it, the real Troy is a dull character. It saddens me to say this, but it's nonetheless true. Without more character development, 
development than she likes chocolate, uh, she can't possibly rise above the cool, detached therapist persona. Unless you pull a possession plot on her, of course. The bitchy, slutty Troy is at least interesting, with some clothing choices inspired by her mother's dress. In fact, the hypersexuality may be because of the artificial aging, since that's what happens to Betazoid women in middle age. However, the way it's presented, it's just like the creators are saying sex is evil. And in fact, isn't it all an excuse for cheap titillation as Troy fiddles with her cleavage or shows her hardened nipples? One bit of evil Troy I liked is her blunt therapy session with the ensign who can't cope with criticism. If you aren't up to it, then you don't deserve to be here. So you better take a hold of yourself or be prepared for transfer. It's meant to show that Troy's becoming callous and mean, but really, she's telling it like it is. You're in the service now, girly, and no, you won't be coddled. I agreed with everything evil Troy said. It's perhaps damning that the most interesting things in the episodes were scenes of shipboard life like that session. Worf's Tai Chi classes, the, the dreaded crew evaluation reports, with a mention of an instant Janeway, hmm, Troy and uh, Riker's downtime, etc. But then it all ends with people aging or de-aging magically, and you're back in science fantasy land. Need I mention how screwed up the timeline is between Riker having his scratches looked at and how the mission proceeds? Another medium low, not totally unengaging. There's some tension and a few telling character moments, but it's pretty tawdry and cheap with a boring villain of the week. We need a good one here, and maybe it's Relics. Scotty's return is much more gratuitous than Spock's last season, but that said, his survival through a self-produced miracle of engineering makes complete sense. What we should be getting, then, is a homage to the original series and this character's role in it specifically. Unfortunately, that homage is seriously flawed by having Geordi and other crew members find Scotty to be a tedious old relic. And in a sense, so do we. He's clearly living in the past, even by his timeline, and must find his way in this new world. That's a fine human drama to explore. However, the episode keeps hammering on the idea that this time, TNG, is better, stronger, faster... And that for old Trekkies, it's time to let go and leave the Trekkers to do their part. They're certainly not helping me like Geordi any better with this. The episode does get better as Scotty gets more and more discouraged. The throwaway references to specific episodes and I was doing X before Y was even born gives way to the much better... What is it? It is... <laughs> it is... It is green. From By Any Other Name and Talk of Synthetic Commanders. The best conversation is between Scotty and Picard, who is respectful of the past and has always been, uh, on the bridge of the original Enterprise. A nice character moment for both of them on a set resonant with meaning. Ultimately, uh, Scotty is a miracle worker to the end, allowing the Enterprise to beam him back from the Janolan through its shields. Thought I had noticed, huh? One final word on the Dyson Sphere, which is in this. This was a, a fantastic concept, and it was great fun to see the Enterprise in daylight rather than outer space. But what a waste. It could and should have been the central focus of an exploration episode instead of tacked on and abandoned here. Oh well, I'm giving it a medium. Spock's return was an event. Scotty's had some fun bits, but felt nowhere near as relevant. We all know supermate Chris Franklin is a big Scotty fan, so I had to give him a platform. Beyond the very valid point Siskoid made in his commentary, I would also say this episode really stresses how Roddenberry's vision of Star Trek changed over the years. Sometime after TOS but before TMP, Roddenberry decided that humanity would go through its own Kolinar ritual and purge most of its base emotions in the late 23rd century. It's why 
why the crew of the Enterprise and TMP is much more subdued than in the previous 79 episodes and the following five or six movies which Roddenberry didn't have as much to do with. Likewise, the palpable humanity of that crew was replaced by the much more enlightened TNG characters who seemed far less passionate and much less likely to squabble. Now, by the time Relics was produced, Roddenberry had passed away and the other showrunners had slowly steered the show toward a slightly more relatable take on this vision anyway, loosening up the characters quite a bit. But when Scotty, perhaps the most overtly passionate, excitable, and yes, human member of the original crew, is released from that transporter buffer, he stands in stark relief to this new age he's entered. Sure, a lot of this is chalked up to Scotty being old, and from an antiquated time, as both Siskoid in the episode's title pointed out, but I think it's more than that. Scotty's need to tell stories, relate his adventures, wax nostalgic, and drink and have a good time seem almost alien to these people. Their career-minded brains won't allow them to just relax and be entertained by this walking history text. Scotty has been dropped into a group of space yuppies, for lack of a better term. Everyone on board the Enterprise-D seems much more interested in their specific job in the service of space exploration than in the romance of the exploration itself, which Star Trek was initially all about. Picard, and surprisingly Data, seem the most human in this episode, trying to connect with Scotty on a more personal level. We won't bash Geordi's early behavior because Cisco had already took care of that, but yeah, he comes across as a real jerk. I do have one more problem with their treatment of Scotty. Why didn't they know him by name? Scotty was one of seven people who single-handedly saved Earth from that probe's destructive message in Star Trek IV The Voyage Home. He was the man who shot the Klingon imposter attempting to assassinate the Federation president at the Kittimer Accords in the Undiscovered Country. Aside from all the other achievements of the original Enterprise crew, those alone should have been widely known to folks who can rattle off facts about obscure historical events and scientific theories at the drop of a hat, especially to those serving on the namesake of his old ship. One final thought on Scotty's humanity, his casual racism towards Worf. Some might say it's distasteful for Scotty to give Worf the stink eye, but again, this makes him more, say it with me, human. Let's not forget, the guy did his part to make peace with the Klingons, but he also has traded blows with them and spent the better part of his career at the brink of war with them as well, so he's not going to be all kumbaya with them by this time either. Well, I enjoyed most of TNG, once they shook out the early season kinks anyway. These reasons are why I will always prefer the original series and its wonderful characters. Of all the shows I've encountered in my travels, it was the most human. Okay, season six, give me a clear winner. How about schisms? Uh, it, this is one is well remembered for its eerie plot in which uh, various crew members are grabbed off the ship by solanogen based aliens from deep inside a subspace domain. The idea alone is interesting with the most convincing rationale for alternate universes yet, but the look of the aliens and their environment is also nicely alien. The use of fisheye lens is not only off-putting, but gives a sense of a bubble or pocket universe. The investigation leading to this is another well-thought-out puzzle show by Brennan Braga, with the crew experiencing all manner of problems as a result of the alien's experiments, most entertainingly Riker's sleep deprivation. Once we find out his arm's been amputated and reattached... Wonelli, bringing the crew together to jog their memories, an interesting use of both Troy's function and the holodeck, though the computer takes a lot of shortcuts to get us to the right configuration. One nitpick is that they make a big deal out of the table's inclination, but then it turns out the tables are flat. So it's a bit of a mess in that sense. Plus, Jordy arguing with a computer, you know, I hate that. Nice atmospheric clicks, though. Uh, but let's not forget the effective blend of comedy counterpointing the tense drama. This is an episode in which Data holds a tedious poetry reading. And hey, is Picard on a date in this episode? Kind of looks like it. He's sitting with an often-seen x 
extra. You'll just have to look for it. Uh, Mod the Barber also returns with much better dialogue about how Klingon hair is luxuriant and whether away team missions are harsh on the hair. Uh, these comedy beats make the creepy revelations even more shocking and note the ending in which the Solanogen aliens are set up for a rematch that never happens. Shades of conspiracy here. I kind of hate it when that happens. But I still give this a medium high. At times funny, at other times creepy, even if it's not quite essential. Truth be told, it's a little sluggish in places, especially when you know the answers. Next up is True Q. Q returns, and in great form, taking wonderfully scripted shots at both humanity and the crew. He's the ultimate Trek internet fan, returning to the show to listen to Picard's wonderful speeches and finding Crusher gets more shrill with every passing year. He also turns her into a Scottish setter, so he seems to have a beef against her specifically. He also says the jury's still out on humanity, which ties into the series finale in a couple years very nicely, but seems like just like an offhand comment here. Plenty of cool tricks besides from the Continuum Shadow to the hide-and-seek game to the dramatic Warp Core Breach. But the focus of the episode is Amanda Rogers, a girl born of the Q who is just now finding her powers. Olivia Dabo does an okay job with it, especially at the beginning when her loneliness sets in, but I couldn't help thinking of Bewitched the whole time for some reason. The hand gestures to activate her powers, that's a bit much, and then there's what she does with her powers. The emotional stuff is fine, seeing her parents, saving a planet, but puppies... Old-fashioned romance with Riker. I know she wears a girly pink costume, but is that what the writer imagined a female omnipotent entity would do? So I'm just giving this a medium. Q's great, but Amanda's an unfocused character that ultimately lets down the episode. You, an expert in humanity. Not a very challenging field of study, I grant you. Then we have Rascals. Of course, the premise of this is ridiculous, but Trek seems to be on a high-concept mode since the start of the season. In Rascals, Picard and three members of the supporting cast are turned into children by a transporter accident. Why the supporting cast? Was it casting reasons? They didn't find kids that matched the main cast? Plot reasons? Kind in a row uh, are a good pair, and Keiko complicates things for O'Brien, who's also in the supporting cast. In any case, suspension of disbelief hinges almost entirely on the child actor's performances. So, how did they do? Surprisingly well, actually. David Birkin, who plays Picard's nephew, René, in Family, has Picard's mannerisms and diction down quite well, though it usually sounds like his voice has been looped back in, working each line so it would sound like Pat Stewart delivery, maybe? Let me know as soon as you have any further information, Doctor. Number one, you're with me. The other kids are less interesting, though they're all in character. Lil Ro and Lil Guinan are good together, and Lil Keiko, while not as panicked as you'd expect her to be, causes a really awkward scene with Miles. It's a testament to the character that it never gets too creepy, and since it's a kid's show, Molly gets her first line. <laughs> you know what, she's cute and effective in this. And Alexander shows up too. Hmm. Now while it's interesting to see how these characters deal with their newfound youth, Picard's plans, Ro, who never had a childhood, Keiko's little girl not recognizing her. There has to be a plot. Unfortunately, it's a Ferengi plot. Well, who else could be beaten by a handful of kids? What's unfortunate here isn't that they would be defeated by children, who in fact are adults, 
but that the Enterprise does so poorly against them. The ship fires a single shot, gets totally owned by a couple of rusty birds of prey, boarded by a handful of Ferengi who can apparently dodge phaser fire. This is not a good episode for Worf, and this puts the kids in a situation which could usually never have occurred. At least Riker's on the ball, confusing the Ferengi with Technobabble and making like he's Picard's number one dad. Second time he's had a son called Jean-Luc, actually. The badge tag ploy is a good one, too. It's just it's just too bad the Ferengi, as played, are so stupid. This, by the way, was Rose's last episode until the very end of the seventh season, and she's never shown growing back up. Had preemptive strike not occurred, it would have been reasonable for fans to conclude she decided not to return to adulthood right away. Intriguing, sure, but since this was one of my favorite characters, I'm sorry she won't be part of the series anymore. And that even here, we get so little of Michelle Forbes. Rewatchability, medium. Amusing enough, and it does have something to say about the characters it uses, but the clownish Ferengi are starting to look like a dark stain on all of Trek. They need Deep Space Nine to save them. Urgently. For a second opinion, we now turn to Jonathan and Maggie Schaefer-Hames, the hosts of Married with Comics. One of the things that Star Trek does extremely well is the variety of episodes that happen in all of the series that can still be considered Star Trek, which is what makes it so fun. Sure, they're sitting on the edge of forever and balance of terror, but sometimes you want to see what trouble folks are getting up to with tribbles, or maybe you want a piece of the action. And like a piece of the action, Rascals also features a boy throwing a tantrum and crying for his daddy. Just like rerouting power through the main deflector dish, it's the plan that never fails. Rascal starts with an improbable situation. Roe, Guinan, Keiko, and the captain chilling together in a shuttlecraft because the captain of the flagship often hangs out with civilians in his free time even more often than he hangs out with his secondary bridge crew. And then they get turned into kids. And you, the viewer, are like, sure, this universe is insane. It's got space amoebas and space Abraham Lincoln, and the transporter does do crap like this all the time. You know, if people got hurt as often on, say, escalators as get cloned, aged, split in two, or sent to an alternate universe with transporters, we wouldn't have escalators. I'm just saying. Wait, space Lincoln? I'll show it to you later. Uh, Rascals does manage to sneak in some serious with the silly. And wow, is there silly. I mean, beyond the premise itself, you have the bridge crew passing the idiot ball around while friggin' Ferengi somehow bored and capture the Enterprise. It's absolute contrived nonsense. But in all of this, we see one of our favorite things that comes up in comics all the time, and it's cool to see here. It's where a character has a major aspect of themselves removed or changed to study how they compensate with what remains. Like Superman losing his powers, or Dick Grayson losing his Nightwing identity and becoming a spy, that sort of thing. And here we see all of the characters losing their adulthoods, and they all handle it differently, but all of them do retain parts of their core. In a lot of ways, it moves past what was once Picard's only character quality, in that he hated kids. But now he is a kid, see? But Picard is logical enough to face the reality that no one would take a kid with the brain of Picard seriously, and steps down without too much trouble. Guinan keeps her wisdom and serenity in the face of everything this side of Q. Ro is still angry about everything, but she gets to jump on a bed, which is absolutely adorable. And Keiko still fights with O'Brien, as is her way. That's not nice. Hey, unlike every other time, I actually take her side here, and I feel really bad for her. It's also not nice. She was badly written. It's very unfortunate. There's one thing that doesn't make any sense, though. Lil Picard is fascinated with his hair and plays with it in the mirror. He really, really likes having hair again. So why not regrow hair once the transporter miracle cures him? Are you telling me there's no baldness cure? They can stitch together stab wounds. Google the picture of Patrick Stewart wearing a wig for his audition. Some things should not be. 
So, uh, till all are one. Live long and prosper. Now for a fistful of datas. Patrick Stewart only directs data-heavy episodes, it seems. Previous ones include In Theory and Hero Worship, but this is more of a Worf story anyway. Worf as an Old West sheriff. I'm sorry, I can't bring myself to call it the Ancient West. Uh, with Alexander as his deputy and Troy as the mysterious stranger. Troy? Aside from reinforcing these three characters as a kind of family, what is she doing here? Well, that's what happens when you forget to give characters any real interests. She gets shoehorned into any damn thing. She likes westerns, apparently. Hey, it's about as convincing as Picard's obsession with Dixon Hill. Or Geordi's second attempt at a beard, which happens in this episode. So, you're expecting two things out of this one. A holodeck malfunction and a comedy episode. And you get both. The tone is set from the beginning as everyone interrupts Picard's music study. Because yay, the Resican flute returns. Uh, it's well-timed and funny, especially the section where Crusher offers Picard a bit part in her play. Hearing Patrick Stewart utter the words, I'm not much of an actor. It's kind of hilarious. We later get to see Spot act like a cat and jump on Data's workspace, a return appearance for Ode to Spot, and Brent Spiner putting on his best hayseed accent. The holodeck malfunction plot, with its ever-increasing number of android outlaws, also plays more to comedy than drama, with the usual fish-out-of-water scenes you'd imagine as Worf stumbles his way around the genre cliches in his funny hat. Once again, Alexander traipses around a program inappropriate for a child, full of violence, prostitutes, and Troy smoking a doobie. There are good production values with a wide western set, but the empty streets remind us this was made on a TV budget. In the end, Worf jury-rigs a personal force field from a telegraph and a comm badge, Hey, it's in the spirit of things. The power of stone knives and bearskins again. And a note on the ending, a really beautiful and unexpected shot of the Enterprise flying into the sunset, which certainly redeems the slow epilogue. Perfectly fits the Western. I'm giving this a medium. I find that comedy can work in Star Trek when it comes from the characters and isn't too over the top. And a good example is Picard's flute scene. Data and drag, however, falls a little short of my exacting standards. Next up, the quality of life. A lot of dull tech talk surrounds an ethical dilemma about small robots with goofy feet, and we're supposed to care because Data hopes not to be the only machine intelligence in the galaxy. And that's all well and fine, but since the exocomps can't talk, it doesn't matter how goofy their shoes are, we can't really relate to them, even when the predictable, noble sacrifice comes at the end. We're left with other people interpreting for them, and an antagonistic guest star in the shape of Dr. Farallon. Now, if I were her, I'd stop beating a dead horse that is the um, particle fountain and cash my chips on having created life. Have some perspective, Doctor. I'd much rather watch any number of episodes where Data deals with the rights of mechanical beings and or his own solitude, like... I don't know, The Offspring, for example, than the manufactured drama of him going against orders like this. You'd think the Exocomps were Sarjenka or something. Riker is cast in the role of the stubborn superior officer, but he's smart enough to manipulate Data to get the results he wants, giving the comps the choice to endanger their lives. The subplot scene isn't much better, centering on Geordi's beard, but thankfully gone by the next episode. I like the beard. With Crusher trying to win a hand of poker that will make the entire cast shave their beards off. Is it me, or is she way too disappointed when they're called away to the bridge? I'm forced to give this one a low. The quality of life isn't particularly bad, but it's so ordinary as to be boring at this point. We've seen Data fight this battle before, and more entertainingly. The Chain of Command, Part 1. Uh, the start of one of Trek's very best two-parters. It has a great premise. What if the Enterprise was handed over to another captain, one with a very different style? Edward Jellicoe, 
as played by Ronnie Cox, the delicious bastard Dick Jones in RoboCop, is a harsh taskmaster. He doesn't like explaining himself. He's a stickler for decorum, and he has his own catchphrase, Get it done. In a sense, he's a conservative to Picard's liberal, and the crew doesn't like to be brusqued this way. Well, too bad, because I like him a lot. He's a great psychologist in the Kirk mold, and knows exactly how to deal with the Cardassians. And this is the first look uh, at their much-improved DS9 uniforms. He is well-prepared, no-nonsense, he has a quick mind. And you know what? Not only is it true that Troy should be wearing a damn uniform, it suits her very well, thank you. Riker is frankly unprofessional and insubordinate. I'm not saying that's out of character for him, but he's nevertheless in the wrong here. There are some flaws in this episode, of course, uh, from the minor, let's say like Tormund 5 looks just like the Masterpiece Society, which was kind of meant to be unique, to the slightly repulsive uh, Crusher pleasuring a Ferengi, to the major plot hole. Uh, is it really smart to send three senior officers on a special ops mission? The justification for this is pretty slim, and the mission isn't a lot more than crawling through the usual caves. But seeing as this leads into one whopper of an episode and has all those great Jellico scenes, eh, it's kind of easy. Easy to overlook. I'm giving this one a high rewatchability index. You don't want to miss the next one, so you don't want to miss how they got there. As for part two, turns out this whole mission was a trap to lure Picard specifically to Celtus III for capture, interrogation, and torture. I don't know if that makes the Cardassians surprisingly great planners or the writers spectacularly lazy, but it doesn't really matter because that's just the context to something truly excellent. Chain of Command Part 2 is really an unflinching adult look at torture and the relationship between a Cardassian captor and his dehumanized captive. David Warner and Patrick Stewart in the roles simply seals the deal. It's a must-see. The performances are very strong, and Warner delivers the entire Cardassian template in the course of a single story. Their pride, their love of family, their desperation and use of all resources for war, their semi-abandoned spirituality, their Orwell Kafka justice system, their vile cuisine, and of course the way they like to paint themselves as the good guys, only trying to help lesser cultures. It's all there for DS9 to work from. And Picard is tortured, humiliated, stripped of his identity, and toyed with, but he gives as good as he gets. Picard is stronger, or must be stronger, than his cruel captor. His use of psychology matches that of Madred's as much as his willpower does. Picard never admits to ever seeing more than four lights. It's a set piece worthy of 1984. But in the end, though Madred walks off defeated, Picard must admit that he had been broken. And that's pretty powerful stuff. And bold. Over on the Enterprise, the Jellico-Riker relationship comes to a head and bam, Data's in their Red Command shirt. What follows is a little more predictable, though perhaps nice to see no begrudging respect between the two men at the end. Again, a high score. For the first time, Part 2 is better than Part 1, and a sign of things to come once the Space Nine gets good and going. Cardassians are proving to be formidable villains, where the Ferengi and Neo-Romulans have yet to truly succeed. Ship in a Bottle is next. Hey, it's a bottle show that actually calls itself that. It's also the Barkley episode we tend to forget is a Barkley episode. Maybe because it doesn't concentrate on his insecurities, though they're there. Uh, no, we remember this one because of the one mechanical life form let down by Picard, Professor Moriarty. He's back and playing for keeps. A great sympathetic villain. Moriarty here is crisply written and someone you really want to see succeed, so long as no one dies. His plan is ingenious, to say the least, leading to an even more clever ploy by Picard and crew. It really comes together like a Philip K. Dick story, with 
reality being most earnestly in question. Picard's speech about being in a box uh, in someone's living room borders on the hokey, however. But when you already know the twist, the story is no less interesting, and the clues are much more subtle than they usually are. Did I catch Crusher using her tricorder wrong? Did you think Troy was wearing a proper uniform because Jellicoe got through to her? Actually, here's hoping she wears it more often in real life. But usually the flaw in something like this would be in a techie B-plot, but the stellar collision is just a backdrop here, and it's very pretty. TNG is really giving us some nice stellar visuals at this point. No, the flaw has to be the Countess, who may or may not be as well written as Moriarty, but whose performance is just too mannered to be believed. I guess she really is just a holodeck character, and a shallow one at that. Still, this is a high score for me. Very clever and rewatchable thanks to some strong performances and the never dull Barkley. All this might just be an elaborate simulation running inside a little device sitting on someone's table. Next up, Aquiel. Well, here's another episode that is directly related to my dislike of Jordy, actually. Dude just isn't professional. And like Troy, he's a character that hasn't been given enough interests, and I don't just mean love interests. So, the same way Troy is always eating chocolate as if it were a character development, Jordy is falling in love with a recording. Again, didn't learn his lesson with Leah Brahms, I guess. But for this creepy stalker romance to work, we need to fall for Aquiel ourselves. I'm afraid we can't. She's just not that interesting or endearing. When she shows up, the show becomes all about red herrings and jerking the audience around. They make her look like she's guilty, impeding an investigation should have scored her a court-martial, in my opinion, and then make her seem like she's the coalescent organism. But once we know the truth, if we didn't guess it for ourselves, it seems like obvious manipulation. I know Jordy is lonely and pathetic, but when the evidence against her stacks up, he should have put some distance between them not done the telepathic dirty with her and told Riker off. One interesting thing about the relationship is that, well, is it still going on? You know, she bonds with Geordi because she really likes him or because she needs to influence an officer to stay in Starfleet. I don't know. But then they're separated by their jobs. So is Geordi in a long-distance relationship since then? Anyway, despite the unbelievable instant love affair, the episode starts out well enough uh, with an intriguing mystery and Klingon involvement, plus Beverly's creepy disembodied hand. Oh, and Troy really is back in uniform for good. That seems like everyone gets a nice moment, except for Mr. Nepotism, Geordi LaForge. And unfortunately, the episode focuses on him. So this is, becomes a medium low. Picard intimidating a Klingon governor, Riker butting in but being right, Crusher and Worf as Grissom and Willows. There are some okay moments here, but the A-plot is a manipulative romance between unlikable characters. It will not make you respect Geordi. Remember when you said you felt like the memories had been drained right out of you? Well, that's probably exactly what was going on. Marina Sirtis puts on some Romulan makeup in Face of the Enemy, an excellent Troy episode, but once again, it may be because she's not quite herself. But the cold-heartedness she's able to pull off as Major Rakal is in her somewhere. Though she has trouble dealing with Commander Torith in early scenes, well, she quickly gets into character and eventually even takes Nevek by surprise. Thanks to her empathic powers, she can more easily manipulate people and or react more appropriately to any given social situation. But why doesn't she? I mean, she, here she cuts loose. And though her character is perhaps less sympathetic... I think it's an improvement. Troy can be hardcore. In order to defeat your enemy, you must first understand them. The Federation wishes to avoid war at all costs. So, I will offer them a diplomatic solution. Get them to lower their shields. And then, destroy them. 
Face of the Enemy is also a sort of sequel to Unification, visiting with Romulan politics and getting a sense of Spock's struggle. More than that, it's also our first look at the life aboard a Romulan ship, not unlike what a matter of honor did for the Klingons. Commander Toroth, as played perfectly by Carolyn Seymour, isn't what you'd expect. She's no villain. To her, the Romulan thought police are the villains. And the Tal Shiar are, I must say, a great idea, too long in coming. And the Federation is the enemy. She serves, but not blindly. Though more of a thug, really, there are shades of the noble Romulans from Balance of Terror here. Aboard the Enterprise, there's less to do, though the crew reacts efficiently to Deanna's dilemma. And there's palpable outrage at Deceive's defection to the Romulan side. Picard finally accepts his word when he explains his reasons were philosophical in nature, but I think Picard is the only Starfleet captain we followed with whom that would have had some weight. I give this a high, possibly the best Troy episode ever. The plot is interesting and full of tension, and the characters are smart. This one's very rewatchable. The season gets even better with Tapestry. Where do I begin? You know, from the initial moments where Dr. Salar's name is dropped, which always makes me kind of giddy, this episode is just a joy. Picard dies on the operating table and finds Q running the afterlife, at first subjecting him to being haunted by the people he's killed, by his actions and inactions, then taking a page from Quantum Leap and revisiting a moment he regrets from his past. And it's not a cheap invention for the purposes of this story either. It's the very same moment he told Wesley about back in Samaritan Snare, his fight with the Nausicans. Q and Picard are a great antagonistic double act, both going after the other with wit and energy. Is there a John Luck Pickard here? Remains one of the great Q gags, and it's really fun to see Picard plagued by Q, not only in the afterlife, but in his own bed as well. I don't care too much for Picard's school friends, since they're way over the top in their reactions. I don't know who you are anymore, well, sheesh. But they serve their purpose. I guess we're supposed to see young Picard in them. The Nausicans, on the other hand, are a great creation that, that might have seen more airtime. The very definition of macho, which they call Goramba. Uh, these brutes look extremely tough and have a look and sound just a touch more alien than usual. Once history has been changed, the episode turns into a what-if scenario in which Picard never became a risk-taker and is just a lowly lieutenant in the astrophysics department. Riker's assessment of him as punctual makes me laugh every time. Clearly, the lesson is that it's no use regretting anything since everything you've ever done and experienced has made you who you are today. Is this lesson part of the debt Q has been trying to repay since Cupid? Is it a test on the nature of time to prepare Picard for all good things? And not unlike Times Squared, which was meant to be a Q episode. Did it even happen? That at least can be checked with a call to Marta, if she's still alive. And on top of all that, Tapestry throws all sorts of nice details at us. Movie-era uniforms. Our first look at Domjot. Worf's change of hair to the warrior's ponytail. The things Picard did to earn his rank. And a whole new context for why Picard laughed when he was stabbed through the heart. Nice production design and a clever way to include the rest of the cast as well. Obviously, I'm giving this a high. It's the best Q episode, bar none. And there are a number of good ones, you know. It's also an excellent Picard episode, so not to be missed. Here's Ken Holzhauser again with his take on Tapestry. Confession time. Tapestry is my favorite episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. The throwaway line about laughing while he was stabbed in the heart seemed an odd detail when it appeared in Samaritan Snare, as that early iteration of Captain Picard seemed so stuffy, it was hard to imagine that he laughed, let alone that he laughed at such a serious subject. As the series progressed, 
and we learned more about Captain Picard, it became easier to see the dangerous young man that earned such wisdom. Tapestry is very much a story that could only happen this late in the series. Our affection and loyalty to these characters is deeply ingrained. One of Picard's defining traits is his calm wisdom, but Tapestry shows that no one comes to wisdom without earning it. The sequence of timid Picard's career is incredibly sad than comedy gold in equal measure. Is Q really there? He's more affectionate and beneficial than he's ever been before, even in the guise of tough love. Perhaps he feels more sympathy for our captain than we understand. There's such an important lesson about how your failures contribute as much to your life as successes. And that final scene of Captain Picard sharing stories with Commander Riker is such a family-oriented, father-and-son, beautiful scene. It's really a wonderful capper. To a wonderful episode. Next up, Birthright Part 1. A strange sort of two-parter that begins here, because I believe the Wharf story could have fit a single episode. For one thing, there's a lot of fat that could be cut from it, like Worf going back and forth on his decision to go looking for Moog, and for another, there's a long, complete B-plot about Data learning to dream, and a visit to Deep Space Nine to help promote the show as it was starting. But do away with all that, and you could certainly scrunch the two parts together. But I suppose the Data thread isn't big enough to warrant its own episode, so perhaps that's what happened to the structure. That third of the episode at least is interesting. Bashir gets the guest star and brings up some original points about Data's biomechanics. Does his hair grow? Does he have a pulse? And ultimately, can he dream? The visions aren't very inspired, but then Data has little to no experience with subconscious imagery, and you never quite get it when somebody else tells you their dreams anyway. But in the end, it's a neat way to write a conversation with Dr. Soong, and the final dream really is magical, especially the flight out of the Enterprise and back in. Note also the first appearance of the striped orange spot. That's not the same cat all the way through. As for Worf, he has the usual conversations about honor and filial duty, a vision that will become important later in the season, is also mentioned. He becomes insubordinate, breaks the table, intimidates an Iridian, and goes traipsing through the woods in search of a Romulan camp. Michael Dorn makes Worf rather dangerous and on edge here, and it plays well. Peeping at Bael's skinny dipping isn't the best moment, however. The mystery of the camp is left for the next episode. So this one gets a medium from me, though its threads are thematically linked. You know, Birthright feels rather disjointed, with gratuitous use of the Deep Space Nine environment and of Bashir, and the incongruous Data and Worf plots. Watch it to get the lowdown on Data's dreaming in time for Season 7's Phantasms, and of course to know what's happening as you get into part two, but don't expect anything above average. I do not understand. You're not supposed to. Birthright continues, and after seeing part two, I'm more convinced than ever that this Worf story could have fit into a single episode, and should have. The plot is way too repetitive, with Worf escaping, then being recaptured, and Tokath telling Worf several times not to test his tolerance. Oh, and by the way, we built something special here, and we live in peace. Did I mention that already? Oh, sorry. Furthermore, if you're going to extend the story into a two-parter, it'd be nice if it was, you know, a significant one. However, the search for Moog turns out to be a red herring, and nothing really comes of it. Worf is good enough in the Robin Williams role uh, in this dead Klingon society story, inspiring young Klingons to embrace their warrior's blood, but some nice bits of Klingon culture are thrown in, including some nice songs and new toothy weapons. Worf's honor commands him to help the kids, and the adults too, uh, find their way again, out of their assimilation, if not their prison, and even martyr himself if need be. 
that's ample motivation for him. Unfortunately, they also throw in a ridiculous love affair with a half-Romulan that, yes, shows how Worf's xenophobia still runs deep, as in The Enemy, but is also unrealistically quick to happen. No respite from the rest of the crew, with most of the cast barely appearing or not appearing at all. There's a big plot hole you can drive the Enterprise through, which I won't bore you with here. Uh, at least Worf is well-written as a charismatic leader, clever Starfleet officer, and noble hero, but he should always be like this. Sticking to the medium, worth watching for Worf, but the story moves along at a snail's pace and isn't at all well thought out. The stories that you tell, are they true? Next up, Starship Mine. Uh, an episode that uses the now all-too-familiar die-hard formula, uh, which may be expressed as one man in a closed environment against a team of terrorists who turn out to be doing it for the money. But it does so to good effect. From the start, Picard is shown as a man who loves his ship and knows every facet of its operations. So he's well-suited to turning it into a trap for said terrorists, a slash trilithium thieves. For example, he knows where to find medieval weapons, Worf's quarters, naturally, and he's hardcore. You won't see a Picard this ruthless until first contact. I don't think. Not a single thief survives this one. That's what happens when you take his stun option away. Special bonus, Tim Russ, who will later play Voyager's Tuvok, gets nerve-pinched by Picard. It happens. But before the suspense ramps up, leading to one of the better last-minute saves in the series, the episode lays a great comedy foundation. Data's attempt at small talk. Pretty cute, and then gets totally over the top when he meets Hutch, the talkative Starbase commander. Brent Spiner is great in this. Speaking of talkative men, you know, Picard chooses Mott as his alias to fool the thieves. It's a nice mention. And there's also the running gag about every rider keeping his own saddle. Dwarf surprise. I would have answered that Klingons with crossbows in their quarters shouldn't throw stones. If the episode has a weak point, it's the hostage situation on the planet. The cast plays it smart, and their plan is interesting, if a bit technical, but the terrorist forces just aren't convincing enough to warrant that plan in the first place. If Riker could take on both guys in a diversion, it's clear that just a little help from Data would have made victory decisive. They either needed more formidable opponents, or better yet, a greater number of them. Still, a high score, though the formula is evident, it's one that works. A good action story that's nonetheless a personal one for Picard with an equal measure of comedy. You have never seen anything like this. It's got something for everyone. David Tony's mission is to starship harder. Take it away, David. Hello there, all you fellow gimme-that-star-trek trekkers. This is DC Dave. So I wanted to start off by saying that, you know, Starship Mine uses that now all-too-familiar die-hard formula, which may be expressed as one man in a closed environment against a team of terrorists who turn out to be doing it for the money, but not necessarily to good effect. Picard does a good job of fooling the terrorists into thinking he's a nobody when they first capture him. Unfortunately, that's where the action turns to a by-the-numbers formula of Picard escaping, taking out terrorists one by one, getting captured again, and then getting a convenient last-minute save. The final turn of convenience, the last antagonist standing, conveniently gets blown up as her shuttle tries to escape, leaving us with a pretty little bow-slash-reset button on this episode. The B story, with the bridge staff getting taken hostage, is too much by the numbers as well. Worf takes himself out of the action at the beginning of the episode by asking to miss the welcome reception. So the strongest, best defense that would have helped the bridge crew has been taken completely out of the picture, written out. That's actually some lazy writing right there. We don't even get a scene of Worf coming to look for his friends after this welcome reception goes long and ends up behind locked doors. 
The same weapons that kill the base commander just knock out Jordy, leaving us a visor to help our bridge crew get out of a jam. Jordy is reduced to being a literal tool in this episode. As Riker says, the hostage takers at the station weren't planning for an accelerated timetable, and it felt like the writers weren't sure what to do with the bridge crew, which resulted in everyone standing around for most of the episode. While I enjoyed the comedy of Data's human foible of the week, the jump from comedy to the dark turn the episode takes was a little shocking. Picard is completely ruthless in this episode, the darkest we've ever seen him up to this point. Dark Picard is not my favorite Picard. I've always believed that Picard should exemplify the best that we should strive for. Action hero Jean-Luc McCain seems out of character. Yes, it's Christmas Eve. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, it's the Enterprise. But the loss of life in this episode under Picard's watch is higher than I feel comfortable with. This might make better sense come Star Trek Picard, but here it feels out of place. The episode would have been better served to just a single storyline on the Enterprise and completely focused on Picard saving the day. Thanks to Siskoid for letting me participate. And now I'm going to go catch one of those shuttles that he's always talking about. In lessons, Captain Picard falls in love and he and Neela make beautiful music together. It sounds trite when I put it that way, but this episode is anything but. For once, we have an extremely believable romance, played over a number of weeks, it seems, and with the potential to continue, as opposed to, I'm shipping out tomorrow, babe, romances, usually associated with Star Trek. Neela Darren is as willful as Vash but far more likable, and not just a foil for Picard, but an equal partner as well. Too bad about the 24th century plastic haircut, however. She's not intimidated by him in the least, which she finds immediately attractive. Then it turns out she's not exclusively about dry astrophysics theories. She's also a great pianist. When she takes interest in his flute playing, it's simply meant to be. The Frère Jacques improvisation is excellent, but it's the scene in the Jeffrey's tube that gives me the chills, for, or rather that arrangement of the Resican melody from the inner light, since Picard associates that folk song with the family he had during that story, sharing it with Neela solidifies their bond. relationship is played realistically, with the crew reacting believably to the captain's girlfriend's requests, uh, Riker in a tight spot, Troy's permission, Picard's awkwardness. It shows that the good captain keeps people at arm's length, not because he's cold, but because he's too sensitive. When Neela goes on a near-fatal mission, his vulnerabilities are exposed, and the romance is then doomed. The episode loses something when the musical interludes give way to the science fiction Jeopardy, though the, the firestorms do look nice, but it's a necessary plot element that makes you believe in the breakup. So, okay, I'm giving this a high. The soulful music by itself is enough to recommend lessons. That it's also one of the best romances Star Trek has produced, with a not-too tragic ending this time at least is just the cherry on the sunday next up the chase uh this one explains why most alien species in star trek basically look like humans with latex stuck on their foreheads sure people who don't like trek will frequently tout it as one of the franchise's great flaws then point to more alien aliens in star wars for example but it's part of the format and just as much part of the willing suspension of disbelief as transporters or ftl travel offering up a justification for what is basically production necessity as if they were trying to win a no prize it kind of smacks a fan wank 
that fan wankery feeling doesn't go away as more and more of the major races show up, you know, together for the first time. And yet a lot of the episode is padding. I really enjoyed Data's scene with the Klingon arm wrestling. It's funny as hell. But what does it have to do with the story? Meanwhile, though it's kind of hinted that the cloaked Romulans blew up the Iridian ship, or at least sabotaged it since cloaked ships can't fire weapons, that particular mystery is left dangling. Professor Galen comes off as a jerk when he tries to give Picard a guilt trip and make him leave the ship for a year, and then the research takes only the rest of the episode. Anyways, but at least the investigation is interesting. It's a clever puzzle. There's plenty of good bits throughout, like Picard calling each of the races out and Data's aforementioned humbling of Nudak. Sadly, but unsurprisingly, there's no real consequences uh, to finding out that all species have a common ancestor. But then, you know, I wouldn't have dwelled on it either. This one's a medium, perfectly watchable quest kind of episode with plenty of flash to keep your mind off the fact that the story is at once thin and unnecessary. There is something of us in each of you. And so, something of you in each other. Next is Frame of Mind, a great reality bender when you never a great reality bender where you never know what to believe and where your expectations are constantly subverted. What helps is that Jonathan Frakes really sells Riker's performance as a man going insane, and that Riker is a good actor, hence his semi-frequent undercover work. Then Riker himself goes off the deep end, but when you think he's rejecting reality, he's actually not. It's creepy and off-putting, and the ending finally gives us some beautiful effects shots of reality and Riker breaking apart, and we're left to ponder just where Riker pulled all the fantasy elements from. And finally, there's a great bit of catharsis as Riker dismantles the frame of mindset. It's hard to say much else since any problem can be explained away by the very concept of the episode, like the ridiculousness of reflection therapy, which is still an interesting concept, or the play's weird ending. One irrelevant observation, uh, if you'll allow me, you know, if my boss were in a play aboard ship, I would be curious enough to go see it. On a ship of a thousand plus people, why aren't there more spectators? Just how many nights does it have to run for you to get your chance? Is it broadcast on a closed circuit? Are the holodecks full of spectators watching it either as it's being recorded or later? Or is theater really that unpopular in the future? These are questions that keep me up at night. Sorry. In any case, this one's a high, another high concept Brandon Braga script that keeps you guessing even when you already seen the episode. It was a smash. We got a standing ovation. Then it's suspicions. Uh, the first question you ask yourself is why Crusher is hosting an engineering conference and why she's so convinced Dr. Rega's metaphasic shields will work. Just where are Data and Jordy in this? Data has a minimal role, and Jordy is actually totally absent. If I didn't know any better, I'd say this was a Jordy story, especially with Guinan coming in to give advice, until LeVar Burton got a bad case of the measles or something. But no, this was actually designed as a Crusher as Quincy story all along, according to my research. Or it could have been an ensemble story. For example, why is she conducting a murder investigation when war should be. You know, Beverly is totally mischaracterized as a quantum physics groupie who cares more about Rega's posthumous reputation than Jobril's life. Picard's advice to her about how to handle losing someone you sent out on a mission seems devoid of the context it should have, namely that he sent her husband on a mission with identical results. They don't make the link. And then there's the plot. Jobril walks away from an autopsy, so I'm guessing an autopsy is not necessarily invasive in the future. So why is there an interstellar incident over Rega's? 
Uh, well, we'll have to wait for Deep Space Nine to see what really happens to Ferengi remains, of course. But the fact that Crusher heroically proves Rega's theories and finds his murderer does nothing to change the fact that she still mutilated a body against orders and against the Prime Directive. And furthermore, by disintegrating Jabril, and does really does that seem like Dr. Crusher to you? She has no real evidence that he was the killer. There's a nice bit of loyalty from the underwritten Ogawa, uh, a non-comedy Ferengi. I mean, it's something to be lauded. And a death becomes her money shot, uh, but they aren't enough to save this mess of a script. It's annoying in every way. I give it a low. Crusher's proven herself an engaging detective in other stories, but it still has to make sense in the context of the series. Dismal in the midst of some of the series' best episodes. At that point, the doubts of the others seemed justified. I had no idea what had gone wrong. Next up, Rightful Heir. A story on religion offers a stark contrast with the Federation's secular humanism, but a character like Worf, heavily into tradition and ritual, always carried that potential. It still took almost six years for TNG to really address the issue. Before Rightful Heir, religion was a component of culture, usually Klingon or Bajoran, but never was it really discussed in terms of faith. Worf has a faith, Starfleet characters do not. Given what's happening in the newborn Deep Space Nine at this time, I think it was time for TNG to venture into that territory, as treacherous as it can be. They succeed by opposing Star Trek's universe of science and proof to the very idea of faith, both in the absence and presence of proof, and proof of the contrary at that. Data's own leap of faith gives Worf advice from an unexpected source, but provides a secular context for belief as well. Star Trek's humanism is a set of beliefs, just as any religion, real or fictional, is. Rightful Heir isn't a trite exploration of the concept either. It fits squarely in the Klingon arc, with Worf once again a mover and a shaker in the society from which he is basically an exile. Priests, tired of waiting for their messiah, which shows their lack of faith, decide to clone him, and who's to say that wasn't the promised return, right? Uh, which gives Ron Moore the chance to indulge in his brand of world building. The Klingons' legends and parables told here are fascinating, though it's a stretch that the one story not known by the population at large is that of the first Batleth. Uh, note also the first mention of Klingon Valhalla, Stovokor, but by bringing in Garon, we get to see the political ramifications of this event, and Worf's solution is actually clever and well thought out. There are some weaker elements, such as Picard basically rewarding Worf for failing in his duty, a more obvious than usual miniature, and the somewhat miscast KLS. Yes, he has to fail as the super warrior of legend, but shots of Worf and other Klingons towering over him don't help sell that he is actually genetically identical to the legendary hero. Sadly, very little is done with the idea of the Emperor in future Klingon stories, and it doesn't seem like his moral compass did much to cut down on corruption in the Empire. So I give it a score of medium high since rightful air has little impact on the klingon storyline and it is a bit talky i can't give it full marks but Worf in the saint thomas role is a fine exploration of his innate duality and the look into klingon culture is insightful they do not need a false god on to second chances uh, Riker meeting his transporter clone. Well, let's see, a chance to pull off some deft effects, and obviously he has to die at the end to maintain the status quo, or perhaps we'll let the audience believe that our Riker is the one that died, but then, you know, classic reset button, blah blah blah, right? 
wrong. The effects are indeed wonderful, but the story doesn't actually go where you think it will. Second Chances manages to do for Riker what Tapestry did for Picard. It speculates on what would happen if your younger self met your present self and found it lacking. Lieutenant Riker basically spent eight years in story stasis, so he has remained a risk-taker, ambitious, and quite in love with Troy. Commander Riker, on the other hand, has grown comfortable, has refused a couple commands to stay aboard the flagship, and is just friends with Troy, despite some somewhat romantic interludes that we must have simply mischaracterized in the past two seasons. Hmm? Uh, neither likes what he sees in the other. I would probably feel the same. Jonathan Frakes does a good job of portraying the two Rikers. The same, yet different, but it's Marina Sirtis who really sells it for me. This has got to be one of her best episodes. Her reactions seem very real and effective, and we learned a great deal more about how their relationship ended. And I also don't think she's ever looked prettier. The fairer hair, possibly matching the blue uniform better than the jet black, and the opening sequence has her looking a lot more like Marina Sirtis herself, and I don't think that's a bad look for her at all. This one is one excellent scene after another. The romantic treasure hunt, the dead-on poker scene, the mention of Riker's father, but when you think it all has to end on a rickety bridge, of course, it doesn't. I can't commend the creators enough for allowing Lieutenant Riker to live. It's too bad Troy never gives him a second thought, though the romance ends believably, as in lessons, but it's a bold subversion of audience expectations and the right thing to do. He'll even return on DS9. Oh, and surprise cameo, astronaut Mae Jameson as the transporter chief. That's worth a few points. I give this a high. I didn't expect it to be this good. Effects, acting, and plot all converge to make this one of the surprises of the season. I guess I'm not surprised to hear that. On to Timescape. I mean, by this point, even a technobabble premise can be saved by the characters. We know them well, and they're allowed to act as a family and grow. Picard and Troy doing impressions. He just kept talking in one long, incredibly unbroken sentence, moving from topic to topic so that no one had a chance to interrupt. It was really quite hypnotic. <laughs> Her use of plexing from Realm of Fear when she gets unnerved goes without mention. I just never noticed it before now. Data watching a pot boil. Riker dreading Spot's feeding time. They're all fun moments that make us like what is essentially a high-concept episode. Not that that concept is bad, mind you. The temporal bubbles are actually pretty fun, and it's to the episode's credit that while the solution requires some technobabble tools, it is nonetheless predicated on puzzle solving and actions that you or I could have thought of. Our characters walking around frozen crew members is at once eerie and cool, and the dilemmas set up our tension builders. Beverly being shot by a Romulan, Romulans on the bridge, a warp core breach in progress. How did all this happen and how do we stop it? It's a timeline puzzle like that of some film favorites like Memento, 1114, or 12 Monkeys. The plot goes a little gonzo with the quantum singularity parasites nesting in the Romulans' engines and their parents taking Romulan form, but you do buy it. In the final analysis, what's enjoyable is that the characters are smartly written, Troy pulls the plug on Geordi to save his life, Picard throws the runabout into the beam, etc., and there are some really fun surreal moments like Picard getting the time bends and tracing a smiley face into the warp core breach, or his hand aging at 50 times the normal rate in the rotten fruit bowl. There are flaws, such as pulling the runabout shots straight from DS9, I'd recognize the Denorius belt anywhere, apparently in exchange for building the 
aft section, so okay then, and Romulans armed with disruptors in Sigbay when Riker went through the trouble of planting a phaser there in the opening sequence. I'm sure the concept can be nitpicked to death like uh, the next phase, but like the next phase, the character moments and fun action save it from its logical failings. I give this a high. Loads of fun with nicely written character moments as well as effective tension. Season ends on Descent Part 1. Descent feels a bit random to me at times. It starts with a gratuitous cameo by Stephen Hawking playing cards with Einstein and Newton. Fun moment, but wholly irrelevant. Has the Borg return in less than full force. Plays with the idea of data generating emotions for the first time. And finally, brings back lore in the cliffhanger. Where it feels random, I think, is the tenuous link between lore and the Borg. It's just a supervillain team-up. The fact is that Best of Both Worlds wrote the Borg into a corner. They were too powerful an enemy, making their use dangerous and even ill-advised. So instead, we have the rogue Borg infected by Hugh's individualism, but then corrupted by lore, or so we'll find out. After this episode, we can guess that's what happened, but we're not sure. The rogue Borg bring a different agenda, and are fewer in number, but still draw out a good portion of the fleet. That's realistic, as is the stern talking to Nechev gives Picard about not exploiting Hugh as a Trojan horse. It helps sell Starfleet's decision in First Contact. And the rogues do bring something new to the Borg in the shape of the transwarp conduit, something that explains how they could have been in our space back in the neutral zone, but still not have met Starfleet until Q-Who. Unfortunately, the rogue Borg ship design is terrible and has nothing to do with Borg design except size. Most of the episode centers on Data's exploration of his mystery emotions, producing a couple of creepy scenes as he admits to feeling pleasure at the Borg's death to Troy, or Geordi walking in on his holodeck murder session. Stop it. Stop. 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 Of course, we've seen permutations of evil data so many times now, from lore to the schizoid man to the fistful of datas, that we know how Brent Spiner is going to do it. It left me nonplussed. The scenes on the subject are uneven as well, with the high point being data telling an amused Troy he looked at porn, and the low point, Geordi being unable to describe anger. As the cliffhanger approaches, the Enterprise is cut off from the fleet and Data leaves the ship with Croesus to meet the One. Beverly is left in charge of the ship and its skeleton crew while everybody else goes searching for the Borg. It's a weird moment. I don't think they sell the need to send so many people to the planet, but I don't begrudge Crusher the opportunity to command. It'll be the first time we see a doctor in the captain's chair, though they have technically always held a high rank. The episode gets marks for the look of the planet, proving that a colored filter can turn even the most Californian of natural settings into an alien place, and the structure used by the Borg is cool both inside and out. The finale only reaches medium. It's a fair setup for what's to come, and an important story for Data, but there's no glorious return for the Borg, and the cliffhanger delves deep into melodrama. The Sons of Sung will destroy the Federation. <laughs> and on that, let me get a glass of water. I'll see you after this short break for Season 7. Hi, John. Hi, Maggie. I'm still wrapping my brain around the fact that we're married. <laughs> me too, but I wouldn't have it any other way. Aw. Well, hey, I was looking at these old comics, and I noticed that there's Hold a parallel... that thought. Why don't we talk about it on our podcast? We have a podcast? It seems like the logical next step. We get married, we change our names, we combine our comic collections, we start a podcast about comic books. Well, I can't fault your logic, but there are plenty of podcasts out there already. Do you really think we'll have anything new and interesting to say? Oh, I think we'll manage. 
Welcome to the Married with Comics podcast, where we constantly fuck up. <laughs> she goes from Marvel Girl to Phoenix to Marvel Girl to Jean Grey to Phoenix to Dead. Um, <laughs> and then apparently he's so consumed with his own thoughts that he runs right past three monkeys. <laughs> yeah. and now, uh, a brainwave camera took a picture of that guy's head. A brainwave camera. Uh, and Ben's just basically, whatever you gotta do to stop the commies, Nick. So join us at the Married with Comics podcast. We're two newlyweds with a love for comics intelligently, critically, and thoughtfully discuss comic books. Also listen as we goof around, make jokes, and make fun of John for mispronouncing names. I do that a lot. Sometimes we'll pick a topic and review and discuss comics that relate to the topic. And sometimes we'll pick up a comic and see what discussion topics come up. Sometimes we'll spend an entire episode talking about how much Maggie loves Batman. The only thing that's almost as strong as my love for you is my love for Batman. The Married with Comics podcast. Available directly on our site at marywcomics.libsyn.com, on iTunes, and wherever good podcasts are found. Also, check us out at Facebook at the Married with Comics podcast. We've got everything you need. Thanks for sticking around. This is Season 7, uh, and it starts with Descent Part 2. And the problem with Part 1 is that it didn't ask the simple question, how did they get out of this one? Uh, it asked many more questions than that. And over summer hiatus, we tend to forget them all. The air is kind of let out of the balloon before the season premiere. But that's not much of a problem in syndication or on DVD. Now, now the problem is that all these questions are answered in expositionary scenes that seem to go on forever and even repeat information. What happened to Hugh after he rejoined the collective? How Lore became a psychotic cult leader? What he's been doing to Data? What his plans are? It's a real babble-a-thon. And while evil Data fails to pique my interest this late in the series, the heart of the episode is the ethical dilemma he's been placed into. There's no question that it'll get through to him, but his experimenting on Jordy could go too far at any time. I can't fault the tension here. Though elsewhere, it's a lot of Picard talking at Data. Laura's plan scarcely makes sense, but he's psychotic, and there is a touch of pathos to his final end, which I found effective. Data about to destroy the emotion chip is pure hogwash, though. Uh, if he's emotionless, why would he even be tempted? They're just forcing the drama there. The other half of the show is about Beverly commanding the ship against the Borg ship. Again, the plot dictates some unbelievable things. That she's stuck with a skeleton crew still isn't explained to my satisfaction. I mean, are there really hundreds of people looking for data and none come upon the Borg structure? And why Riker would leave her in a combat situation against the Borg with no experience, rather than beam up himself. Seems to indicate that he wants to spend the rest of his life stranded on that planet. Beverly does very well for herself, however, and her command style is more democratic than most. She's very likable and inspires a rookie to make good, as well as finds a use for suspicions being in the canon. It's the kind of underdog moment that invariably works, but again, the writers go a little too far to ramp up the drama, with the face-making Barnaby taking pokes at young Tate. Uh, it's all remarkably manufactured. Let's do it. All the resolutions feel like Starfleet Solutions' greatest hits, with metaphasic shields, from suspicions, turning a gadget into a transmitter while in a jail cell, from Starship Mine, and destroying a ship with a solar flare, from Redemption Part 2. Good use of past continuity, but nothing too original. Well, waste not, want not. I guess even the stupidest episode can yield a solution for your cliffhanger. This one, I give a medium. The elements are there, and it's a better season premiere than Time's Arrow, but the Borg are essentially wasted as opponents, and there's a strong feeling of deja vu, still important for the emotion chip and Laura's fate. 
Love me! I can't. It's hard to sell aliens that don't understand a particular emotional concept sometimes. And in liaisons, the Ayarans apparently don't understand pleasure, antagonism, and love. But I guess they're good imitators basing their performances on found writings. But then Vaval seems a bit antagonistic on the shuttle, doesn't he? And do they have no concept of pleasure because they don't have good food? You'd think they'd have only rudimentary taste buds if they had no concept of that kind of pleasure at all. It's a silly premise, but it's a comedy episode, so it's passable. And the comedy does work. Worf is especially good here, commenting on how his fancy uniform looks like a dress and taking all the crap his antagonistic ambassador can sling. An uncomfortable Worf is a hilarious Worf. The Troy scenes are less interesting. Though it's nice to see her love of chocolate being tested, it's still repetitive and shallow. Data's small talk subroutine makes a cameo. The bulk of the episode, however, is a creepy romance between shipwrecked Picard and Anna. Creepy because she's a mad stalker of a woman who's exactly the type to shatter your legs so that she can take care of you longer. Well, though the Ayarans didn't learn about love from Picard, they certainly learned a lot about determination. He's he's resistant to it all. That may be a good thing because when you get down to it, Anna is really Voval. What I like here is that there's no mention of Picard actually having kissed a dude, which hints at the evolved society of the 24th century without making it an issue. Try to imagine this story with Kirk instead. A low score from me, the war comedy bits are amusing, but the rest is complete nonsense. Too vapid for any kind of recommendation. Next up is Interface. Uh, though it's never seen again, and if you're going to introduce an important technological development, it seems like it should be, the Geordi Probe Interface is a really interesting concept. Not only does it give LeVar Burton a chance to act without the visor, and I bet he was pretty happy about that, it also creates some eerie, almost surreal images. Geordi walking through fire or shooting phaser blasts from his hands. Though also, it creates the need for dull narration to relate information to the rest of the crew. And then they throw it all away on a ghost story. Ghost stories in Star Trek are invariably the same. There's an apparently supernatural entity haunting the characters who turns out to be an alien life form of a type we can't understand, an energy being, a subspace life form, what have you. So when Geordi's mother is missing in action and presumed dead and later appears on the derelict ship where only the probe can survive, you can see it coming. Or can you? I think it shows in the mother's performance, but maybe it's in the rewatching that it all falls apart for me. Because Jordy is pretty good at justifying his mom's presence through Technobabble that even Data finds improbable. Uh, it's a fair subversion of Trek's usual tropes, and it does build Jordy's character a heck of a lot more than any episode in recent memory. We knew he was a Starfleet brat, but seeing his relationship with both parents, including Ben Vereen, ooh, we can understand that he's really family-oriented, which makes his lack of romantic success perhaps more poignant, as he's unlikely to ever have a family of his own at this point. I do find it disturbing, however, that while people's lives are on the line, Jordy's superiors are still willing to give Jordy time off because his mom's gone missing. That's too soft a hand, in my opinion. I should also mention Data, because he's excellent in this. The scene where he's experiencing a 47-minute blank in a poem is quite fun, especially when he calls Jordy out on his reason for passing by. The best thing about Jordy, perhaps, sadly, is his friendship with Data. And you know, when he misses the point about alien poetry, I think I just figured out why he's not a character I empathize with. I give this a medium low. I was actually all set to give it a complete low, but the characterization is well done and the premise is relatively fresh. It's just that we've seen this kind of twist too many times before. I take complete responsibility. 
Next, we have Gambit Part 1. Gambit starts with an intriguing mystery surrounding the apparent death of Captain Picard and tracks the reactions of the crew before it is inevitably revealed that Picard is alive and well. Similar scenes in The Most Toys were perhaps less effective because we knew exactly what Data was doing in the meantime. Here, we don't. And Riker, uh, obsessed with avenging his captain, is a good turn of events. I could have done with less of the shrill Troy scene and more reactions from other members of the crew, like Crusher, maybe. Uh, but we really don't need to dwell on it because we know, you know, Picard will turn up eventually. When Riker gets captured by Baran and his band of artifact thieves, Picard does turn up in the guise of the brutish Galen, taking the name of his archaeology mentor. This Galen is the best part of the episode. Picard is perhaps too good at engineering ship problems to be solved by Riker. I guess Narek really sucks at his job, but it's the social interactions which are great. He manipulates Baran incredibly well by making himself such a big target that the target, ironically, becomes invisible. Lots of tension, a respectable phaser fight, an uncompromising character created by Picard. I only wish the aliens, other than Talera, were a little less generic, though their ship is really cool and its pie chart displays are fun. Meanwhile, aboard ship, Data has been given the captain's chair and does well with it. It seems like the android may be doing a Picard impression at times, and he's learned to explain his decisions a little more since the gaffes of Redemption Part 2. We would be totally defenseless. I am aware of that. Sir, as soon as they see us... Mr. Worf, that is an order. Aye, sir. This will hopefully pay off more in part two of this particular serial, but already he's able to decipher Riker's intentions at the episode's close. The freeze-frame cliffhanger looks hokey, but it does work. So to me, I'm giving this a medium-high. What the chase should have been more like. Great character bits, but also a tension-filled adventure story that moves at a brisk pace. As for part two, I think we could see the resolution of the cliffhanger coming, but that helps sell it, actually. It doesn't feel like a ripoff, and from there, we're back in the fun adventure that is Gambit. Yes, the character's competence sometimes veers into Mission Impossible territory, such as when they dispatch Baran, but it's so much fun seeing Picard and Riker play the bad boys and do a lot of talking with their fists that it's pretty easy to ignore the plot holes. It helps that Baran is easily manipulated. Talera is the really interesting character here. She's got a triple identity and is playing all sides, which throws even more double-crossing into the mix, since Picard and Riker are also playing multiple sides. We don't really hear from the Vulcan isolationists ever again, but have we seen them before? Was Cybok an isolationist? Talera certainly shows emotions like he does, even if their goals are totally different. Maybe Enterprise will yield more answers when we get to that. In this case, anyway, the goal was getting their hands on an archaeological artifact with magical or psionic properties, which made me rather think of Raiders of the Lost Ark. It had a cool effect and built on what we know of Vulcan history, though aren't we all a little surprised that Worf could survive it. Back on the ship, Data chews out Worf for questioning orders, which harks back to redemption, of course, but also leads me to ask whether he really is running some kind of command subroutine. His stiff and no-nonsense attitude would seem to indicate that even if it isn't explicitly mentioned, that's what's happening. At the very least, an interesting acting choice and his naive impression that he lost Worf as a friend was a good, if a tad sugary, moment. And at the end of the episode, it provides a nice bit of comedy as he escorts Riker to the brig. I believe you were facing 12 counts of court-martial offenses. And as I'm supposed to be dead, I'll go and get some sleep. And Mr. Data, I suggest that you escort Commander Riker to the brig. Aye, sir. This way, sir. Data, he was joking. You know that, right? Data?
part of the fun of such an episode is getting some offbeat guest stars. In this case, it's basketball star James Worthy as the tallest Klingon you've ever seen. Not much of an acting performance, but his height is the performance. It's amusing in and of itself. We also get the Cosby Show's Sabrina LaBeouf as Ensign Giusti, uh, so we should mention her in that guest stars category, but, you know, she's no Stephen Hawking. Medium high on this one, for once a two-parter that remains even throughout. Just a good bit of fun. Next up, Phantasms. Uh, Data revisits his dream program and gets his first nightmare, providing lots of memorable imagery like the phone in his chest cavity, which I would call the bender moment, Crusher sucking the brains out of Riker, and of course the mint frosting Troy cake. Uh, Why is Worf eating her anyway? Has Data sensed an attraction between the two already? Well, going into Data's mind using the holodeck is a nice idea in this, and the dreams are simple enough that it never gets too pretentious. I wasn't sure about the Freud character at first, since he seems like a collection of cliches, but seeing him explain his own appearance in Data's dream, it was worth it. Now, I wouldn't call this a comedy episode exactly, but it is light-hearted with plenty of funny bits. Picard's dread at attending the Admiral's banquet, converting itself into being a busybody in engineering, an allergic wharf having to tell Spot that he's a good cat and a pretty cat. He will need to be fed once a day. He prefers feline supplement number 25. I understand. And he will require water. And you must provide him with a sandbox. And you must talk to him. Tell him he is a pretty cat. And a good cat. I will feed him. Ensign Tyler's crush on Jordy. Evidence still points to him being involved with Aquiel, folks. Sorry. And best of all is Troy's amusement at Data looking forward to a new neurosis. I love the part where she offers to set up sessions for him. And he asks, Daily? Whoa there, big fella. Despite the comedy, the episode does turn on the creep fest, with Data stabbing Troy in the turbo lift and the interfacing parasites themselves being pretty damn gross. I bet Barkley was wetting himself in his quarters during this episode. It unfortunately fizzles out at the end when some technobabble magics the parasites away, and we're told in voiceover that everything's back to normal. Troy delivering a Data cake in the conclusion isn't as sharp as I'd like it either, but I still give this high high score. There's so many fun character moments in Phantasms that the, the pat ending and the usual aliens we can't see plot can't detract from its rewatchability. Now, Dark Page. Through the whole process of reviewing the entire series, Lex and Troy's episodes have been the most surprising ones. I remember most of them as annoying, but the process has given me the chance to reassess them, and I think I've been unfair to the character in the past. Dark Page, like Cost of Living before it, is an episode that's not at all like I remembered. There are problems with it, don't get me wrong. Majel Barrett pouring it on emotionally is quite over the top, really in the extreme. I find her quite effective when she's being subtle, however. And I think the same can be said when she plays Luxana as comic. But for Diana, this is an excellent episode. Her relationship with her father is delved into more than ever before, and we even meet meet him, making Deanna's accent a total mystery, even though uh, in Haven, Luxana said that her accent reminded her of her father's. It doesn't appear to be so here. Look at you. You've become a beautiful woman. His death has caused a deep wound in Deanna, indeed, and Marina Sirtis plays that well. In the more comedic first half, Deanna is really sweet and likable in her handling of uh, Maquis as well. And for all of Deanna's character building, it's the more comic half that I really appreciate. When Maquis' halting speech could have been very annoying, it comes off as realistic and somewhat charming instead. Luxana's attempts at matchmaking are funny here, and it seems Worf has given up on Mrs. Troy learning his name. And that poor lieutenant in the turbo lift with two telepaths, it's also fun to see Kirsten Dunst running around as an 11-year-old girl. 
And once Luxana collapses, the episode takes a 180-degree turn, and we have to go inside her mind. We've just done this with Data, and all looks remarkably the same. Dark Page certainly suffers by being placed right next to Phantasms in the schedule. Sirtis keeps us interested because the surreal imagery doesn't. The secret sister solution is strictly from a soap opera, but again, Deanna's reaction to it is in character and saves it from ridicule. To my surprise, giving this a medium, emotional truth and a strong comedy front end redeems the episode, which I'd wrongly remembered as melodramatic pablum. Attached. So for the third episode in a row, we have a story in which we find out what a character is thinking with a comedic B-plot to support it. In this case, at least, we're not physically in someone's mind. Attaching Crusher and Picard gives the writers the chance to finally tie a loose end that's been dangling since the naked now. Namely, the question of the attraction between the two of them. Old friends? We knew that. Breakfast buddies? Yes. But more? Turns out Picard was in love with her back when she was married. Oh, Picard, don't break the code. But he never said anything and hasn't said anything since because of his loyalty to Jack. They're just friends now. Or so the scene would let us believe, except that in the epilogue, Picard's suddenly willing to have a go now that they know how they feel about each other. Kind of changes the subtext of that campfire scene. In the last season, they could have gone with a big shake-up, but they didn't. Crusher makes what seems like a difficult decision, but she doesn't want to become another Neela Darren. Aside from the big emotional reveal, there's some good telepathic interplay between them. Crusher calling him on his crap, Picard digging too deep, shared jokes, etc. Light-hearted entertainment amidst strictly ordinary dangers in in the Prit Caves. Aboard ship, Riker has to handle the Kess and the Prit, both incredibly paranoid. It's played for laughs mostly, with Riker thinking outside the box and spelling out his logic to the alien rubes. A medium, then? The B-plot's comedy is not particularly sharp, and the A-plot is much ado about nothing, but it's fairly well done thanks to the cast's performances. Well, it seems as if we're stuck with each other. Oh boy, force of nature, absolutely dreadful. Though I understand the wish to make a Star Trek parable about climate change, how about you do it by screwing over some planet, not screwing over the show's premise? Star Trek is about exploration, brave new worlds, etc. Putting the Enterprise and all Star Trek ships on a speed limit of warp 5 goes against the very core of the show. And you just know they're going to be finding loopholes around that limit every chance they get. But given a worthy script it might have been forgivable. You can't even look to the B-plot for a relief. A nail-biting thriller about Data's attempts to train Spot not to jump on his console. Ten minutes in, the only thing that has happened was that Geordi had convinced Data to train his cat and the two of them aligned a conduit. That's it. Has Spot been misbehaving? Then the nondescript guest stars arrive and let us know that warp travel is eroding space-time and causing climate changes on their nearby planet. And that doesn't mean we're out of the slow bits. Don't worry. At least the cat training exercises made sense. Here, what doesn't? Uh, Dr. Sorova, the sister, can't prove her theory that space-time erosion will cause subspace rift, uh, which will fatally irradiate her planet, right? Okay, so she'll prove it to you. She commits suicide by blowing up a warp core in the eroded area, causing a subspace rift, which will now fatally irradiate her planet. It's like tipping over a truck carrying radioactive waste in your own neighborhood to prove you're justified in worrying that it might happen. It is idiotic. Spot's subplot never pays off, and the cat is suddenly female as of this episode, and it really doesn't seem like data to incorrectly attribute her gender, does it? And there's a hint of something in Geordi's rivalry with the Intrepid's engineer, but they missed an opportunity to make them fight over who's got the more space-time friendly engine now. No surprise, giving this a low, it's badly structured, wrong-headed, boring. Force of Nature would definitely make my worst five of TNG. Next up, Inheritance. You were a colleague of Dr. Soong? 
I most certainly was. And I was also his wife. In a way, I suppose you could say, I am your mother. Another theme this season is the long-lost family member. Troy has a sister she didn't know about, and later we'll meet Picard's bastard son, and a stepbrother uh, Worf never mentions, and in Inheritance, Data meets his mother. But it's actually not a bad way to discuss Data's early childhood when he's still being programmed and tested before he was discovered by Starfleet officers in the wake of the Crystalline Entity's attack. We learned that they had to write a modesty subroutine for him because he wouldn't wear clothes, and more crucially, that there were three other early and we know nothing about. How does B4 fit in this story? Fionnula Flanagan is a good actress and does her usual good job here, especially when stunned at everything Data's accomplished, uh, including Lal. His doubts about her identity seem pretty human, but are based on things we would not have detected ourselves. The Blade Runner-like twist gets set up enough that it doesn't seem like a cheat, and Data's final solution is both sweet and well-judged. Always listen to Troy on these things. Question, though, how did Sung place an information chip in her head after she left him? In any case, the whole thing comes off as heartwarming, and it's sad that we never heard from her again. Rewatchability, medium, interesting, and even sweet. But it seems like the series is running out of original ideas. It's good, but it's not essential. Oh yes, Parallels. Just a fun, fun, fun reality bender starring Worf, who's a one-man comedy team with his deadpan deliveries and uncomfortable double takes. He's cringing at the potential birthday party, for he's a jolly good fellow sung in Klingon in his expression as he discovers slowly but alarmingly that Troy is his wife in another reality. All classic moments. In fact, I'd like to nominate Troy for most improved character in the past season or so, since maybe the middle of the sixth season, really. She's had very few false notes and a lot of good ones. In parallels, she gets to show real emotion and be quite funny. I love the amused Troy. I don't know if it's the uniform or what, but since then, hmm. The other thing about parallels, of course, is that we get to see a bunch of alternate realities, and to geeks, that is cool. Uh, from small see moments like uh, Data's Borg incident or the Bajorans having invaded Cardassia, there's plenty to fire the imagination. I can't help trying to imagine what events resulted in Ogawa becoming CMO, for example, or Wesley being a tactical. I think they should have gone wilder, like using TOS uniforms or making everyone a Klingon slave or something. But I understand that would have been kind of cost prohibitive. In the end, how cool is that scene with the thousands of enterprises? You know, great humor comes from the absurdity of the number uh, of hails received by the Enterprise, or how long it will take to fill a sector with Enterprises. At this rate, the sector will be completely filled with Enterprises within three days. Note also that this is the true start of the Worf-Troy romance, which we unfortunately won't see enough of before Worf moves on. An unlikely couple, but the uniting factor that is Alexander gives it weight, and the alternate realities do not lie. If I had to find a flaw in the story, it's that Geordi is a bit abused. Not only does he die in a couple of realities, but they only cover him up with a tiny little towel and no one seems to grieve much for him. Sure, Worf's dilemma is mighty interesting, but that's your friend you just lost there. You know, maybe he was hated and reviled in those parallels, who knows. Still, not fair to the character, and the sure sign that it's an imaginary story. As in Marvel's What If series, the body count is unreasonably high and no one bats an eye. That's just the way of What Ifs. I still give this a high. A Star Trek What If would be mighty cool, actually, and this episode proves it. A lot of fun, and despite the reset button, it manages to be important to a couple of character arcs. 
We continue with the Pegasus. Uh, this episode starts with Captain Picard Day, a most enjoyable sequence with Riker doing his best Patrick Stewart impression. Uh, just a fun prologue before the drama begins, because, boy, it's a tense show after that. Once again, we're delving into a character's history. This time it's Riker's, and finding a dark secret there. The revelations don't take away from his character, but rather helps build it, and maybe we start to get a sense of why Jellico was such a turnoff for him. Because Pressman is certainly in that vein. Pressman's orders put Riker in a difficult spot, one that leads to a most memorable confrontation between him and Captain Picard. Picard gets hardcore, threatening to reevaluate the command structure of the ship. And if this tense triangle of leaders isn't enough, there's a brilliant chess game going on between Picard and Cyril, a Romulan commander particularly adept at verbal gymnastics and historically important for showing the Romulans have a variation in skin pigmentation. The mission's plot itself is good enough, with phase cloak technology making a comeback after the next phase, and the Enterprise entering an asteroid. Unusual environment, and it's well realized. When all seems lost, Riker makes the right choice, uh, I guess after spending some time with the Enterprise characters, and Picard really throws down. And that's just about when Pressman learns the true meaning of loyalty. No one will obey his traitorous orders. It's too bad that the show's format won't allow us to even hear about this again, especially since it ends with Riker facing a court-martial. I guess it went well. You made a mistake 12 years ago. A high rewatchability factor here, tense character interactions, and a progressively darker view of the Federation. Probably thanks to DS9, which was going on at the time. But it's also one of the better episodes for Romulans. Incoming transmission from the Done-in-One Wonders Wonder Show, Zoom Yukonori. Do not adjust your iPod. Episode Analytical Report Supplemental, Stardate 47457.1, Ensign Zoom Yukonori speaking. I will admit that The Pegasus was an entertaining episode, with a plot that brimmed with Tom Clancy-esque intrigue, and of course the strong morality play of following orders versus doing what is right. However, while I had enjoyed this episode, I cannot help but be disappointed by the fact that this story at least to me, had pretty much said everything you thought you knew about Starfleet was wrong. Of course, this was not the first episode in which a high-ranking officer of Starfleet had gone rogue. Way back in Season 1, there was Admiral Jameson from the episode Too Short a Season, and more recently, Admiral Kennelly from the episode Ensign Rowe. But these examples appeared to be the case of the officers acting alone. But in this episode... It is implied that Starfleet was not the paragon of virtue that had moved beyond all of that 20th century cronyism and clandestine agendas and guerrilla warfare. This was punctuated in a line by Admiral Pressman when he was arrested, and essentially threatened Picard by saying that he had a lot of friends in Starfleet command. And, after the Admiral was taken away, Picard flatly replied that Pressman was going to need them. Granted, this clandestine aspect of Starfleet essentially opened the door for more intriguing storylines down the road, and I believe that it may have also led to the development of Section 31 in the Deep Space Nine series. I also understand it was revealed that Pressman was a retroactive member of this organization in the series finale of Enterprise, which awkwardly used this next generation story as the framing device. But I digress. I feel the Star Trek franchise had been able to tell such thriller stories of intrigue before this episode, by essentially hanging the burden of the secret plots on some alien culture that would then be the contrast of the utopian ideal of the Federation. But no, 
we discovered that not much had really changed in 500 years. Say, I just realized, the Pegasus was discovered to be intact, only half-phased within an asteroid in the Devlin system. So where did that piece of debris found by the Romulans, mentioned near the beginning of the episode, come from? I wonder, was there another person at Starfleet with yet another hidden agenda to get Pressman out of the way, and thus used a replicator to... The Ensign has been dispatched, sir. Excellent. Send a message to inform Admiral Rayner that we have tied up her loose end. Moving on to the stupidest application of the Prime Directive ever, and that's Homeward. Yet another long-lost family member shows up, only ever mentioned back in Heart of Glory, at least he was mentioned, Nikolai Roshenko, Worf's foster brother. He's played by Paul Servino, looking kind of like his father, uh, but without the accent. Some hold that Servino is wasted in the role, and perhaps they're right. But I rather think that he's simply too good for what's written. His presence and charisma make us like him, and truth be told, his plan to save the Baralans is both clever and reasonable. And it's Picard who plays the role of the idiot admiral. Because that's the real problem of the episode. We've seen the Prime Directive be broken often enough in the past that we know when it's being unfairly applied. And saving the last tribe of a culture from a planet that's being destroyed, and randomly destroyed at that, not by their own hand, falls into the moral space that would allow us to excuse breaking the Directive. Unfortunately, Picard is miscast as the antagonist throughout, as a pencil-pushing hardliner who's only proven right by a manufactured holodeck glitch. And yet, Nikolai and Worf successfully navigate these difficulties anyway. We expect Picard to do the right thing, no matter how much wrist-slapping he has to suffer. And indeed, the last episode was all about free thinking. It just doesn't make sense. Throw in his awkward handling of the Voren situation, not studying up on their cultural context, and then spilling the beans, leading to the young man's suicide, and you have a very poor showing for the captain. So you spend the whole episode rooting for Nikolai and Worf. And this is a good episode for Worf, especially with Nikolai refusing to indulge in the cliché of rehashing childhood problems too much, and the charming fantasy quest they've set up for the Baralans. It's a wonder that the episode still works, given the annoying reversal of roles. Uh, normally, Nikolai would be the obsessive, unethical scientist, and Picard would be right. But it does work. That's saying something, given that there are so many small problems, such as the final beam-out, reversing what we learned in the Realm of Fear. Well, I guess maybe that's not so much of a problem. Or Worf taking the Chronicle with him, depriving the village of its lifeblood. But it's still as much as a medium. A good Worf episode with a very smart use of the holodeck and a sympathetic guest star. It's too bad it becomes borderline medium when you take into account Picard's criminal mischaracterization. It is a formidable responsibility. Sub Rosa is next. Once again, we have a returning family member. Oh, Crusher's grandmother, this time mentioned in the arsenal of freedom, but alas, she's dead. So it's a trip down memory lane for one of the characters. The season is replete with them. Uh, in this season alone, we've had Data's brother, mother and father, Jordy's parents, Force of Nature was supposed to feature his sister as well, uh, Troy's mother, father, and long-lost sister, Riker's uh, surrogate father, his first captain, I, that counts, Worf's foster brother, and now Beverly's grandma. I don't begrudge these characters their backstories, but it seems a little late to do all this character building. A lot of them needed it way before now. Oh, and once again, there's a ghost who turns out to be an alien, Ronan. Is that even a Scottish name? As played by Duncan Rager of Shakar fame, uh, he's a rather uncharismatic, breathy creep who has ensorcelled Beverly into leaving Starfleet and living out the rest of her life on the planet of the Scots. 
A well-explained transplant, actually. In, I guess, coital rapture. McFadden gives it her all, uh, but there's something a little embarrassing about Picard walking in on what must have looked like Beverly pleasuring herself. I'm exhausted. Maybe I just can't get into the gothic romance of it all. It's a well-made, well-acted, and well-directed episode, but there's also a lot of tacked-on mood, like the fog on the bridge and something either silly or profoundly disturbing about Ronan using the grandmother's reanimated body. It wants to be an old-fashioned horror story. It wants to be an erotic romance, but it looks to me like the story of a junkie, and it's the juxtaposition of all that that doesn't quite work. Note also the obscure title, Sub Rosa, which will become a Voyager tradition. Because yes, it's a Brennan Braga script, and the first he vehemently defended against fan criticism, which is another Voyager tradition. This one I give a medium low. In the medium range, thanks to the acting, and I can see why Gates McFadden liked it, but it just doesn't fit the format very well at all. <laughs> Lower Decks is next, and it tracks an adventure from the junior officer's point of view, and in so doing, produces something quite interesting. Two of the little people we already know. Nurse Ogawa has been a supporting player for a long time, and Sito Jaxa has been posted on the Enterprise since her fall from grace in The First Duty. The new guys are Torek, the eager Vulcan engineer, and Sam Lavelle, the junior Riker bucking for a promotion. Oh, and they even have their own Guinan in the guise of an affable waiter called Ben. The good news is... They're all sympathetic, and each is infused with a different personality and point of view. Lavelle getting shot down by Riker, Ogawa sharing gossip with Crusher, Sito coming to terms with her academy problems uh, via Zen Master Worf's help, Ben jumping the fence to the senior officer's poker table, Torek immediately figuring out Jordy's plans. These stand out as excellent scenes, and yet they feature minor or unknown characters. Of course, the regular cast's opinion of them is part of the charm, and this is all played out against crew evaluations. You think Worf's chewing her out? No, he always looks like that. Some further notes. Well, Jordy pisses me off. He won't let me like him. Uh, in this case, he shows himself to be a bad personnel manager. In the first place, it's not the first time we see him shut down an enthusiastic junior officer, an enthusiasm he should be fostering. Secondly, he puts a mathematically gifted Vulcan in charge of smearing up a shuttle not realizing that would give away the game. Get a human lunkhead from security to shoot the phaser rifle. Or Data or Worf, you know, who are in on it, for Pete's sake. Much better are the mirrored poker games. That's well-directed, but I think it might have worked even better if the senior officers had played with their hands hidden, given the whole gist of the episode. It's a minor point. Ultimately, the show lives or dies by Ensign Sito's story, and fortunately, it's quite good. Sito herself is extremely engaging, beaming, when first selected for duty by the captain. Then at a loss for words when she gets chewed out. Her Bajoran independent streak finally comes out under Worf's tutelage. He's very good in this episode. And she gets to go on a mission that feels pulled out of DS9, which is not a bad thing. The epilogue with the remaining friends allowing Worf to grieve with them is rather moving, actually. It's a high from me, showing us how the many extras aboard see things could have been gimmicky, but we always see enough to understand what's going on, and there's an emotional core to the stories. Sorry to say we never saw these characters again. Well, except Ogawa, of course. But here's what the fantastic cast's Andrew Leyland had to say about Lower Decks. Lower Decks solidifies an opinion I've held about Commander Will Riker for a long, long time. The man's an asshole. In Lower Decks, Riker is in charge of crew evaluations, and he's all smarm and charm with the pretty Ensign Sito, but a dick to Ensign Lavelle. For no other reason, that I can see, than Lavelle is a man. Now, this isn't the first time Riker has been seen to favour the women under him, nor is it the first time he's standoffish to the people under his command. 
Compare Riker's attitude to his superiors. He's obsequious to the point of sickness to Picard, a man that can influence his career, but frequently a jerk to his juniors, such as Lieutenant Shelby. Unless that junior officer is his friend. Worf, Deanna and Geordi have all crossed lines during the run of The Next Generation, but he doesn't give them the runaround half as bad as he does with Shelby or anyone else. Witnesses discomfort when a new commander, who doesn't fall for his smarm, is in charge. Jellico isn't a dickhead at all. He's a competent military officer with a very different command style, and Riker is insubordinate to the point of demotion. Why is Riker like this? Easy. He's threatened by strong officers that are a threat to his status. Riker seems to me to be one of those people who's risen to the top on the basis of his charm and personality rather than ability. Whenever he's been left in command, he hasn't offered up an exemplary performance. He's competent, sure, but often overconfident, and he's nowhere near the commander Picard, Kirk or Sisko are. Compare how Riker deals with Seto to how Worf deals with her. Worf treats her as an equal, an officer and a comrade. Riker sees someone he can potentially bang. Seto is under Worf, and he's much furrer as an officer than Riker is, to the point of showing Seto how to stand up to Captain Picard, of all people. Lavelle, by contrast, isn't a jerk at all. He's a nervous young officer who needs firm but positive reinforcement. But unlike Worf, who treats Seto with respect, Lavelle's training officer, Riker, treats Lavelle with burly concealed contempt. At the poker table, Worf again talks Seto up. Riker just disses on Lavelle, not recognising his need for nurturing. Ben, the proto-Gynon, is just as eager to please as Lavelle is. But Ben is a civilian, so Riker doesn't treat him like shit. Not that Riker can't rise to the challenge. He holds his own in Matter of Honour, but in peak performance, his first real command of the series, he's saved by Wesley. He acquits himself admirably in The Best of Both Worlds Part 2, but that's because he feels he has something to prove to Shelby, a far better and more go-getting officer. In the fake future of the episode Future Imperfect, he's a lethargic and uninspiring captain. In The Outcast, he risks both his and Worf's position in Starfleet. I'm honestly convinced that the only reason Riker has so many notches on his bedposts is that the crew women of the Enterprise have realised that they're in for an easy ride if they sleep with him. Throughout Lower Decks, we see an unpleasant side to Riker's personality, but it's a side that's always been there. He's a lesser first officer, an adequate but not wonderful captain, and a veritable sex pest. Jellico was right all along when he said, I think you're insubordinate, arrogant, willful, and I don't think you're a particularly good first officer. Did you come here for something in particular, or just general Riker bashing? And now, thine own self. Though really a data story, there is a strong Troy B-plot here that I'll address first. After her disastrous command performance in Disaster, remember that, and thanks to a catalytic school reunion and the good example put forth by Crusher since Descent, Troy decides to try for full commander. Her interplay with Riker is fun throughout, from the conversation in which he only speaks through his trombone to his not making it easy on her. Her frustrations are well played, and she incorrectly believes it's an engineering hurdle she has to jump. Once she figures out this Kobayashi Maru scenario one exploiting both the weaknesses she exhibited in Disaster, she earns her rank. It's a good subplot. They're really treating Deanna right this season, but it's hard to believe personnel in the health sciences can just pass the test and be automatically promoted. Maybe it's because they can't make it to captain, so they don't interfere with the command structure of a ship. Maybe I only mention it because Data has been passed up for this promotion time and time again, and now he has to call the counselor Sir. 
Oh well, it's still a good episode for the android himself. He's lost his memory, but not his inquisitive and logical mind, and it's a gr and it's great seeing him use the scientific method so ably in an early Renaissance culture. The irony is that his bringing radioactive material to the village is what's causing the mystery illness he's investigating, and we know this, and it helps heighten the tension. After all, a witch hunt was inevitable, and despite our seeing it coming, the ending is still rather shocking. A nice image, I also want to point out, Data looking up at the stars. It's a great tiny moment. I give this a high, actually. More than a remake of Frankenstein, it builds the characters of both Data and Troy in different ways. Data by stripping him down to his core personality, Troy by making her overcome her own. I'm glad to be of service. Masks. Masks is a surprise. I remembered it as a bit of science fantasy with clay masks and equipment turning into styrofoam blocks. I now found it to be a lot more like Darmok. And didn't I love Darmok? Indeed, it has the same sense of Picard working out a culture and a way out of his dilemma using anthropology and archaeology, certainly more interesting than the use of less human sciences, which almost inevitably veers into technobabble. His interpolations are all very interesting and not everything is explained, giving the viewers space to imagine the world of Masaka for ourselves. If the sun is death, then perhaps a planet orbiting a red giant, and so on. It's a good episode for Brent Spiner as well, with a number of characters to play. Yeah, sure, there's a usual evil voice of Masaka, and even of Ihat, though as a trickster clown figure, he's good fun, such as when he's astride the warp core. The old man whose bones were fashioned into the world, the victim so afraid of Masaka, creepy and unsettling transformations. The coda about Data having been an entire civilization is a bit much, however, I, I admit. The Enterprise is transforming too, and the amber glow covering most scenes is nicely atmospheric, but the palm leaves and foam blocks are less effective. The symbols roaming the computer are well realized, as is the rogue comet itself and the masks. The bit at the beginning with Troy's artistic expression class features a nice clay pad, as well as the kid Eric first seen in Liaisons, but somewhat ignores the fact Data's been a pretty creative painter in the past. So not a perfect episode, but a surprisingly strong one. In fact, I'm going to give it a high. A viable heir to Darmok with a fascinating cultural puzzle and an intriguing use of data. You're here to work on your imagination. Maybe you should try something a little more abstract. We move on to Eye of the Beholder, a creepy suicide story that isn't hampered much by its being... Well, first, mostly imaginary, and second, yet another ghost story. At least this time, there's no energy being posing as a ghost. It's psychic phenomena. Soft science, but given that the Star Trek universe has telepaths, it doesn't seem out of place. And the episode doesn't screw around too much with its imaginary section, giving us ample clues as to the switchover, especially if you've seen it before. And this is yet another strong episode for Troy, who is well used as an investigator. More importantly, Eye of the Beholder picks up the Worf-Troy romance where parallels left off. Though the love scene actually happens in Troy's infected imagination, it tends to support the idea that she is attracted to Worf. Otherwise, the scenario might have used Riker instead. And after all, Troy must be able to sense something from Worf, so it's not like it can ever be some kind of ironic, unrequited love thing between them. In the real world, we have Worf squirming while trying to ask Riker's permission. Is there someone in particular you would rather I not be involved with? Mr. Worf, you sound like a man who's asking his friend if he can start dating his sister. No. And that's damn funny right there. It's very cool to see inside of a nacelle. 
I love it when they show new parts to the ship. Sure, there are weaknesses, such as the preachiness inherent in Data's suicidal thoughts and the badly ending, uh, where there, a lot of people explain the plot to a silent Picard. But overall, this is an atmospheric and very dark thriller that doesn't come off as cheap and tawdry the way mm, Sub Rosa did. Another high from me. Worf Troy fans, take note. It's really been a good season for both of them, separately and as a pairing. What about Genesis? This is the one where they all turn into animals. It's your usual brain-dead plot in which the entire crew is acting strangely, keeping the mystery until Data returns to the ship and explains it to Picard. Uh, there's a sense of fun about the actors integrating animal characteristics into their performances. I especially love Dumb Riker. Uh, but Michael Dorn also does a good job with a silent and feral wharf. Picard jumping out of his skin and Barclay's hyperspeed deliveries aren't bad either, but it's all pretty ridiculous that an antibody would become an airborne virus that can de-evolve a person. I have it on good authority that introns don't even have anything to do with that at all. Uh, it's not like the solution makes any sense either, as Ogawa's pregnancy, congratulations by the way, shouldn't help non-humans any more than spots. It's a stupid plot, but it still has some pretty intense moments, most notably Crusher's disfigurement by Worf's acid venom. It's more shocking and violent than anything yet seen on the show, probably. Worf and Troy are outed in the worst possible way, with Worf taking a bite out of her cheek and then spending the bulk of the episode as a cool predator-like monster chasing after her pheromones. And maybe it's all worth it for Data's deadpan delivery of Picard's diagnosis. I believe you will also de-evolve into an earlier form of primate. Possibly similar to a lemur or pygmy marmoset. But here's my real beef with Genesis. It robs the characters of their dignity. Think about it. The Enterprise was turned into a veritable menagerie. How many crew members ate one another? How many mated, soiled themselves or their quarters? And yet, at the end, it's like nothing happened, and Troy's being all cute about clearing her calendar for Barclay. I dare say she's got a lot more work ahead of her. If you don't care about the thousand nameless crewmen, well, that's fine. But what about the climax with Worf chasing after Picard, drenched in Troy's pheromones? What do you think would have happened had he caught up? This whole thing is ghastly. If you switch your brain to the off position, it's a perfectly entertaining action episode with some good jokes and thrills. If you think about it too much, you might find it in very bad taste. <laughs> So what's next? Journey's End. Ah, an important episode for two reasons. First, it wraps up Wesley Crusher's arc, begun in, well, where no one has gone before. And two, it creates a template for the Maquis, who will become an important aspect of both Deep Space Nine and Voyager. Unfortunately, despite its historical importance, the episode is a big failure. Well, let's start with Wesley. His strange return from the Academy might make sense in the context of the first duty, but only if he were some other character. He's just a big jerk, and that doesn't jibe with any of the relationships he's forged on the Enterprise. His thread has him meet Lakanta, who turns out to be the Traveler, who had prophesied that he had a great destiny. Just how long had the Traveler been masquerading in the colony as Lakanta? And what about that vision of Wesley's dead father? We're sliding more and more into science fantasy every week, and that's not a good thing. From then on, he's beaming away like he joined a cult. It's creepy. So it turns out he has what it takes to become a traveler, which again seems pretty magical. But is any of this in character? I don't think so. The Cardassian Federation DMZ, uh, for its part, is a good idea to intensify drama uh, for Deep Space Nine, but it could have used a more allegorical treatment. Asking Native Americans to move again is just too on the nose. It's also ridiculous that the colony not trusting Picard hinges on his hitherto unknown ancestors' actions, especially when that ancestor is Spanish and the name Picard is not. 
It should have been incredibly easy to model the colony after native cultures who clashed with New France instead. The word Indian they use on the show itself makes me edgy, uh, probably because Canada doesn't handle native issues the same way as the U.S., and where the word is both inaccurate and very close to being a racial slur. In any case, Picard's diplomatic solution is so simple, I'm just surprised no one thought of it before. The only redeeming features, really, are the time-stop effect, which was pretty cool, and the way they treated Admiral Nechiev, redeeming her as a character. And a nice character detail in an episode equally devoted to diplomacy and courtesy. I'm going to have to give this a medium low. The only reason to watch it is its relevance to other episodes, but you're going to be disappointed every time. Well, maybe Kurt Onstad of Welcome to Geek Town has another take on it. When Star Trek Voyager came out, a friend threw a watch party over at his house, and there were about a dozen of us there. We knew the premise of the show from the ads, but didn't know the mechanism of how the ship would arrive in the Delta Quadrant. Before the show began, we brainstormed on ways they could get there. The best idea my best friend and I came up with was based on this episode, Journey's End. Our idea was that Wesley and the Traveler were out wandering space together, with Wesley learning how to control space and time. And right as Voyager passed by, Wesley sneezes, sending Voyager flying across the galaxy. The best part of this was that in our run of Voyager, every few episodes we would cut back to Wesley and the Traveler, and Wesley would say, I really think we should take care of that ship. No, you're not ready yet, the Traveler would respond. Then, the final episode, Wesley shows up on the bridge, shoots Voyager back home, and says basically, My bad. If you ask some people, this is better than what we got. Yes, I'm some people. Up next is Firstborn. We just got around to closing the books on Wesley's story, so now it's Alexander's turn. Taking a page from the Terminator movies and have his future self go back to the past to make sure he does become a warrior? That's interesting. And James Sloyan has great presence in the role of Kim Tar, the future Alexander, but he's really taking his regrets too far. Technically, committing suicide. And the time travel element is glossed over pretty boldly. So, never mind the temporal paradoxes. It's a worthy story, with the usual care taken to portray a Klingon culture, and Worf's touching acceptance of his son's destiny as a great peacemaker, which is a dirty Klingon word, I'm sure. There's a lot of children in the episode, including Kern's progeny and Lursa's unborn child, and all these years I was sure it was Bator's. Even little Eric makes a comeback. It seems like the houses of Moog and Duras will never resolve their feud, and that's how we like it, operatic. The rest of the Enterprise spends most of the episode chasing a paper trail back to the Sisters of Duras, which turns out to be padding of the worst kind, especially since the assassination attempt on Worf's life was a red herring. It gives Quark a chance to get a cameo in, but after that, uh, we talk to two more alien rogues who are basically variations on Quark. Ultimately, Riker's usual outside-the-boss thinking ferrets the sisters out, but it seems a bit easy. I also want to mention that not only do Klingon children mature quicker, but a Klingon year is very short, or it's a fluid concept. Alexander is close to 13 here, a mere five years after he was conceived. This episode I give a medium, another good chapter in the Klingon story, but slowed down by a wild and repetitive goose chase. It is important to tell these stories, even though we already know them. Bloodlines is next. Everybody's got new family members this season, right? So now it's Picard's turn. Except that since this bastard's son turns out to be a hoax, the episode is ultimately pointless. I won't even make my usual and he was never seen again jokes because we don't really expect or need to see Jason Vigo ever again. 
That name, Vigo. Wasn't there a Vigo serving under Picard on the Stargazer? Anyway, as a character, Jason is a bit of a jerk with Picard. That seems par for the course with every surrogate son the captain's ever had, whether that's Wesley or Jono. Uh, he's another of those charming rogues that fails to really be all that charming, though he's ultimately likable. And I have to give props to Patrick Stewart for knocking his heartfelt talk on the holographic mountain ledge out of the park. My own father and I were estranged. He wanted me to stay at home and tend the vineyards. And I wanted to join Starfleet. And he died before we could come to terms with that. And I regretted that all of my life. See, even when there's no real substance to an episode, by now, we love the characters so much, it's at least watchable. In a sense, making it about Picard and his father is what makes this work. Certainly, a eulogy about a character we never meet, Miranda, does little for us. One major disappointment is the return of Bach. Lee Ehrenberg not only doesn't look at all like Frank Corsentino did in the battle, but he doesn't portray Bach the same way either. He's just a thug here, and unrecognizable aside from his motivation. And while his subspace transporting shenanigans are clever enough, the episode ends rather like the battle, with the crew turning on their daemon. We've seen it all before, and with more personality. This one's at medium-low. As I said, the cast is always watchable, especially Patrick Stewart, but there's no real point to it, and the guest actors are miscast. Approaching the end now with Emergence. How can an episode that starts with a bit of Shakespeare turn out so badly? I must say, however, that Data's staging of the Tempest in the holodeck is a great idea. Has Beverly been wasting her time in her small venues, or is she a purist? I guess maybe she is. But being on a holodeck means TNG can do one last holodeck malfunction story. Yay, and since everybody on the show has gotten a new family member already, it's the Enterprise's turn to have a baby. As it turns out, the ship develops a kind of temporary sentience which manifests itself when it reacts all by itself to an invisible spatial anomaly that would have destroyed it. Just the kind of anticlimactic pitfall I don't want in my fictional universe, even as something avoided. From there, a rather dense Geordi. Check how he is always prompted like a school child to realize what's going on, and Data uh, finds some weird tubes in a panel, and it's off to the races. I suppose it's interesting enough to see the ship's psyche take form in the holodeck, though I'm not sure the allegory stands up to scrutiny. Uh, sure, the knight represents the shields, but who's the gangster who ties up the weapon systems? Who's the hayseed? The train looks good, as does the whole tube design of the new life form created by the ship, but it's a bit like someone describing their dreams. A lot of interesting images, but it's essentially meaningless, and thus a little boring. In the end, it's cooperating with the process that helps the baby survive. It's an interesting resolution. And it's off into the great beyond while the ship reverts to normal. Now, normally, this whole story should be attributed to some kind of virus or life form that has infected the Enterprise. During the Magna Storms mentioned, for example, that has impregnated it, took over its system and given birth before it expired. An unlikely type of life, but that's the proper explanation. Instead, Picard and crew are insistent on believing that the Enterprise itself became an intelligence, birthed a child that doesn't look anything like Federation technology, and burnt itself out, reverting to being an object. He even wishes the baby well, thinking that each member of the crew is part of that child through all the logs, etc. Which is ridiculous, and without any moral consequences whatsoever. If this were all true, then might the Enterprise actually still be sentient, and you've enslaved her? What about other ships? Do we have the right to use these complex computer systems if they're gonna become people? Even the ships procreating like an animal rather than a sentient, would deserve some attention. I wish there were character moments of note to save this turkey. You guessed it, rewatchability 
low. The ending is so frustratingly esoteric that it ruins any kind of brownie points its imagery might otherwise have accumulated. We need something better, and that something better is Preemptive Strike. They finally courted Michelle Forbes back to the show, and she's wonderfully effective in this. Since last we saw her, Rolaren has gone through advanced tactical training, akin to Black Ops, been promoted to lieutenant, and gotten some of the more subtle Bajoran makeup used on Deep Space Nine. As her biggest fan, I'm extremely glad to see her again, even if Preemptive Strike will turn out to be her swan song. Her mission if she chooses to accept it, is to infiltrate a Maquis cell and help the feds round them all up before they blow the Cardassian Treaty. The episode is basically using the Deep Space Nine story as backdrop to tell a very personal story. For DS9 fans, it's not a necessary chapter, it has no impact on its own story arcs. But for Roe fans, it's a must, as she's torn between three father figures, Picard, Macias, and the ghost of her father. Forbes gives a wonderfully affecting performance, much better than the harder, more bitter row of her first episode. Her final choice isn't an arbitrary one, and I thought it was a great touch that Riker would be accepting of it. Not in agreement, but understanding. In her final farewell, she calls him Will, leading me to think that they were much closer than they appeared. Picard, of course, didn't take it as well. But... It's not all soul-searching and holding back tears. In between the character development scenes, there's plenty of action, like the best space battle yet seen on TNG, between Maki fighters and a Galer class, a bold raid on the Enterprise using some of that advanced tech training, and the return of Gullivec, which I'd forgotten about. Cool stuff, lending flair to the core story. So I'm giving it a high rewatchability score. I remembered well that the closing of All Good Things, which is next, made me tear up, but I didn't realize Preemptive Strike would get me sobbing. I love Roe. And I'm sorry to say her story won't be taken up again until the DS9-2 novels, which really isn't the same. Tell him I'm sorry. So long, Rob. Take care of yourself. We made it. All good things. TNG series finale. It had better be cool, funny, sad, exciting, and well-made, and have something for every cast member, and a fun villain. And lo and behold... The real genius of the episode is it's taking place in three time periods with Picard shifting between them. As in Darmok, he's a little dense at times, working it out ever so slowly so the less science fiction-minded members of the audience can follow along, and there's entirely too much hardly remembering acting going on. But once Picard's figured it out, it's pretty impressive how smoothly he negotiates the transitions. The editing is always nice in that respect too. I took so many notes, just let me divide the show into those time periods. The past section helps cement the book ending of the series, especially given the return of Q at his most sinister and effective here. The trial never ended, Captain. And now humanity's time is up, unless Picard can show growth. Their scenes together are always good, and though a funny line, it's true that Q treats the Captain as a pet, to which he doles out equal measures of kindness and cruelty, might I add. The past gives us a chance to see TNG number zero, as it were, the moments just before encounter at Farpoint. Tasha's back, but Picard is so used to Worf being the chief of security it causes an awkward moment. O'Brien, who appeared as Ensign in Farpoint, here gets a chance to actually play it in character. And Data returns to his more naive roots. Still, this is a the least substantial section, because we've visited it before. The future, of course, is a monument to coolness. New uniforms, which are pretty good. New ships, the Klingons are cool, the future Enterprise is ridiculous with its third warp nacelle, but it's great to see it come from a different axis. Uh, in the battle, and the Pasteur harks back to the Daedalus class concepts that predated the Constitution. Some of the best aging makeup ever seen on the show, more subtle than the rubber masks usually seen, and the actors really sell it 
in their physicality too. And of course, the chance to see what everyone's destiny is. And that's an important element here. Since TNG was going into movies, it wasn't necessary or even advisable to tie off characters' story arcs in the series finale. But we still needed a rewarding finish, so the creators had their cake and ate it too by showing the possible fates of characters without tying the story down to those points. So we have a Picard Crusher romance that pays off, but ends badly. We have friends who have lost touch with each other and now must rally around Picard for one last mission, shades of the TOS movies. We have Jordy with eyes and a strong marriage to Leah Brahms, and I don't think I've ever liked him this much. We have Worf on the Klingon Council and the defeated Romulan Empire. We have Data teaching at university with a semblance of emotion. Is it emotion chip-driven, or or are they subroutines he evolved himself? And Troy is... Well, dead. Oh, well. Uh, the direction here also gets my admiration with its tilted angles, dark lighting, and dissonant music. It's never comfortable for Picard. The present is where most of the problems get solved. And since this is the version of the crew we like, it's the way it has to be. The subplots are largely dominated by Worf and Troy's relationship and how it is affecting Riker. It's all rather funny, despite the fact that we know this will create a rift between the two men that will last long into the future. Other bits, such as Picard and Crusher finally kissing, as a result of the adventure, never actually happen. But we don't feel cheated, actually. Likewise, don't worry about Geordi regrowing his eyes or Ogawa losing a baby. That's all undone. In the end, Picard still chooses to reveal the future he saw to his crew, which has two immediate effects. One is that Riker and Worf agree not to let a girl come between them. Originally, I'd read that as Riker coming to terms with the relationship. In the wake of everything that came after, however, it's now clear that Worf broke off the relationship in deference to his friend. And then Diana walks in unawares, you know. The other effect is that Picard invites himself to the poker game for the first time. It's actually amazing that he never has before, like this moment was all planned. And what a great moment it is. It starts out comically and then just pulls the tears out of you. And I get teary just talking about it. And the camera starts spinning above the table, then above the ship. Wow. I should have done this a long time ago. Like, I got other random notes on the story. Well, first of all, don't look too closely at the anti-time plot. Even Stay miles away, even. Uh, it makes no sense, and it's full of plot holes. The anomaly should have been there in the future and shrunk while being scanned, for one thing. There's so much fun stuff going on, you just don't think about it. Hamalog gets a nice little cameo, and I'm glad, though it makes me think of his wasted potential. The time-displaced Bozeman from Cause and Effect gets a mention here. It's stationed on the neutral zone border. For some reason, you can follow its adventures through the next couple of movies as well. They keep mentioning it. Q gets a cute line about your little trek through the stars, as well as many digs at the show's tropes, whether it's Troy's psychobabble, the unreligiousness of the Federation. Uh, but my favorite Q insult ever remains, You obtuse piece of flotsam. And did I mention the humor? Picard is especially funny throughout. The tea jokes, getting a particular chuckle. Heck, though, I think future data is kind of a bit of a git. Everyone in the cast is excellent in one time period or another. Obviously, this is a high, an immensely satisfying and beautiful love letter to the series. And I remember at the time, I had it taped, and for a long while, it was cued to that last scene. Normally, I'd be telling you, oh, we'll go to promo, and uh, and then we'll come back with uh, feedback and Star Trek news. But wait a minute. We still have four TNG movies to get through. Let's start with Generations. It's the other series finale, really, where all good things went for a one-shot story that paid tribute to everything that was cool about TNG, Generations goes the other route, having a number of storylines and ideas finally pay off. And you know why it doesn't work? There's just too much. 
Look at the classic movies. The best of them usually center around one big event, the death of Spock, the destruction of the Enterprise, knocking Kirk down back to captain, or bringing the Klingons in line with TNG's politics. In Generations, we have to deal with the death of Kirk, twice, Data's emotion ship, and the destruction of the Enterprise D. Throw in two more Enterprises, some more convolutions for Guinan's timeline, Worf's promotion, the death of the sisters Duras and Picard's family, and you're well on your way to a continuity death trap from which the non-Trekkies cannot escape. But even for the Trekkie, Generations is a failure because it doesn't use continuity enough. Despite all the continuity porn, the big meeting between the two generations captains in the Nexus doesn't ring true at all. The Nexus is supposed to give you your heart's desire. So why aren't these men of action on the bridges of their ships, Kirk especially? No, both are dreaming of settling down and having families. Picard's Victorian Christmas can be explained by his actual family having just died in a fire, and it's been brewing since the inner light, but it's still extremely sappy and gutted by our not recognizing the wife unless she's really supposed to be Janet Brooks from The Loss, same actress. Look at Minuet in Future Imperfect to see how it's really done. As for Kirk, who is this Antonia we know nothing about? If we're never going to see her from close-up anyway, why not make it someone we'd know? Like Carol Marcus or Edith Keeler. Really, any name from the original series. Non-Trekkies wouldn't recognize the name, but now neither do we, so it's hard to muster any enthusiasm for either fantasy, whether you're a Trekkie or not. Other stuff I find annoying, and we'll get the, to the good stuff in a bit, don't worry. The Enterprise D, uh, it's the set. It wasn't meant for the stark yellow lighting they give it. It's just jarring. The haphazard mix of TNG and DS9 uniforms makes no sense. Harriman, captain of the Enterprise B, is a right moron. Uh, in an effort to make Kirk bigger than life, they've done the wrong thing and made everyone around him ineffectual. Data was no doubt supposed to be the comic relief, but his emotion chip troubles are more irritating than endearing, and it's sad to see him reduce the spouting expletives as the ship crashes down. Speaking of crashing ships, was Troy really the only person who could take the helm during that scene? Really? At least she gets something to do, which is less than I can say about Beverly. Um, Picard's choice of exit from the Nexus, cutting it way too close when you thought he'd learned something from Q's paradox lessons. The reuse of Chang's ship blowing up from the undiscovered country. Picard's family, pictured as totally different actors. Worf's promotion, played as a tradition but never seen before. And we've seen Troy get a pip. We should have seen it. The spinning champagne bottle at the beginning of the film might have been a Chateau Picard, but no. Missed opportunity. And Picard carelessly discarding a priceless Curlin Nyskos from the chase in favor of a scrapbook invented for the movie. See, at once, plugging in continuity and then disrespecting it. And a few words on the score, if you'll indulge me. For seven years, TNG wasn't able to get a theme of its own. It was saddled instead with the over-enthusiastic music from the motion picture. It returns here, as do shades of Alexander Courage's original Star Trek tune, and that's expected. What about new music written for generations, though? Well, you tell me if I'm wrong, but isn't it the Deep Space Nine theme with a different flourish at the very end? My god, those are they're so similar. We also hear a lot of ethereal Nexus music, which doesn't do a thing for me. But I don't want to make it sound like it's a total wash. The acting is usually quite good. For example, Patrick Stewart does an incredible job shutting down after the news of his family's death. And he has great scenes with both Troy and Data in stellar cartography, which looks stellar, actually. Uh, Scotty and Chekhov could have been any characters from the original crew for all their characterization that's given them. 
Uh, indeed, it was supposed to be Spock and McCoy, which explains Pavel's recruitment of nurses. Uh, but only Scotty could utter the forlorn I when Chekhov asks if anyone was in the destroyed section. Kirk's first death is, in fact, a lot more touching than the second. I grant that his last words are good, and the final spinning through the air pretty dramatic, but it seems like there are just too many rickety ladders whenever he's scripted to die. Malcolm McDowell's Soren is well played as well, and often underappreciated because he has no connection to what has gone before, a la Khan or Klingons or that other movies managed to do. He got some good dialogue, the right intensity, and surprising combat abilities. He doesn't really feel like an Elorian if you take Guinan as typical, but he's a loon, and so that's fine. On the subject of our favorite bartender, well, the whole Nexus thing may explain why she can sense disruptions in history, as in Yesterday's Enterprise, also directed by David Carson. Perhaps she's connected to the echo of herself in the Nexus, outside of time. Of course, that's never explained. Other good stuff, Viridian 3, looks suitably alien, great location work there. Sulu comes up aces, and his daughter uh, would have made a great recurring character, I'm sure. The saucer separation and landing looks cool, and it was something prefigured in the tech manual, which kind of leaves the captain's yacht as the only cool feature from the book never to see the light of day. But wait until Insurrection for something like that. For Bozeman fans, let's track it. It makes a correction change along with the Nexus, and it may be the small reliant class at the end that picks up the Enterprise survivors. But the movie gets a medium. TNG makes a transition over to film with great difficulty and gets stuck in the quicksand of its own continuity. There are still some very good bits, but what worked on television, like the uniforms and sets, doesn't quite cut it on the big screen. It's sad to see the Enterprise D destroyed, but it's a necessary step towards a true cinematic vision of TNG. So let's look at First Contact. From the opening with that haunting score, finally, TNG gets some musical lovin', and then creepy pull-out of a Borg cube, disturbing drill-in-eye imagery, and double-twisted dream sequence, you're in for a major ride. It's... TNG's Wrath of Khan, with an old enemy of the captains coming back in full force, but this time it's our guy who's cast in the Ahab role. Picard's Locutus arc, begun in the best of both worlds, gets tied up in a great way, fully utilizing Patrick Stewart's skills as an actor. Not to get ahead of myself here, but there is no scene more resonant for me than Lily's confrontation with him culminating in the Moby Dick speech. I will make them pay for what they've done. That has an unspoken to me, doesn't it? But getting back to the start of the film, First Contact introduces the new Enterprise-E, a slick, gunmetal gray warship of sharp edges and glowing lights. The new uniforms are also an improvement in this new, darker Starfleet. Let's not forget the Dominion War also is in full swing at this time, and it will certainly help DS9's look. The new interiors serve the story as well, uh, though I haven't yet grown used to them at this point. Jordy's new eyes look and make a lot more sense than the visor, from both an acting and technology standpoint, and Data's emotion chip is used to good effect, never over the top. And I love the anxiety bit, for example, when he has to turn it off. Usually, a movie might end with a climactic space battle, but First Contact actually starts with that. And holy mother of God, what a beautiful ship battle. Dozens of ships, lots of interesting new designs, and in theaters, I couldn't help but shout out The Defiant as soon as it came on screen. An excellent way to bring Worf into the proceedings, and I like the tension between this exile and the others. 
But it's also a nice wink to continuity. In fact, First Contact does well what Generations did badly. Lots of continuity references that amuse fans, but don't detract from the story. Cameos by Barkley, the holographic doctor, and Ethan Phillips, who plays Neelix. The Bozeman is at the battle. Uh, the voice on the comm even sounds like Kelsey Grammer. Dixon Hill and a freeze-frame moment with many holograms from the series. Fully functional data. The design of the Phoenix. Uh, check out those blinking lights in the cockpit. And tell me it wasn't inspired by the original Enterprise's view screen. Uh, the first time anyone's ever said engage to go to warp. Etc, etc, etc. The main plot strands are explained and that's enough. The rest is just fun texture. The script sparkles with wit and counterbalances the intense drama and suspense of the shipboard battle against the Borg with light comedy on the planet's surface. Because in addition to a worthy revenge story, we get a missing piece of Star Trek history. First contact, when Zephram Cochran made his first warp flight and attracted the attention of the alien race that would help us make the first steps towards the Federation. There are challenges for our heroes, but a lot of great comic set pieces. None so funny as Troy's drunk scene. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. You're blended, all right. She's great in this. Riker's as genial as ever, too, and Jordy, well, well, okay, Jordy's an idiot, as usual. But it leads to the funny. At the same time, it's an exploration of how we see our heroes. It's a great theme, especially with what's going on with Picard up above. And James Cromwell is also very good in this role. But it's Alfre Woodard as Lily who steals the show for me. So down to earth and willing to call Picard on his bullshit. She's one of the best audience identification characters I've ever come across. Of course, there's another guest actress here, and it's Alice Kriege as the Borg Queen. Some have expressed dismay that the Borg concept was changed yet again, but this doesn't handicap them like the whole rogue Borg thing did. It gives them a voice and a face, and it turns them into a villain rather than a menace, and yet they keep that force of nature feeling. It seems odd at times that the Borg organizing consciousness has so much personality, and is quite the vixen too, but if you absorb the distinctiveness of every race you assimilate, you really should be able to access emotions. And in fact, the Borg concept should be changing all the time, shouldn't it? Really, one of the best things about the Borg in this film is that they adapt. It's a real move-counter-move game between her and Picard until she is finally betrayed by Data. The ending is a series of great climaxes. The first flight of the Phoenix makes you smile. The crew abandoning the Enterprise is a well-paced moment with stirring music and a choice for Picard. In the end, it's no surprise that the Vulcans were our first contact with the larger universe, and our first words to them should say something about us. It's thanks. Which, given the idealistic history outlined by the characters in this film, is fitting, if brief. I could go into too much detail, uh, list each of my favorite lines, discuss every cool effect or design. But I'm going to stop here and let you use the comments section to add to the review if you feel you need to. I've got to move on to Insurrection, but let me give a rewatchability score here. Um, I'm going to give this a sky high, which is better than the high. I may have a fondness for Star Trek VI and share fans' devotion to Star Trek II, but First Contact is the best of the best. It's got it all. Jonathan Frakes hardly ever had a false note on the episodes he directed, and after First Contact, I'm surprised he didn't get to do a lot more high-profile directing. So let's talk about Insurrection. Uh, with that low-tech opening and pastoral music, we're in for something different, to be sure. But to call this a light-hearted episode doesn't really do it justice. There's some real drama, and certainly a scale and production value that places it well above the television norm. 
It's in no way as dark as First Contact, but about as lighthearted as First Contact's comedy scenes when it chooses to be. The scene on Earth in First Contact was rather humorous without ever going over the top, and it's the kind of humor that works well here as well. Data, having left his emotion chip at home, is free to be the Data we all grew to love in the TV series, and here he explores what being a child means. Since emotions are now within his reach, this is a different wrinkle. Troy and Riker's rekindled romance is also quite fun, especially when she exclaims yuck after kissing him with a beard for the first time. It's not actually the first time. It happened a couple times in the series. She seems to have forgotten it. Uh, Picard's sweet romance is also light, but with more weight, thanks to Patrick Stewart's always superlative performance, here accompanied by Donna Murphy as Anige. I find her to be a delight, a beautiful, graceful, and wise. A good match for our so-called young captain. When the humor does not work is when it gets too broad. The reception of the fish people at the beginning of the film has some good moments, you know, like Worf's non-explanation for being there, but it devolves into sushi jokes and Picard wearing a silly hat. This is followed by a sequence where Picard and Worf have to befuddle a rogue data by singing some Gilbert and Sullivan, which is cheesy and stupid. I also don't like where they're taking Worf in the films. Used to be Worf's deadpan deliveries were a major source of comedy, perhaps taking root in the previous film's space sickness moment, the Worf comedy now seems more about humiliating him. In Insurrection, he has to go through puberty again, even though I don't see anyone else getting acne or a broken voice or anything. And all the other characters just snicker around him. Now, these forced attempts at comedy are more jarring for the rather gross villains our heroes have to contend with. Madcap comedy and gore you just don't mix well. The Sona don't quite make it into the Villain Hall of Fame here, being very much tied to this story despite attempts to connect them to the Dominion War. F. Murray Abraham, as their leader, Ruafo, is a bit over the top at times and does little to carve himself a place in the same pantheon as Khan, Kruge, Chang, or the Borg Queen. The bad Starfleet Admiral Doherty, played by Anthony Zerby, lacks luster in much the same way. Dealing with these guys makes for a somewhat dull climax, and my attention tends to wander in the last 20 minutes. Despite the Saturday matinee villains and comic moments, there's a real drama at the heart of insurrection, and Picard, as usual, excels at making all the right points. He's got a great, how many people does it take, speech. How many people does it take, Admiral, before it becomes wrong? Hmm? Thousand? Fifty thousand? A million? How many people does it take, Admiral? And ably convinces Gallatin to betray his own people. Meanwhile, in space more or less flipping the roles of the characters from First Contact, Riker does what Riker does best, win spaceship battles. The sequences are pretty to look at, and the maneuvers are as desperate as they are innovative. On the characters that don't get much play, Jordy works well as Riker's number one, and his sunrise moment manages to be touching. Note the return of the beard as well. Now that the visor's gone, it's not like he has too much stuff on his face, so he can have that. It's Beverly who comes out as a loser once again. Aside from the booby joke, she gets even less to do than in the last film. The special effects are pretty and almost painterly, the location shooting is gorgeous, and the ship design's interesting. And hey, here we go, the captain's yacht. One might have an objection to the slow time scenes, clearly in the science fantasy mold I don't like very much, but they're at least thematic. This may be an unpopular opinion, but I'm giving this a medium high. Though some of the comedy is a bit grating and the bad guys are less than memorable, Insurrection made a surprisingly strong showing. It's well made, it's well acted, it has some weight, both comic and dramatic. You could do a lot worse with two hours leisure. So here we are at the actual end of this segment, Nemesis, the last TNG movie. Finally, 
the Romulans are given their due and are made the villains of a major motion picture. Well, almost. The Ramis are basically just dupes of Picard's evil clone and of the Remans, Nosferatu lookalikes from that other planet in the bird's talons. I'm really happy to see Remus, don't get me wrong, but once again, the second most classic race in Star Trek gets the shaft. They're really rather friendly in their plaid phase. But an evil clone? It's a strange proposition at this point, and if the theme is about the road not taken, well, wasn't that what Generations was for? Shinzon turns out to be a fearsome opponent, but with muddled objectives. He wants to take over the Star Empire, destroy Earth, suck DNA out of Picard to heal his degenerative disease, maybe mind-rape Troy a little. And to do all of that, he secretly built a giant ship with a massive death ray on it, taking control of the Senate overnight, scattered pieces of a previously unknown Sung-type android on a planet that the Enterprise would hopefully detect... It's more than a little convoluted. Data also gets an evil clone, uh, but B4 isn't really evil, just programmed to be bad. Not that he understands what he's doing. Gives Brent Spiner one last dual role to play, and it seems to give creators an out if they ever want to bring Data back. Because, yeah, see, Data dies in this movie, and that's a major problem with it. If the movie had done well, it might not have been the last TNG movie. But to be on the safe side, with the franchise losing a lot of steam around this time, it's written to be the last hooray. Crew members get shuffled off here and there by movie's end, but the most drastic move is Data's death, and it seems to come out of nowhere. There's no foreshadowing. A deleted scene might have hinted at it and had the Resican flute in it, damn it. You know, why cut it? And there are no actual last words for Data. Check out other important deaths, like Spock's and Kirk's. They always get dealt a fatal blow and then can have one last scene. Speak some final words, create something that resonates. Not Data. He makes a choice to sacrifice himself, says goodbye to the empty air, and he blows up. That's it. There's no big funeral either. Just his friends, in an awkward silence, apparently as shocked as we are, Riker finally starts to tell the story of his first meeting with Data, uh, which was also ours, but he can't remember the song the android was trying to whistle. Well, guess what? We all can. It was Pop Goes the Weasel. So it would have been a great moment if B4 had started whistling that instead of singing the wedding song from the start of the movie. But better to lube the film than 20 years of new Trek, I guess. Some of those continuity references non-Trekkies apparently hate so much, you know? But there are lots here, and many don't make sense. The Wedding, for example, manages to avoid Luaxana, because there's a separate ceremony on Beta Z, but it still features cameos by Guinan and Wesley, who's in a Starfleet uniform. So what's the untold story there? The one that puts my teeth on edge, however, is Admiral Janeway. Admiral Janeway. After seven years of Trek creators trying to convince me that Janeway was hot stuff... They're still at it. I'm okay on the promotion. I guess they were impressed with her destroying the Borg, and we all know admirals in Trek are often incompetent bullies. But having her refer to Picard as Jean-Luc while he has to stick to her title is just disrespectful. A better reference is a USS Archer listed on the Neutral Zone Task Force. Nice to see Enterprise get a little love. And a cameo I knew about but didn't think you could see is actually visible. At 1, 23 minutes, 25 seconds. And that's X-Men director Brian Singer on the bridge of the ship. Well, that one hasn't aged well. As the big goodbye, Nemesis should probably have been more of an ensemble picture. Troy gets a good role, at least getting revenge on the Viceroy for his mental invasion with her psychic targeting trick. I'd have liked to see more of that on the show, actually. And Riker gets a little action, but it's on a rickety ladder, alas. At least he finally makes Captain. Jordy and Bev get the short end of the stick once again. You know it. I mean, if the chief engineer didn't have to play psychic to Data, he'd be as useless as the doctor here. Worf, for his part, gets some action, but is still being humiliated, screaming like a little girl when an android arm grabs his leg and his prudish refusal to go naked at Diana's wedding is ridiculously out of character. 
So I seem pretty down on the film, but there are some good points. The acting, of course, is at its usual level, as are the stunts and effects. There are some fun action sequences, from a dune buggy chase in a barren desert to a scorpion escape through the corridors of the scimitar. A blind dogfight in the nebula tries to be uh, the Wrath of Khan, but after the major ship battles of First Contact and Deep Space Nine, a couple of Romulan ships, and I do like the sleeker warbirds, doesn't excite much. Uh, but the final battle between the Enterprise and the Scimitar is certainly up to standards. The ramming maneuver threatened in insurrection here finally happens, and the damage is major. Data jumping from ship to ship, all of that. Not sure about the physics, but it's certainly epic. And I've always said the Enterprise-E looked as sharp as a blade. So this ends up on a medium. What can I say? Good seeing these characters one last time. I just wish the story was a little more relevant. Shinzon makes for another forgettable villain, and the Romulan's potential is again wasted. But it looks good. Repeat viewings cushion the blow of Data's death, but don't make it feel any less futile. All right, so now, now we can go to commercial. And when we come back, some subspace transmissions, that's Star Trek news, and your feedback from the previous episode. When this is over, I owe you a drink. Pre-crisis. Post-Crisis, the ultimate universe, clone saga. Do your friends throw these phrases around while you sit and wonder what they're talking about? Do you want to get into comics, role-playing, sci-fi, or fantasy but don't know where to start? Well then, welcome to Geek Town. Welcome to Geek Town is a podcast where I answer questions from non-geeks and geeks alike about various geeky subjects. What are the different timelines in DC? What makes the X-Men feared and hated when other Marvel heroes aren't? What's the difference between Marvel and DC, and why the turf war over which one is better? Learn the answers to these questions, and maybe your own, at Welcome to Geek Town. Available in iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and other podcast aggregators. Incoming subspace transmissions. Well, in Star Trek news, uh, starting on a sad note, Trekdom was shocked and saddened by the passing of Aaron Eisenberg only a couple weeks ago at age 50. He breathed life into Nog on Deep Space Nine for seven years and died much too young. Star Trek Discovery has won its first and its four best prosthetic makeup. It was nominated in three other categories, main title design, sound design, and visual effects. The winning episode was If Memory Serves, which featured the updated take on the Talosians. The show's second season also won three Saturn Awards for Best Streaming Science Fiction, Action, and Fantasy Series, Best Actress in a Streaming Presentation for Sonequa Martin-Green, and Best Supporting Actor in a Streaming Presentation, Doug Jones. A new trailer for Star Trek Picard, one that features Riker and Troy no less, was just released to advertise the show's launch date, January 23rd. I gotta say, I'm getting a strong All Good Things vibe from this material. CBS All Access also released a Discovery Season 3 trailer, which shows the Federation in decline 900 plus years after the TOS era. Uh, we see Andorians, Trill, and Elurian, that's Morn species. I mean, why is that my favorite part of this? Uh, Discovery Season 2, by the way, is out on DVD and Blu-ray on November 12th. A new batch of short treks has started streaming. The first episode, Q&A, came out this past weekend and features the crew of Pike's Enterprise to my great delight. The second comes out this Thursday and is entitled The Trouble with Edward. The rest will be released on Thursdays sporadically. 
Ask Not, on November 14th, The Girl Who Made the Stars, and Ephraim and Dot, both on December 12th, and Children of Mars on January 9th. Aside from the titles, we have few details on these, except that the last one is a Picard prequel. Two are animated, but aren't part of the two planned animated shows, so is it a way to tell stories taking place in continuity despite the actors aging? Maybe. And there are two other Pike stories, one of which features Tribbles. There's a trailer for that, too. Look for it if you need it. And now a selection of your comments on our previous episode, To Beard or Not To Beard, with bearded guest Casey Doran. Chris Franklin says, fun show and very interesting and unexpected topic. Riker needed the beard because Frakes kind of has a baby face. It totally made him look or seem more badass and roguish. It also made him seem less Kirk-like, even though he was still pretty Kirk-like, if much less intense. When Cisco went to the bald, goateed look, I thought Avery Brooks was just channeling his previous Hawk character. But hey, it worked. He looked better that way, so why not? Also, one other bald guy with beard... Uh, who came to mind, was Galt, the Keeper of the Thralls in the Gamesters of Triskelion. His looking outfit looked very much like Ming the Merciless. And if the analogy for beards showing maturity in the series held completely across the board, then someone should have had a beard in Star Trek Beyond. That was the mature version of that series, fully developed into actual Star Trek. Well, Chris Pine did wear a beard at the uh, premiere, if you want to count that. Brian Linton says, I was ready to launch into a rant about how the lack of beards in Star Trek is evidence that the Federation, or at least Starfleet, is secretly controlled by the men's shaving product industry. Then I realized that the existence of replicator technology probably means there no longer is a men's shaving product industry. Therefore, my new theory is that the lack of human male facial hair is a result of the eugenics wars, perhaps the augments, believing beards to be symbolic of humanity's primitive culture, release an anti-beard bomb into Earth's atmosphere, which altered human DNA, crippling the ability of most human males to grow beards for centuries to follow. In which case, Riker and Sisko represent the minority of human males who retain the ability to produce facial hair. Makes sense to me, Brian. Abel Mavada says, Although I don't know you personally, Siskoid, I feel confident that you could grow a beard if you were to put your mind to it. Just remember that where there's a will, there's a Riker. I'll let the listeners groan at that and tell you that, yeah, I, of course, I do have facial hair. But um, let's say it's patchy and I have no wish to look like an adolescent at this point in my life. Tim Price says the episode was worth it for the title alone. Well done. And Chris Lewis uh, ends our little feedback section with an entire episode on Trek Beards and not one single name check for Mott the Barber. I'm outraged, I tell you. Outraged. And for that, I have no excuse. Have to let you know uh, before we end that the Fire and Water Podcast Network now has a Patreon page at patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. Give me that Star Trek accounts for just but a fraction of more than the thousand episodes available on the network. Uh, and while we, the founders, were happy to pay for the hosting over the first three years of operation, uh, it's gotten out of our price range. So if you like this content, you want more like it. Think about leaving a one-time or monthly donation. It even unlocks rewards. For example, for five bucks a month, you could get yourself on the Starfleet commendations list like Full Ensign Doug Van Diver. I told you he'd get a promotion. Thanks, Doug, for your contribution and for fully saving the ship countless times. Join Doug and I in the fleet at patreon.com. And as usual, let me remind you that you too can leave comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com or on the Fire and Water Facebook page or on Twitter, where we are FW Podcasts. Until the next episode, this is Siskoid reminding you to 
Go boldly. I don't see why we have to do this every year. 